Chapter 20 A Tale of Worship The village church was a low, squat building. Stunted bushes clung to the base of its walls and strands of ivy rose like galley ropes towards the roof, as if the land hoped to drag the structure down into its bosom or pull itself up to the pinnacle of the lonely cross. Its walls were simple, rough-hewn, and above the rust-coloured doors hung a piece of lacquered oak carved with the inscription, Faith is reason unto itself. This homily had been chosen by Father Jones, who was quite a remarkable character. Gerald Jones had been born into the church. This was a joke in the village, though if there was nobility in it, it was the nobility of circumstance alone, for it was between the pews that he drew his first breath, and his first cry was a lasting one. Gerald's mother had been a thin, nervous woman given to strange rages and dreamy reveries before blowing curtains. Those with long memories remembered her as an oddly determined girl, friendly to butterflies and fearful of men, who rebelled against the stifling conformity of her small circumstances by surrendering immediately to all demands. A travelling tinker with poetic aspirations became her husband by making two mistakes. He mistook her distance for mystery, and when she accepted him at once, confused obedience with acceptance. He soon found out that she regarded all men as uniform seeds whose only hope for robust growth was the grim pruning of a determined wife, and a savage, silent battle soon ensued before the quiet eyes of their only child. The boy grew like a mushroom, deep in the dark embrace of maternal fascination. This was not unusual at first, for all new mothers sink into the wombs of their infants, but her husband lacked the ability or desire to woo her back to the more measured pleasures of adulthood. There were no siblings. It was Gerald and herself, adrift on a murky sea of self-regard, and the pleasures they gave each other were deep. They spoiled each other with their intimacy, for there was no effort in it, no need for compromise or definition. Gerald was five when his father escaped the descending nets of his mother's demands. He strode into a cleaner dawn as the boy watched from his little bedroom window. The dark landscape, still leaning towards sunlight, shocked the boy immeasurably. It seemed unimaginable that his father could leave and the world continue to turn. He watched until the rising sun outlined the distant cross of the village church, feeling the cold regard of a new father. The boy's vestal birthplace was a mere matter of odds, for his mother spent so much time at the church that even pious villagers regarded her with unease. Her religion was deep and needy. It is natural that such an infant woman should prefer the endless generosity of the supernatural to the navigated affections of mere mortals. It seemed inevitable that the boy was going to become a priest, yet his fervent faith was a departure from the easy-going traditions of village worship. The previous priest had been perfectly matched to the demands of the community. He was disciplined but sensible, being himself a farmer's son, and would not dream of interrupting the harvest with ecclesiastical demands. Father Jones turned out as was feared. He was a professional 
priest and expected that every facet of village life would revolve around his god, just as his mother's life had revolved around him. Yet even this had not been disastrous at first, for Father Jones' fervor had been somewhat restrained by the demands of his mother. In his early twenties, however, she died of a long, wasting disease, and he utterly retreated into the bosom of his peculiarly feminine God. To the villagers, God had hitherto been salvation. There had been a certain practicality of cause and effect, and the congregation had followed the landmarks to heaven with little thought for theology. God, to Father Jones, was love, romantic love incarnate, the kind of love that punishes by generosity, and a new beast began to lurk in the spiritual life of the village, the beast of reproach, and it began to unsettle the rhythms of life and death. The church devolved from a social place of spiritual transaction to a flickering womb of scolding devotion. This shift alienated many villagers. There was much muttering and shaking of heads. Numinous spiritualism has always appealed to guilty leisure more than arduous labor, especially labor involving the natural elements. To the villagers, the purpose of religion was to provide comfort in the face of death and scapegoats in the face of disaster. Because life hung so precariously over the chasm of natural disasters, the need for reassurance was as intimate as the desire for life. Faith was a dedication to survival. God was merely the means. Thus, when Lawrence's reforms began to spread their wealth, church attendance slowly dropped off. The murky guilt provided by Father Jones did not sit well with the new pleasures of the villagers. He knew this, and, in knowing it, knew his enemy. Lydia seemed to almost sniff Father Jones when she and Lawrence approached the church late that afternoon. When they opened the door and peered inside, it seemed dungeon-like, like the interior of a barely cracked egg. Wizened heads and slumped shoulders lined the pews like the chained rowers of an ancient galley. The light from the red windows bathed the scene in a crimson hue, a glowing tribute to years past when all glass was stained with blood. An alcove in the far wall of the church contained the altar. The altar, in turn, contained Father Jones, who, wrapped in his sermon, did not notice their silent entrance. "'There are those, my children,' he was saying, placing a hand on his notes and raising his eyes to the congregation. "'There are those who walk among us and say that they are gifts from God, that their generosity surmounts Christ's in its practicality. "'How can they say this?' Friends, why, because they can wave one hand and fire up the fullness in your stomach. Wave the other and keep your cattle on all fours when the frost comes. They need no miracles for their loaves and fishes, but the glory of God's skies and the bounty of his earth. And it is said by many that these men are in fact gifts from heaven, that God has awakened from his slumber, seen the starvation and want here on earth, and sent them to us as his agents of a better world. And do we need proof of their worth? Have they not provided us with the means to grow food for those in want? Have they restored the glow to our children's cheeks? Have they not granted us respite from the four horsemen? And are we not 
tempted to fall on our knees in gratitude and praise them to the skies. Father Jones paused, his eyes fluttering to the stained glass. Yes, are we not tempted? For if we suppose that this is no small miracle, we are right. And if we suppose that there may be a price to be paid for this miracle, we are more right. For Satan rarely tempts us with hardship. Were pleasure the only moral compass, the road to heaven would be paved only with the avoidance of pain, and all would be good who felt good. That would be a simple test, friends, too simple for the deceiver who knows well the lusts of man. But it is not so. It is not written so. The high road is the hard road, friends, and we would be fools falling into evil if we clutched at every pleasure that came our way with no thought for the consequences to our souls. No. The devil knows the heart of man, how it yearns for comfort and release from the harsh demands of goodness. He knows how it longs to beat easier over a full belly and a happy future. He knows that man's belly thinks of the future only as the day after the end of digestion and cares only how it shall feed again. He knows that the weakness of man, the crack in his armor, is his trembling flesh, the flesh that demands satisfaction before salvation, the flesh that knows nothing of the sacred pleasures of God, the flesh that knows it is only a few years from dust and wishes to gorge itself as much as possible before it is discarded. The devil sits in his lair, Friends, as he has for all eternity, he sits and he plots, for he wants souls for his belt. And after a thousand years of thinking, of thinking so hard that his ears melt and run down his neck, he hits upon a solution, and laughs and leaps and spews fire from his mouth. The devil chooses his man very carefully. The devil knows that men who know his face make bad servants, for they hate themselves too much to keep any faith even in him. The devil chooses carefully because he knows that his best servant is the man who thinks he is doing good. Father Jones raised his eyes to the rear of the church, towards the darkness where Lawrence and Lydia stood. Their eyes did not meet, for it seemed that the priest was looking past them, past the church, to the vast fields beyond. The priest cleared his throat and spoke very softly. The congregation leaned towards him like rushes in a gentle breeze. When the devil has chosen his man, he begins to whisper in his ear, very gently, in dreams, and the man wakes in a cold sweat. He has felt the brush of greatness, but of what sort he knows not. When that man awakes and looks upon the earth, he begins to lust for it, just as the devil did since the dawn of evil. But the man feels a gentle lust, a seduction that feels like the brimming love of deep waters. And now this man finds himself filled with waking dreams, dreams that bring fears, but he quiets his fears by telling himself that he wants the earth only as a gift to others to the poor, to you, my friends. 
And he works hard, he travels, he learns from many men, for the devil is busy. And upon his return, this prodigal son does indeed seem to bring the light of salvation with him, for he believes that he can make the earth bloom by turning a page. Lydia suppressed a smile and glanced at Lawrence. Father Jones rose to full height. And the earth does bloom, just as expected. And his generosity is unbounded, for the earth seems his to give. And it quickly becomes the only gift he cares about, for the devil is whispering dreams of dominion over life and death. The devil speaks to this man like a mother in dreams. What is life but what you are able to grasp with your own hands, he whispers. My son, do you believe that God made man to suffer? No. He helps those who help themselves and loves a man who leaps to him on strong legs. The ugliness of man in the muck of thin children and women's souls barren with bitter tears makes him turn his face in pain. For has he not provided man with all the bounty to worship him in peace and joy? Yes, all this has been given to you, but you spurn it. You spurn his gifts and prefer the games of war to the work of plenty. This life is a test, yes, but a test of love, not suffering. Suffering stems from a loss of love, love for this gift, this earth, and it grieves God. This man ignores the holy warning of James 3.15. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. Thus this man listens to the devil's voice and he hears the laughter of children that his lands have not heard in a long time, and his heart shakes off its weight and rises once more, and he begins to plan, for he wishes to make a heaven of earth. The light was fading softly, as if the church descended through a deepening tide. Lawrence shivered as the priest repeated his words. Yes, my brothers, a heaven of earth. And while this man labors for a heaven on earth, the true heaven, the heaven above, whose garden is watered by the tears of the penitent, God's heaven, the true home of man, withers in the face of man's newfound gluttony. For behold, friends, we see before us the disaster of the age. We see its face and know its name, for it is gluttony, the scourge of old. Father Jones wiped his forehead. What is this gluttony? Do not be misled, friends, by the heaviness of your table or the upsets of your stomach, for that is only man's gluttony and can be survived by the righteous. I speak here of the devil's gluttony, which is a greed for the temptations of this false world. We have all heard the holy words, friends, in Corinthians 3.19, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And in James 4.4, 4, Know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Thus the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. Yet we must also know that the comfort of this world is discomfort with God. God, for we are like men sent on a long journey by a sworn lover. And along the road of our journey, 
beckoning from smoky windows and midnight swamps, is our dark lover, the devil, who would take us from our journey and seduce us with shallow pleasures. Of what account would we place a man who turned from his sworn love for the sake of shameful lusts, no matter how far he may wander? This is our journey through the world. We are sent on a pilgrimage by our lover, our God, into this life, and we are not to travel lightly or easily. We are not to consort with the devil or dally with his whores, for it is on our souls that we return whole and pure to the God who sent us. A man may turn from the path, yet he will blink and laugh if told, for he believes he walks the path of righteousness. He believes that he serves God by serving the pleasures of this earth. He does not know that to be for the world is to be against God. In Job 5.20 we read, In famine he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. So I say to you, forget your dreams of earthly lusts and trust in God alone. Go home to your children and take their bottles, their full plates and easy women. Take them from this easy lust of crops and bartering and usury. Sit them down and speak to them of their true love, their God who watches over them and weeps at the sins of their negligence. Tell them to turn from this madness, this lust for a world of pleasure, and return to the church that gave them life. Father Jones mopped his brow as he finished, his eyes scanning the pews. The faces turned to him seemed pale in the thick tallow light, knotted with hope and strange resentment. Let us sing, he said. Lydia and Lawrence stepped outside the church, listening to the droning voices within. You said... We should go back inside and arrange for your concert, said Lawrence. Are you tired? No, I haven't spent as much time here as I should. Who is the priest? Father Jones, a rather capable man, quite out of place here, I think. Were you not bothered by his sermon? I don't pay much attention to religion. Perhaps you should, she said. Not that it's any of my business. Let's talk to him. When the singing had ended, Lawrence opened the door and watched Lydia enter. The congregation was breaking up, and Lawrence nodded at some of the villagers he knew and was surprised when they averted their eyes and hurried past out into the evening air. "'Father Jones!' he called. The priest's head rose sharply, and he stared at Lawrence. "'Lord Carvey, what a surprise!' he said, bowing slightly. "'I would like to introduce you to someone, if I may.' "'One moment,' replied the priest, arranging some papers on the altar." "'These are quite remarkable,' said Lydia, walking up to the wall and touching the stained glass. Father Jones followed her gaze. "'Yes, I have received some material benefits from Lord Carvey's reforms and have chosen to use them to reinforce a point.' "'This is ammonious, is it not?' she asked, touching a glowing finger in the glass. "'The same.' "'Who's he?' asked Lawrence. "'An early Christian father,' replied Lydia, who tested his faith with a red-hot iron. A metaphor, naturally, smiled the priest. And this is 
St. Margaret Marie Alacoc, said Lydia, tracing her finger over a ribbon of lead. A very pious woman. She took no liquids from Thursday to Sunday, and when she did drink, preferred laundry water. She cut the name of Jesus in her breast with a knife, and when that didn't last, burned it into her flesh with a candle. Can it be? wondered Lawrence. Such days this world has not seen since, Lord Carvey, said Father Jones reverently. These stories are testimonials to a special brand of passion, a passion for God despite the inevitable discomforts that has not survived into modern times. Father Jones, said Lawrence, I would like you to meet Lady Serbs, daughter of Lord Serbs. Father Jones bowed. Your father is a renowned scholar. And Lady Lydia, a renowned musician, said Lawrence. Renowned in the here and now. Tell me where you raised as your father was. Better, said Lydia, for he could not benefit from his own instruction. The priest threw back his head and laughed. <laughs> rare, rare, he cried. And you are here, which is most unusual. How is that? My father was invited. He was delayed, and I came in his place. A substitute that none shall censure who have eyes to see, said Father Jones, his eyes gleaming. I shall sound remarkably, almost pathetically eager if I ask, but ask I shall. Will you sing in my church? He smiled. <laughs> there. Both provincialism and celibacy are revealed in the awkwardness of my question. Yet I was born to wait and shall await your reply. Of course I shall sing here. That is why we came today, replied Lydia. And we shall hear no bell so sweet, and the shapes in the stained glass shall lean forward a little to hear. You are well spoken commented Lydia. Yet often too florid. I can hear it myself, smiled the priest sadly. When one sits alone in a dark room and reads Cicero until the tears run from one's eyes, and when no stern master reproves one's over-ornate stabs at the eye of rhetoric, then we may say that a man has been self-educated, and that both teacher and taught are happy fools. Your speech trips in maddeningly small circles, smiled Lydia. Yes, there it is seen, the mark of restraint. Wonderful! W what would be a convenient time? asked Lawrence uncomfortably. The priest turned on him almost angrily. Sunday, of course. What time? 8.30. Thank you. And now, if you will excuse me, said Father Jones, straightening suddenly, I have much tidying to do. Of course. Until Sunday, said Lydia, squeezing his hand. He makes me itchy, said Lawrence as they walked home. Have a heart, Lawrence, said Lydia, turning up her collar. No woman, no children, all alone in the dark, <laughs> groping for something that isn't even there. Chapter 21 A Waking Flower Drinks at Last Kay was given to long reveries in bed. She took forever to get up, and found the hour or so, between the first knock and the last rise, the most perfect time of day. She often imagined herself on a silent beach with her birds, alone and self-sufficient, breaking coconuts and awaiting the arrival of her warrior lover. It was a strange sort of distance, for there was little of melancholy in it. She had made a complete world. She was a house inhabited by hauntings, a lost dream lolling in low tide. And yet there was a tense expectancy, even in such distance, 
Souls adrift in sweet silence may be the drawing breath of a life about to scream. Angry souls may be carved from fire, from want, starvation, and madness, or from over-heavy swaddling blankets, from the distance of a huge room spied through light lace, from maids tiptoeing in smiling terror, a mother refusing to touch. The dreamy life becomes intolerable in its own sweet, slow way. It is the gentle suicide of sighs. The morning after his arrival, Jonathan rose late and dressed quickly. Entering the sunroom, he noticed a strange woman sitting at the breakfast table. Settling into a chair, he stared at her quite gamely. Good morning! Kay's small mental birds scattered. She blinked. Good morning, Mr. Edsworth. He took a large piece of toast and crammed it into his mouth, chewing at it like a conveyor belt. She smiled and shook her head. You are Lord Larry's sister? he asked. Yes, yes. Hello. Silence fell. The beach beckoned. Finish an argument for me, said Jonathan suddenly. Do you think we all should care so much what people think of us? Kay blinked. What? What is that? He leaned back in his chair, a knowing look in his eyes. I loved natural sciences when I was younger. I took frogs and turned them inside out. I learned the name of every part. But frogs are so unimaginative, they take their order so meekly. Your liver shall go here, your heart here, and your spleen there. Yes, sir, they say, and pack themselves up and leap forth into the world, certain that each is an individual. A student opens them, and he's fascinated to learn their names, because they are so ordered. But there certainly comes a time, well, that did for me anyway, when he realizes that names only exist for things that do not change. Yet we have the word, said Kay with a small smile. What? Change. The word change. Jonathan frowned and leaned forward. I wasn't finished. My love affair with biology, however, was. I wanted knowledge that transcended classification. I learned everything, but everything had its place. I turned to people, last of all, almost in despair, and I found that all the cardinal lessons of biology and philosophy are lies. People aren't holy souls, rational animals, or even solid mammals. They are amphibians. (laughs) I suppose the same God is in charge of both. You are to place both your spleen and your thoughts in such and such a manner, he says, and everyone packs their heads and abdomens neatly and leaps forth into the world, certain that each is an individual. (laughs) Yet if you open them, you realize that you can label each one with your eyes closed, for there lie religion, patriotism, parental loyalty, and social convention into such neat rows that you would almost imagine that each were the same machine, with a different face. Kay looked at him silently, her eyes wide and perplexed. Anyway, said Jonathan, leaning back again, I am now a footman, a valet, and a servant who can find nothing better to do with his time than unpack and repack other people's luggage in the hopes of finding an original arrangement. Which brings me to my real question. Kay raised her eyes gradually. Hmm? Do you think we should ever care what people think of us? He repeated. Kay shook her head slightly. He is asking me a question, she told herself slowly. Yet there are three little black hairs curling out from the top of his white shirt, which seem to muffle his voice. Something about frogs, she thought. The three hairs rose and fell. Am I boring you? he asked. She shivered and rose quickly. No, 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 no. (laughs) But I think it is too early in the day for such thoughts. 
Yet, I must have something to do. Have you any suggestions? I was brought here by Lydia, and she's gone a-wooing and left me all alone. The sudden intensity of her eyes almost frightened Jonathan. The woman's a rosy thorn, he thought. I am quite sure they have only gone for a walk, Kay said. (laughs) I dared her to fall in love in Dorset, smiled Jonathan. I I I was only joking, he added. You were inquiring for things to occupy your time, she said, patting her mouth with a napkin. Well... We have a decent stable, though no horses fast or unruly. There are several pleasant walks, though none offering a decent road. A good <laughs> swimming hole is not too far off. A rather decrepit inn, an occasional dance, and many old men who enjoy their backgammon. <laughs> Take your pick. I pick what you pick, he said, leaning back and clasping his hands behind his head. Oh, I, I, I do, I do apologize, but I have an appointment this morning said Kay. I have to talk to some people, some people we are trying to help. Mary took them out to a field to, to, to build a shelter. <laughs> they were at a barn, but it burned down. Well, well, th- th- they burned it down, actually. Excuse me, would you terribly mind buttoning up your shirt? Jonathan raised his eyebrows. Kay paled. Oh, please, please excuse me. It's, it's, it's my mother talking. She's a devil for decorum. I apologize. That was out of place, he thought, twisting his buttons. So... Unless you are interested in tending to the shattered lives of the determinally hopeless, I would suggest you pick from the list I offered. You are trying to help people in a burned barn? asked Jonathan. Kay gestured quickly, blushing. Um, well, we were trying to help them before they burned it down. Yes, we didn't do a very good job. We're trying to set up a sort of loom house here or near to here. Larry's project, of course, not my mother's. I've had a little say in the matter, and we were using this project to try and reclaim the lives of those who've been worst off from birth. She took a deep breath. Of course, there are snags. Well, more than snags, really. Outright disasters. I'll tell you freely if you press me, she said with a quick laugh. The worst among them have burnt down a barn and and seem fairly adept at abusing any, any hospitality that comes their way. And they don't seem to understand the concept of work at all. At all! I mean, and of course we aren't the best ones to teach them. I mean, Larry, perhaps. He's very hardworking, but what are we going to say? Get a good education and be sure to appoint a good bailiff. (laughs) I don't think we're going to have much luck. Compromise, said Jonathan, almost cutting her off. We go for a swim, and then we go to the burned barn. Yes? I hadn't planned on a swim, said Kay, hugging herself tightly. To to others, it it seems quite wrong. Eh, The barn was a surprise for me, too, grinned the young man. Yet, let's be flexible. A short swim, then a presentable stroll. She laughed giddily. A flush was creeping up her pale neck. Oh, the mates, they bathe there at night, lucky angels. She leaned forward and whispered, and sometimes not alone. But I could never, I mean, I haven't even swum there myself for almost eight years. Do you think that everything has to be so complicated. (laughs) These rules, they are for foolish women and bad men. You are not foolish. I am not bad. Why can we not be allowed an innocent bathe? I swear I shall take no advantage. It shall be a sweet memory. Kay paused. Her rising flush struggled to meet her high hairline. Her teeth worked on her lower lip. Finally, she ducked her head and said, with a sudden gleam in her eyes, I shall have to change now. We shall have to return here. I shall have to get dressed now. I shall obey, he said, rising with a grin and watching her leave. Kay stood before the fatal mirror, examining her reflection. 
There is no vision in the mirror, no critical consciousness in the eyes of good men, but there are a thousand calamities in the minds of nervous women. Kay gazed at herself and shook her head. Ah, my thighs are too fat, my feet too long, my ears stick out, my hair is limp, my hips too wide, my breasts too small, my eyebrows meet when I squint. In fact, I am nothing more than a collection of used parts, as if the beautiful women had already picked clean the heap of loveliness before I arrived, and I was left to fashion myself with their rejects. And so now I must only be seen in the dark, and then a man may only touch my cheeks, the tip of my nose, and my knees. In the morning I shall rise early and scurry for a nightgown the size of a small tent, or hide under the covers until he goes to brush his teeth, and then jump up and dress quickly. Kay shuddered, shook her head, and pulled on the heaviest chemise she could find before dressing rapidly and going downstairs. So this is the spot, said Jonathan, pushing the branches aside. Yes, I loved it as a little girl, replied Kay. I haven't come much lately, though, you know, too busy. Too busy for this, he cried, gesturing in amazement. The pond steamed slightly in the morning light. A gentle breeze shifted the mist like slow dunes of soft sand. Branches reached over the silent water in a handshake of fragile webs, casting long shadows over the lily pads. And we are quite alone, whispered Jonathan. Well, (laughs) within shouting distance, to be sure, replied Kay. The water is warm. She shivered. This is a still pond. Only deep water is cold. I like the insects on the water, said Jonathan, walking forward and pulling his shirt off. Like tiny Christs, proving their ancestry. They vanish as soon as you touch the water, commented Kay, watching him as he stepped out of his trousers. His legs were very lean. Your clothes, you should hang them or they'll get wet. Thank you, grinned Jonathan, tossing them aside. He shook his head, raised his arms, and threw himself into the water. Surfacing, he whooped and shouted, Coming in! Yes, of course. Kay performed an odd sort of wriggle like a caterpillar shedding its skin and hung her dress carefully on a branch. She turned to him with all the radiance of a floating leaf, chest lowered and elbows inward. Come on, then, cried Jonathan, splashing her. Yes, yes, she muttered, waving her arms tightly. Don't get me wet! So says the porpoise. Come on! Kay took a step forward, touching her toe to the water. Insects approached it, curious. She hesitated. Not that warm. Jonathan came out of the water and shook himself dry. He raised his head, grinned, and charged at her. Kay left back, her feet slipping in the mud, then turned and fled from him around the pond. Whooping, he lumbered after her, legs wide and arms outstretched. She cried out, giggling hysterically, then turned and jumped into the pond, hearing the thunderous crash of the water as he charged after her. Kay turned on him, arms flying madly, throwing water and debris at him. After a moment, she stopped, bursting into laughter. (laughs) My lord, what a sight! Jonathan stood in the shallows, a lily pad hanging from his head, leaves clinging to his sturdy chest. He shook the foliage off and leapt at her. No prisoners! Head first! He shouted, grabbing her and throwing her over his shoulder. She had barely touched the water when she was back, leaping on his shoulders, pushing him down. Jonathan staggered, groaning, then sprang forward headfirst into the water, sending her flying. Kay disappeared underwater. Jonathan frowned, then toppled as she pulled his legs out from under him. 
Flopping backwards, he splashed into the bank of the pond, and she leapt onto him, blowing water. Kay landed on him, and it was like an electric shock, the adrenaline, the joy of horseplay, and suddenly, like the first twistings of adolescence, she felt his undergarments on her thighs as she straddled him, saw his white teeth and laughing eyes. With a cry, she tore herself off him and threw herself back into the pond. Jonathan sat up in the mud, brushing sticks from his arms. Kay's eyes rose above the water slowly. Both her hands rose in a gesture of peace. He smiled. Suddenly she stood and blew an enormous mouthful of water at him. He cried out and threw himself at her. She gave way, and they bubbled briefly underwater, his hands groping, grabbing her legs. Kay shrieked, coughing, and he threw her to the bank. She turned, tripped him, and he fell onto her legs. Her hips twisted involuntarily, as if seeking warmth and she placed her hands on his hair. He raised his head, looking into her eyes for a long moment. Peace, he murmured. Peace, she replied, staring at him, then turning her head. They let the high sun dry them, lying on the edge of the water. You fight dirty, she murmured, wondering at the quietness of her voice. It's a mud pond, he smiled. What do you expect? Gentlemanly behavior. (laughs) If I were a gentleman, I would have sent my valet to bathe with you. Would you have preferred that? I don't know, she said. Is he handsome? He grinned, crossing his hands behind his head. No, but he has a great way with the ladies. How lovely. Isn't that what they say about farmers, that they have a great way with the livestock? (laughs) There's no insult in that. We're all animals. We play like kittens. And wash like hogs, commented Kay. You're going to have to get wet again, you know. Can't have you tracking that into the house. Jonathan sighed. Ah, and like all animals, we must be domesticated. Men, said Kay slowly, have never understood the link between tidiness and civilization. Eh, men tidied themselves for their women's family, for her friends and relatives, never for her. Cleanliness is boring, Kay snorted. That's ridiculous, really asked Jonathan, sitting up. You said, tracking it into the house, that's for your mother. Yet, you do not mind lying here with me in the mud. Could that be because it is, perhaps, appealing? Could it be appealing because it has nothing to do with mothers or relatives or family or all the other devils that so oppress women? His words sunk into Kay. A shiver passed through her and goosebumps rose on her skin. Chapter 22. A Sorcerer's Dance "'You aren't coming?' asked Kay, pulling a loose thread from her rough peasant dress. "'I don't know,' said Mary. "'I was never allowed as a child. I had to stay back with Lady. All that wildness made her nervous. Everyone came home drunk and shouting. It was terrifying.' "'You would be a princess, you know,' said Kay, shaking her hands through her hair. "'Everything reverses tonight.' Mary smiled. "'That's quite a temptation.' All I'm saying is, look at this dress, said Kay, leading her over to a closet. Pulling the door open, she took Mary's fingers and ran them up the delicate lace of a white gown. Oh, but that's lovely, said Mary. I I couldn't wear that. Just wait, said Kay excitedly, taking the dress down and laying it on the bed. You're so much thinner than I, but, but, but it might do. It would get ruined. So? I never wear it. Probably never will. What would your mother say? 
oh, she never goes to these unholy abominations. Mimic decay. I, I, I can't. Listen, let's be honest. You, your life has been hard. It probably never will be easy. That's the way of things. So, for one night, one night, surely you can afford to abandon your missions, causes, and extraordinarily enlarged brain. I, I, I su- suppose, said Mary, staring at the dress. Haven't you ever wanted to be beautiful? asked Kay. Oh, beauty is a shield, a, a snare, replied her friend, still fingering the fabric. Dangerous. Not, not, not for me. Not even, not even for one night, asked Kay, running her fingers over the lace. One night? Mary's eyes flickered. Something flashed in their grey depths, a hope, a passion, a strange mixture of desire and forgetfulness. All right. One night, she whispered, picking up the dress. Lawrence's voice rose from downstairs, and she started. "'Why not?' asked Lawrence. "'Oh, these country abandons are quite foolish,' replied Jonathan. "'Though you, of course, look magnificent.' "'That's how it goes,' said Lawrence, glancing down at his rough tunic. "'Everyone changes places.' "'And what happens? Do you push a plough while peasants loll about reading Euclid?' "'No. There are a lot of games. Pass the parcel!' "'I never liked that as a child. It always—' "'Will you listen?' demanded Lawrence. "'Yes, for heaven's sake, shut up!' echoed Lydia, trying to arrange her shapeless outfit. "'All right, go ahead.' Good food, dancing, jests of every kind, said Lawrence. And the blas. The what? The blas. I heard you. What's that? The blasphemous mass. Jonathan smiled. I see. On this holy night every year, Garth, a barkeep who used to be a monk, dresses up as Father Jones and gives a rather unusual sermon. Jonathan wrinkled his nose. Ah, rural wit. He's actually quite good. "'You're going?' Jonathan asked Lydia. "'No, this is my evening wear. Of course. Are there masks?' "'Some,' smiled Lawrence. "'It is pagan. "'Well, I suppose I could don hair underwear for one night. "'We leave after dinner,' said Lawrence, handing him his woolen tunic. "'Jonathan stared at it. "'I'm itchy already,' he said. "'The light of the fire travelled for miles. "'They saw it long before they reached the carnival.' Rounding the last bend, they saw an astounding sight. It was, of course, a farming village, so the sights, sounds, and smells of the earth permeated the soul of the community. Dress was earthy, set against the fields the peasants looked like camouflaged prey. Sounds were earthy, the heave of the plough, the wheeze of the scythe, the sweaty grunt of the harvest, the grumbling counting of sheaves. Smells were earthy, pigs, Cows, manure, fertilizer, stagnant water, and old seeds stunned the nose with productive stenches. Simple gaiety fled from this merciless assault. Except for one night. One night, every year, on All Saints' Eve, the grim gods of church and earth fled before the bright bellowings of Bacchus. One night, a dancing, multicolored giant seemed to rise from the dark earth, spouting wine and song, a momentary god of blind abandon and scant regrets. One night, the structure of life dissolved into the spontaneous flames of pure sensuality. As they watched, a tall man with a fiddle began playing before the hurling blaze. 
his legs twitching, his mask flickering in the flames. Another man beat a drum with two bones, his arms flying, his grin wide over his teeth. Around them a circle of distorted, gibbering, plunging creatures danced. Children leapt and grabbed at masks. Old women swayed with the seductive grace of young girls. Men shouted and threw themselves at the laughing dancers. Oh, my God, murmured Lydia. They stood, transfixed at the music. The fiddle screeched and jittered like a banshee on a flying horse. The drums pounded like a hundred bursting hearts. The music had no form, little melody, but possessed a driving insistence, a wild command of every moment, a forgetfulness of the moment before, a shrug at the one to come. Now, 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 it droned, encouraged, commanded. Come on, Kay, shouted Jonathan, running forward. Lawrence smiled, took Lydia's hand, and charged after him. Are you all right? asked Kay. Mary's face was pale, her eyes burned. She giggled suddenly and picked up her white dress. It's about time, she cried, grabbing Kay's hand and sprinting after the others, her legs flying like a child's. They plunged into the madness of the dance. The fire hurled shadows and light over the whole scene. It loomed like the judge of an endless war of angels and ghosts. Mary felt her body responding to the music. She threw herself at it, almost weeping as if she were flying free of an eternal cage. She caught glimpses of others, Jonathan's grinning face, Kay's breathless excitement, Lydia's hesitant abandon, Lawrence's mad energy. The villagers seemed like another race, a kinder union of forgetfulness. Men and women danced her around, passing her from partner to partner, and Mary felt no divisions, no high fences of old hates. The whirling forms seemed to become one being, a single blend of single flesh, blind, thrusting, joyful. Kay was shocked at the first contact. A young man dressed in stained red thrust himself against her, and she felt the tangible weight of his erection. She shuddered and was about to cry out when wife Jigger passed by her whirling eyes, grinning, winking. A feeling of safety suddenly flooded her. There was no censure no retaliation, no danger. She felt her body begin to flow with the music. A man danced with her. Another grasped her by the waist and pressed himself against her buttocks. She felt a strange, delicious ripple in her belly as she swayed with them. Jonathan caught her then, lifting her high. She came down upon him and danced close, swirling his hair with tingling fingers. For Lydia, it was all a little perplexing. She found herself dancing mechanically, scanning the surrounding sea of flesh with a scientific eye. How interesting that they should perform so, she thought. It obviously has something to do with the normal lack of expression, with the harshness of their everyday life, with the woo! The last expression was quite unscientifically yanked out of her by Lawrence, who grasped her hips from behind and pulled her to him. Oh, uh, hello, she panted, turning. His face was a wild mask. He cried out, grasped her hand, began spinning her. Sparks from the fire drifted around them as they flew. Sorry, she said as she stepped on his foot again. Lawrence laughed, his hair wet on his flickering forehead. Gravity ain't helping, he cried, lifting her up and dancing on. Lydia's legs kicked awkwardly. Jonathan's face swam past his eyebrows, wiggling madly. Dorset! Dorset! 
he shouted. Dorset! shouted Lawrence. Dorset! cried Lydia, laughing suddenly. She wrapped her arms around Lawrence's head and pressed her face against his sweaty neck, consumed with giggles. Eventually, exhaustion took its toll. Two by two, the sweaty dancers collapsed beside each other. The fire began to burn down. A short man in kaleidoscopic clothing dragged a podium in front of the fire. Blass! Blass! Garth! Blass! cheered the lolling crowd. The man took his place on the podium, thumped a huge black book down, and looked sternly at the revelers. Welcome, cried the fool. Welcome, friends, to the one night of the true church. Blass! Blass! Welcome, friends, to the night of revelation. Welcome to the night of the new religion. Welcome to the latest words on the oldest book. For tonight, friends, and tonight only, I read from the newest testament. Garth, bless! Recently unearthed from the vaults of a Persian king, cried Garth. The newest testament contains the final explanation for the Christian odes. No longer does God work in mysterious ways. Scholars and bookworms report that the good God admits all his mistakes. As the most learned man among you and the only sober one to boot, it falls on me to read the holiest words of the newest testament. Bless Garth! Preach on, fool! He opened the huge book and ran his fingers down the first page. Dear Christian Fodder, he read, glancing up. Most informal, I do say. Dear Christian Fodder, it has come to my eternal attention that I have been a little unclear in my past communications. Many lessons have been misinterpreted, so I have given this newest testament to Father Garth to clear matters up. First, the story of the garden. The Garden of Eden, you say, is a parable against the sin of disobedience. In this you are all entirely stupid. I mean, look at the damn story, will you? He's a little testy here, commented Garth, then read on. Two fools are sitting under a tree with nothing to do all day but stare at each other and wonder why they don't feel any lust. All right, perhaps they were a little bored, but hell, that's all I ever do. How was I to know they wouldn't be satisfied? So the woman talks to the snake, who... I see now, I was also a little bored at having a slither in circles praising me all day. And the snake says, eat the fruit. Eve looks up. It's something different anyway. And she says, what fruit? Why the fruit that gives you the knowledge of good and evil, replies the snake. Why would I want that? Says the woman, who, of course, hasn't ever really learned to think, being forced to lounge around all the time. Because it will make you like God, replies the snake. Garth glanced up, his eyes dancing. His fingers traced the page reverently. Now, in my infinite wisdom, I now realise that this may have been a little confusing to the young lady. I mean, I barge about blowing my trumpets and proclaiming myself the good of goods or the god of good or the good god or something like that. So naturally, Eve thinks, well, that's all right. I become like God, which is good, right? So she climbs up and takes a bite of the fruit, which tasted damn good. I should know I am the recipe. She goes to Adam and says, here, have a bite. Now, in my wisdom, I made man to have no will against a woman, even before she could give him sport. So he pants and slobbers and says, sure, Eve, sure, whatever you say. So he takes a bite as well. Now, this didn't sit right at the time. 
You see, in my infinite goodness, I wanted Adam and Eve to be dumb pets, doing nothing but praising me to the skies. I wanted them to be obedient. I got them to beg and roll over, but they never got the tree thing right. So I got really angry, threw them out and blew up the garden. Looking back, I may have been a wee bit hasty. I mean, I wanted them to worship me, right? What was I thinking? How on earth are they supposed to worship a good god if they don't know goodness from an hole in the head? Well, they found it out, so I threw them out. I was wrong. I suppose I'll have to get them back from hell now. So, that whole original sin business, forget it. Administrative error. Because I suppose if knowledge is evil, you'd have to throw your children in the snow for learning to read or studying the Bible. All in all, I'd have to admit, I didn't think that one through too clearly. All right. Point two. Listen up. This business with Abraham. You know the one I told to stick an eye through his son to prove he loved me? That, I don't know, seemed like a good idea at the time. Again, I had the idea that I wanted him to worship me as a good god, but would a good god ask him to stab his son through the head? I mean, that would be a bad thing to do, right? Also, I never thought what it might do to Abraham's son, Isaac. How would you feel? You're Isaac and you're suddenly shaking out of bed? Come on, son, let me stick a knife through your head. Why, Dad? Well, this voice in my head told me to. I don't know about you, it made me pretty nervous. I tell you to love the weak and helpless... And I forget all about little Isaac. I tell you, senseless. Forget that spare the rod and spoil the child order too. You can't love the helpless while beating them senseless. So, ignore Abraham. It wasn't my best moment. I wanted him to worship me no matter what I did, which doesn't make sense when you think about it. I mean, why not worship the devil then? He does whatever he wants, lucky bugger. And if faith means doing whatever I tell you to do, free will sort of goes out the window, doesn't it? So don't do whatever I tell you to. I'm not in my right mind sometimes. These stories are parables about the sin of obedience. Think for yourselves. If you hear voices telling you to kill your children, go lie down for a while. Garth stared at the laughing crowd. Now giggling, he admonished sternly. These are holy words. He waited for their attention, then turned the page and read on. The same goes for Job remember him? I blew up his sheep, axed his wife and children, made his hair fall out, his ass explode with boils. Why? Because the devil told me that Job only loved me because I was nice to him. Well, that part makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you're supposed to love someone because they're nice to you, right? But no, at the time I wanted to be loved no matter what I did. Score one for old horny head. Also, I detect a slight inconsistency in this whole loving your enemies business. Look at me. I toasted the pharaohs and drowned everyone but Noah and company, right? I cursed Adam and Eve and made Jerahem's bowels fall out, right? My son beat up the moneylenders. Well, all I can say is that when you have an infinite cheek, it's pretty hard to turn. So I'll forget the whole thing. If your life goes to hell, don't just accept it. Get angry. Resist. Act. Might be good for you. Work for me, anyway. The Good Samaritan. Uh, this one is particularly embarrassing. I go and tell you if someone is hurt and you have the power to help him, do it, I'll be damned. Well, it just struck me that I've sort of been sitting on my hands for a couple of thousand years while nuns fall down holes and children get struck by lightning on their way to church. I have the power to help, I suppose, but I don't. So, I suppose you don't have to either. Take it from me. Life's much better as a spectator sport. Don't get involved. Don't take any trouble. Use the free will idea. It's always worked for me. 
You see someone bleeding in a ditch to say, well, he ended up there because of free will, and keep on walking. Sure, it doesn't make much sense, but it seems to work, except for the nuns, perhaps. Oh, and as for Noah, that one's right out. Just because I drowned almost everyone in the world for being bad doesn't mean it was the right thing to do. Looking back, I suppose there were a lot of little children who drowned too, and they were scarcely responsible for what their parents did. I should have got Noah to save them. Forget about the animals. I knew I was wrong afterwards. That's why I made the rainbow. If you'd had any sense, Noah would have asked me why. If drowning everyone was a good thing, I promised never to do it again. But I was vain then. I saved him because I knew he wouldn't ask those kinds of difficult questions. Another thing. I also think I went too far in this damning pride business. Take the Tower of Babel. Noah's children try to build a tower to heaven. I whack them on the tongue and make them all babble like lawyers so they don't reach it. What on earth was I so angry about? I tell you over and over that heaven is the best place there is. You try and get there, and I curse everyone I can lay my voice on. This is the greatest food ever, I say to a starving man. They get angry when he reaches for it. I tell you that you are all personal creations of the greatest God. I tell you to rise above the obstacle of original sin and strive for perfect goodness, perfect thoughts, perfect action. I tell you to love your enemies, to feel no anger, to love a God who loses his temper. I tell you to achieve all these things and then say, have no ambition. <laughs> I don't even want to try unraveling that one. Forget it. Have pride, live ambition, pursue progress. And remember, the new original sin is believing in the old one. Well, I know you want to get back to your party, Redgarth, glancing up with a grin. By heavens, he is all-knowing. He read on, so I won't take up any more of your time, given that I have an eternity and you don't. So go in peace, be happy, work hard, be good to each other and enjoy yourselves. And sorry for all the foul-ups. Garth closed the book with a bang. Here endeth the newest testament. My friends, have you learned wisdom? Jeers, catcalls, laughs and shouts rose from the crowd. More dancing, more drink, music, play. Give us a kiss, you. Bend over. The fiddler started up again. Garth smiled. My work here is done, he murmured, stepping down from the podium and hurling the book into the fire. He stared at the bursting flames for a moment, then spun and joined the rising dancers. The liquor was flowing fast. It was a downpour none could stay dry in. Flagons were passed endlessly, lips dribbled, eyes blurred, cheeks grew sticky. Mary soon found herself staggering. She was utterly unused to drink. Her body felt loose, not disconnected, but uncontrolled. She had to stop and turn away sometimes, wiping tears from her eyes. Emotions coursed through her pain, rage, joy, hate, dazing and exciting her in random stabs. Sometime after Garth's sermon, she was sitting against a cask, weeping bitterly. Safe place, safe place. The words circled her inner eye maddeningly. She took off her mask to wipe her eyes and laid it down beside her. So you're back, said a voice harshly behind her. Mary's mind cleared instantly. Her thoughts, feelings and souls seemed to vanish into a dark place. Farmer Jigger lurched forward, spilling his drink. You're back, Alder. Wiser. Taller, he slurred, his beard dripping with liquor. 
Mary jumped up. Good evening, she said, her voice shaking. Aye, you're back, and we ain't even had a spell to speak, he said. They got reattached. Mary's hands wandered behind her, feeling the cask, searching for an edge. I need to apologize to ye, young'un, said Farmer Jigger, leaning forward. I, I was in a grip. I shouldn't have done it. Mary took a quick step back, staring at his mouth. I was lost to meself. I weren't in me best sorts. I was wrong. You weren't that bad. I missed you, Mary. He reached up and grasped her forearm. Did you miss me, little un? Of course, whispered Mary. Farmer Jigger grinned. I thought so. You have the kindest of kind hearts, little Mary, and I spied you for that. I thought often of that night it plagues me. I was never a kind man. Never, though I ache for want of kindness. I was plagued by conscience, not kindness. It's my curse on this hard earth. But ye was always a soft kindness to me. Always. Mary twisted in his grip. What's that? He demanded suddenly. Are you pulling at me? No, no, no. I felt ye pulled, Mary O'Donnell. No, I, I, I leaned, I, I leaned. Aye, that's good. Don't you pull no more. Ye be nice to me. Yes. Ye be a fair woman now, Mary, he said, taking a swig of drink, his hands tight on her arm. Ye've grown into your bones well. Please, whispered Mary. Please what? He demanded. Please be nice. Aye, I'll be nice. As nice as I know how. Ye was always tricking me, Mary. Always pulling me from the seat of virtue. Always... Provoking, always stealing, always resisting, always pricking my anger. Have you learned better yet? Farmer Jigger leaned forward. With a desperate cry, Mary tore her arm free. He howled in rage, grabbing at her. Mary twisted to one side and ran towards the fire. The dancers danced madly, the music pounded. She turned and saw Farmer Jigger lurching towards her. Frantically, she dragged a burning branch from the fire and raised it before her. Never! She cried, Never will I be kind to you! The drunken dancers laughed, whirling. Farmer Jigger staggered forward. What's going on? demanded a voice. Mary turned and saw Lawrence swaying beside her. Keep him away from me! hissed Mary. That's burning your goddamned hand! slurred Lawrence, glancing at her wrist and trying to knock the branch away. Mary gritted her teeth, not releasing her hold. Come on! called Lawrence to Farmer Jigger. Those are old times now. Leave her be. Leave her be. The dancers began chanting the words, Leave her be. Leave her be. This witch has got your mind, Lord Larry, snarled Farmer Jigger. That may be, he said with difficulty, but I am her protector. Her protector. Leave her be. The old man looked at Mary for a long moment, his eyes burning with hatred. Aye, for now, witch, I leave ye with your taken soul, he cried, then turned and staggered off around the fire. That is burning you, said Lawrence, pulling at the flaming branch. Mary loosed her hold and he threw it back into the fire. Thank you, she said shakily. It's nothing, nothing, but, but, but your hand. He took her wrist and leaned down to look at her burn. Her eyes stared at the part in his hair and saw nothing.
Chapter 23 Evil Condemned There was a grimness in the air as the twelve men filed in. The choice of location was not without accident. The scorched smell of hastily burned pigs still clung to the burnt rafters of Farmer Jigger's barn. These were the wise men of the village. In the larger world, they were of little consequence. They knew this. Yet they also knew the scope of their own realm and ordered their wisdoms accordingly. The power looms had been delivered that morning. They had been deposited in Farmer Jigger's burned barn, awaiting transport to their new lodgings. John Mudder, the boy who had beaten Mary as a child, was now the mayor, and he had ordered the other twelve elders to meet with him after sundown in Farmer Jigger's burned barn. After they were seated, John Mudder called the meeting to order. All right, lads, we all know why we're here. Anyone got business other than what's afore us? There was a general muttering and shaking of heads. Business there may have been, but none as important as what was to come. And state your business to Farmer Jigger, said John. Who's first? Thomas, the baker, rose. There's three of them. Came to our mill yesternoon, Jigger, he said, shaking his head. Three of them from your lands, and they stole and cursed, and I expect payment. I'm out five, no, six shillings worth of eggs. They tore meat from my very hands, said the butcher, leaping up. You're a party in these hands, Jigger. Oh, I ate it raw on my doorstep. My wife done fainted. They stole from my barn, said a farmer, slowly. I went to Orson Andrews, but he says he can't protect everyone when a rampage is on. Said we might as well ask him to stop an army. He won't have no part of it, says he didn't invite him. And these contraptions, said John Mudder, waving his hands at the power looms. I can't say as I understand their use, but I do know that they means that unless we do something, these thieves are going to stay. I think we're entitled to our peace, said another farmer, and to the lives our fathers lived. Days past when thieves came to our house, we ran them off with dogs. Now we are supposed to ask them in and say nothing when they steal our bread. What's next? Our wives? Our children? Good market with the gypsies, they say. Ah, we should give the young lads some beer to run them out, and those that don't want to leave can greet the dawn with their eyes open. And while we're at it, we might as well clean out the rats as well as the bugs, no matter how fat they be. He finished, glaring at Farmer Jigger. Now, Harry, said John, there's no point raking old business here. Farmer Jigger's as keen to have them gone as you are, as all of us. Problem is, they're Lord Larry's idea, and it's a high fence. These contraptions are the devil's work, no mistake about it. And those that are going to work them are trouble. You, you can't teach dogs to wait tables. But they're here. And we'd be best finding out what the Lord Larry has planned with them before lynching the lot. For sure a sin, we ain't the men we used to be. There are lots leaving their lands who'd be happy to take our place, so we'd best not be making a lot of trouble before we know the sound of the situation, else we could be turned out on our asses. Then what? demanded the baker. We let things go, and maybe we all find ourselves fiddling with these wooden things, not seeing our families from dawn to dusk. I speak with a ragman who passed. He said he came from Sheffield, and there are armies of slaves wheeling over such machines. They work and sleep and count themselves blessed to eat. I say, I'm happy where I am, and none are going to turn me out if I can help it. And what if it is his lordship's project? asked the butcher. We aren't slaves. We are men who have a say in how we live. We don't eat in holes in the ground, but with each other, and none shall cook but what all want. 
The Lord also works for us, and I say we do what we want and let him ask the questions. And I say you are a fool, Arnold Hacker, said John Mutter. If we deal harshly with him, shall he deal easily with us? Let us not forget that we be prosperous men, and that is largely the work of Lord Lawrence. If we are to deal with this problem, we shall use our heads first, then our hands. What? And go to our pretty lord with our hats in our hands and say, Please, sir, will you take away the men you brung? bristled the butcher. No, I say that is for slaves and women. I brook no divisions in my house, and my house is more than its walls. My house is all my interests, and I will not ask to be delivered from thieves and villains when I have the strength to deliver myself. While we sit here talking, thieves are scouting our houses and stealing from our fields. We can rid ourselves of them by morning. If we have will and manhood, I say we do. Who is with me? Several men stood, raising their hands, but the company lingered. Sit down, said Farmer Jigger. Sit down. The men sat. He rose. You are all fools. Because you only think of what is happening, not what has happened. Think for a spell what happened just before these thieves arrived. We had a picnic, offered one of the men. No. Who arrived in the village not two moons ago? Or rather, who came back to the village two moons ago? The baker stood. Mary O'Donnell, he cried. This marks the beginning. Of wisdom, said Farmer Jigger, pointing sternly at him. Afore she came, our Lord was as pretty to us as a lover. Since she came, he's turned all sad and scurvy. She was his enemy. She insulted him and was cast out for it. Now she has returned, and he dances with her and all saints, his eyes bleary from curses. It's quite clear what has happened. She is a witch, and has cast a spell over our good Lord. The men shivered and crossed themselves. Why think you this, Jigger? Ah, she was always a strange lass, replied the old farmer, folding his huge hands over his belly. Ye remember her of old. I recall ye had your differences with her as well, John Muller. I cast her from me house, because she insulted Lord Lawrence. She hates him. She'd been lost in the wilds for years, learning the ways of darkness. She has gained strange powers. How else could she have gained the ear of a man she spat on? She's been seen at his house, walking with his sister. She dances with him. She spends his money. His mind is no longer his own. And I can only say that we are lucky she chose him and not us. Then what is to be done? asked the baker. Those approaching my age will remember what we did with the last witch, said Farmer Jigger. An ancient man nodded. Laura. Speak not her name, fool, cried Farmer Jigger, crossing himself. Nay, on, and we were both her executioners. The Lord has seen fit to test us again, and it should be no use going to Lord Lawrence, for his soul is taken. We must take matters into our own hands. Again. All rise, who see fit to burn the witch, said John. All rose, their brows sheened with sweat, their hands twitching. Then let us go, said Farmer Jigger, rising with them. The devil waits for no sunrise. Chapter 24 The Strength of Darkness 
Mary heard them coming, for she was not one to sleep deeply. She heard them coming, and her face flushed. Bob, she whispered, sitting up on her pile of leaves and pulling her blanket to her throat. Bob! What? Alas, what? muttered the old man, turning slowly on the floor. Go! Get Lawrence! I'm in danger! Get up! Get up! What? What, what, what danger? Men are coming for me! You must hurry, for God's sake! Nodded Bob, jumped up and lit a candle. Shadows crawled the walls. Mary's face loomed pale. Who's coming, lass? Men. She shivered, her eyes wide, her thin blankets at her throat. For me. What, what, what men? Please, just go! What men? A sudden pounding shook the loose door, rattling its hinges. Help me again, whispered Mary, retreating to a corner of the room and squatting on her heels. Who's there, by God? cried Knotted Bob, turning to the door. No affair of yours, Bob, shouted a voice. Open a door. What do you want from my house? The door creaked and splintered, falling inward like a broken card. Jeering voices leapt in from the dark. The witch, Bob. Give us the witch. Fools at your leisure, damned fools at your drink, shouted Knotted Bob, raising his fist. Go on home and snore it off. Give us the witch. Knotted Bob grabbed his axe from the hearth. Steel's worse than fantasy, brethren, he cried, raising the blade and glaring at the doorway. Your choice, if you see it unfit to be decided by the light of day. A dark form strode forward from the blackness and stood in the doorway. Put down the axe, Bob, said Farmer Jigger slowly, folding his arms. This is not your affair. If it's my hearth, it's my affair, Jigger, growled Knotted Bob. Now stand back before I lay you out. You're an old man. There are many of us, said the old farmer. We kill you and blame the murder on her. None'll question an ashes its motives. Aye. And would ye turn a guest out into the night? asked Knotted Bob. Yes, whispered Mary. Farmer Jigger whirled on her. I sent you into the darkness where you belong. You should have stayed there. I did, she replied. I no longer wanted to be alone. Ye come with us, witch! snarled Farmer Jigger, moving towards her. Touch her, and I'll touch ye, growled Knotted Bob, raising his axe higher. Who says she's a witch? She's fogged Lord Larry's mind, his whole family, said Farmer Jigger, turning to him. She's got him all twiggled and wrapped up, nice as you please. What did you feed him, devil bride? What did ye mutter and eat the moon? You can't swallow us all! Aye, you're the whole world, whispered Mary, her eyes dimming. The whole world. What has she done? asked Knotted Bob. Be sharp! she got our good lord spending his thrift on thieves, that's what she's done! Farmer Jigger suddenly grasped Mary, turned and thrust her out the door. Arms snaked forward to grip her. That's what ye done, ain't it? he shouted. Been waiting for your chance, ain't ye? Lying in a ditch gnawing souls and sucking eight. That learns ye farce in the dark ways, don't it, witch? Knotted Bob let forward through the door. Outside, Mary stood in the centre of a rough circle of men. She stood a broken swan, her head lowered. "'The first man to touch her wears this headpiece,' said Knotted Bob, his hands tightening on his axe. "'Put that down, old man,' said Farmer Jigger evenly, moving towards him. "'Don't touch age, Farmer,' cried Knotted Bob, "'or it'll touch ye back!' Farmer Jigger stopped and shook his head slowly. "'We only came for one. Don't make it two. Take another step, Jigger, said Knotted Bob softly. Please, now I am begging you. 
The farmer sighed and took another step forward. Knotted Bob's axe flashed down, but Farmer Jigger was swifter. He twisted to one side and gripped the old man's wrist. Bracing himself, he lifted Knotted Bob bodily, staggered a few steps, and hurled him towards a tree. There was an awful creaking as Knotted Bob crashed into the trunk. "'Come on, lads!' cried Farmer Jigger, dusting his hands. "'Let's get to work!' Mary heard the laughing and muttering around her like a dark wind through high rushes. Hands grabbed and smothered and dug. Her eyes lolled. "'The pond! The pond!' cried the men. "'In case the fire spreads!' The men shouted their assent, and Mary felt herself carried aloft, jabbed by palms and fingertips. The procession walked under her. She seemed to float above them like a ghost. Their torches burned like fairies at the edge of her vision, brightening the sky and darkening the stars. They thrust her in a heap by the edge of the pond. Mary tried to stand, but was hurled back and fell into the mud at the edge of the water in the impression of two bodies. She knelt silently, her hands wandering over her nightdress, her head lowered. "'I look at her kneel!' cried John Mudder, standing before her, "'just as if she weren't the devil's whore!' "'The devil's whore!' Mary's head jerked up an inhuman look in her eyes. In a flash, she suddenly seemed to come back to herself. Her legs tensed, and she leapt at John, clawing at his face. He felt her hands wrapping around his temples, and the last sight he ever had was of two bladed thumbnails poised above his face. He wrenched his head, then screamed in agony as they plunged through his eyes. Mary felt liquid jetting up her wrists. She leapt off him as he staggered off into the darkness. She heard a vague hissing and scrambled forward, screaming, scratching, biting. The men gave way before her like old brickwork. Her hands met hair and tore it free. Men threw themselves about and cried out as they crashed into friends and torches. Mary felt a terrific blow on the side of her head and her legs collapsed under her. She raised her head, dazed, and saw a man before her. "'Lie down, devil!' he screamed, raising his fist. Mary laughed harshly and leapt at him. He stepped to one side and caught her waist as she flew past. She was surrounded.' "'Hold her down!' shouted Farmer Jigger hoarsely. "'Goddamned witch! Hold her down! Let's give her what she earned!' A man sat on each limb. Mary felt her joints sinking into the mud and rolled her head in agony. "'Up at your eyes, witch!' hissed the old farmer, slapping her face hard. Mary's eyes opened. He looked like a man with antlers so many branches radiated from his head. Given that we was going to have a fair trial, witch, you struggle to take it as the very spittle of guilt. You blinded a man. Take that as a prize to your dark lord. Lasher, lads. Mary felt herself hoisted up, her legs and arms bound. A single tree stood by the water. The men tied her to it and stood back. A sudden hesitation hung in the dark air. Farmer Jigger strode forward and stood before Mary for a moment before turning to the milling men. "'Is there a coward among ye that don't have the stomach to call this justice?' he shouted. "'For man or not, any that dare no further shall join her there!' Men shifted, torches lowered like falling eyes. "'Are ye also holy that ye fear no anger from a crossed witch?' cried the old farmer. 
Can you sleep at night when she has ruined a man better than ye? Can you let your children alone in a field if we leave her escape? By God, I am afraid of no witch when she has stunk up the sky with her earnings. Harry, give me your torch. The man walked forward slowly, passing his torch to Farmer Jigger. Farmer Jigger turned to Mary, who stared at him as if he were her whole life. She spat in his face, her neck coiling like a snake. He took a step back, wiping himself. Now, we's both wet, he said softly, but I'll dry thee. With that, he leaned forward and thrust the flames against her legs. For a moment, Mary felt almost relieved. There was a slight hissing and gust of steam, nothing more. Jigger, she's wet, whispered one of the men. Jigger! Farmer Jigger's face was a dancing, fiery mask. He pushed the flames into her skin. His hand reached up and tore her nightdress from her thighs. Mary went completely limp. The ropes seemed straining to keep her upright. A scent hit her nose then. It was odd, sweet. She wrinkled her nose, and then, almost immediately, a terrible sense of violation struck her. It was an irreparable pain, a forever pain, a pain that knew nothing of ending. Mary threw her head back and howled. The terrible sound rang long and high. The men drew back, crossing themselves. Jigger! Mary's soul felt like a trembling rocket ready to burst from the torture and soar upwards from the dark wound of her life. The peeling agony propelled her like fuel, and she yearned for release. She felt her pubic hairs curling from the heat. There was an explosion, a flash, and for a terrible moment Mary thought that her heart had exploded. Jigger, stand back or I'll shoot again. A figure lurched against Farmer Jigger, scattering his torch. Immediately the pain eased, and Mary felt a cool breeze against her upper thighs. Stinging smoke. Nothing more. You scum, Lally Wart! shouted the figure, smashing its fist into Farmer Jigger's face. Lord! Lord! Help her down! The crashing sounds of men fleeing into the undergrowth echoed in the still air. Men! Stand as you are! shouted a voice. A man ran into the clearing, thrusting his pistol in his pocket. He quickly drew a flask from his belt and raised it to Mary's lips. Drink! Drink this! cried Lawrence. Quickly! He reached down and splashed swamp water on her blackened legs. Mary felt the heat of brandy on her tongue. Her head rolled. Death called, soft and sweet. Drink, for God's sakes, drink! My legs, she heard herself murmur. Your legs, drink, please, whispered Lawrence, tipping the flask again. The liquid ran down Mary's chin as her face fell forward. Bob, Bob! Help me cut her down. Knotted Bob stood up from Farmer Jigger, his mouth a savage line. He took his knife from his belt and cut the cords that bound Mary to the tree. She fell forward into Lawrence's arms. Lawrence helped to lay her down in the dark grass. Farmer Jigger stood. She's a witch, Lord, he said, pulling his shirt over his stomach and wiping his mouth. She's a witch, and ye have no business with this kind of justice. Lawrence turned to him slowly. Murder is not justice, he said softly. You and your family 
are no longer of my lands. Mary heard the words shining through a cloud. They fell around her like soft folds, pulling her back from the cold, back towards the heat, towards the excruciating pain. There is more to be done, she told herself, her senses waking to war. Always more, for you made a vow. Chapter 25 A Short Waking Sun up! cried Adam Footer, flinging the doors of the stables wide. Light flew into the darkness like a stern governess tapping its hand with a ruler and brooking no lolling about. Shivering heaps lay huddled on the ground. A baby wailed, startled. "'Sons of Christ, behold the great time of morning!' cried Adam, poking at the blankets with a stick. "'Rise and greet your new lives, brothers!' Men and women began groaning, standing, clutching their blankets to their shoulders, teeth chattering. "'Cold! Christian fishes! Be like the sun's barely up!' Wood, wood, what's to burn? All present? asked Adam. Raise your hands. Let's see how many we left. Six, eight, twelve, fifteen, twenty, twenty-two, twenty-eight, thirty-two, thirty-nine, forty-four. Forty-four? Three's out to pay, called the voice. Forty-seven? Any else? Two? No. Four slept in town. Coming back? Not at this hour. Fifty-one, then, Adam muttered. Yeah, 51 is a good number. Maybe half will still be here in a month. Now, the first thing to do is get your things and follow me. Groans sounded. Where are we going? To the barn, bright sparks. That's where the looms are. Come on, come on. It was a slow business getting them all moving and on the road. When they finally arrived at the barn, Adam led them inside. They stood and shuffled, casting apprehensive looks at the massed looms. Now listen cried Adam, tearing off his hat and leaping onto a low beam. This should be clear. You are not the workers I wanted, but but Lady Kay has got it into her head to mix business with charity. It's my job to prove to her that it isn't charity, so I can make some money. It's her job to prove it is charity so she can sleep at night. These are the rules. You come to work at dawn every day, but Sundays, when you may do as you please. You will be paid one penny for every three yards of cloth you spin. These machines are your tools, he said, gesturing at the power looms. They are very valuable. If you break one, we'll make the next one with your bones. Any questions? There was silence for a moment. And we work on empty bellies, asked the red-bearded man who had accosted Lawrence. Yes, for two hours. Then food will be brought for one week. After that, you must buy your own. Any other questions? How do we work these things? asked the bearded man. Come here, said Adam, leaping down and walking to the nearest loom. The man sauntered over. Pick up that roll of thread. Now, weave it between the bars. The bearded man thrust the thread between the first set of bars, licked his fingers, then threaded it through the next set, continuing until he had worked his way across the entire frame. Now, grab the lever on your left side. That side, said Adam, pointing, and pull. The man yanked hard on the lever. The loom screeched. Gently, gently, for God's sake, cried Adam. Like this. He eased the handle down, moving the woven thread up to the top of the bars, then released it. Now, starting from the other side, do the same thing. 
then pull the lever down again. Christ, grinned the bearded man. That's no backache. The trick is not doing it once, but doing it a thousand times a day, said the merchant, without missing a single bar. Any cloth that is not woven perfectly is worthless. You will not be paid for it, and you will be charged for the thread you have wasted. Are there any questions? What's the use of working and paying for learning? demanded the bearded man. Seems as you'll we'll be making a pretty penny from us no matter what we do. What is your name? asked Adam. Jake de Red. Well, Mr. Red, this is a test for me, something to show what my machines can do. It will give me some hard numbers. These are my terms. If you don't like them, you are free to go. Free, muttered the bearded man. Free to starve. That's all the freedom you had before. Any other questions? What am I supposed to do with my young'uns while I work? asked a woman. How old are they? Very little. So I. Too young to work? I. Well, one of you will have to be a nanny while the others work. We can pay her, I suppose, from your earnings. Take turns. Anything else? There was nothing. All right, said Adam. We will do no weaving today. Your duties for today, for which you are being fed, is to raise a house for yourselves. Come with me. They followed him outside to where a pile of lumber stood. Now, roll up your sleeves and get to work. By mid-afternoon, they had erected a ramshackle dwelling not far from the barn. It leaned a little precariously, but Adam determined that it would hold. Chapter 26 An Asking Lawrence entered her room very late. He was having trouble sleeping. His dreams had shifted slightly. Where he once dreamed of the earth being turned to take new seeds, now his mind's eyes seemed to follow the shafts and rubble into the darkness. His dreams lay under the overturned earth, among the still insects and discarded husks. Mary heard him come in. Her eyes opened and she turned towards him, painfully shifting under the cool cotton sheet. Her throbbing body seemed to recede. Her mind hung like a high candle in a dark room. Lord Larry, she murmured. How are you feeling? Tired, she said, but grateful. I always felt that I would know when my end would come. Last night was not the time. Thank you. Lawrence pulled up a chair, rubbing his eyes. To think that such things are possible in this age on my lands. When not at Bob hammered on the door, I scarcely believed him. When I came, it was like walking into hell itself. There was a short pause. Lawrence shifted in his seat. Mary waited. Mary, he said finally, I want, I want to do something for you. Mary closed her eyes. I have done you wrong, said Lawrence softly. When I first saw you years ago, you frightened me. I didn't understand it then. When you said, did you go to Italy because you were good, I understand now what you meant. I've spent my whole life, it seems, fighting the ignorance of the privileged. Why do you have castles, I asked. There's no answer. I have privilege. I think I use it for good. But that is not why I am privileged. I am privileged because I was lucky. But you, 
It is possible that you are the most intelligent woman I have ever met, bar one. And while my sister, oh God bless her, she tries, was struggling with her Euclid with no chance of mastering it, you, you were pressing your cheek against the flank of a cow, working your hands like machines, your words lost for want of ink. I can't imagine such a fate. Lawrence stood suddenly, feeling on the verge of something. The house was silent, expectant. Now I find I'm frightened of you still, he said finally. I tried to put myself in your shoes, but I can't. I think that if I were you, I should hate the world. No, more than that. I should loathe it with my whole soul. Such injustice. I should want to tear its heart out by the roots, throw it before the mirror of itself and watch it cower. I have done that. That has been in me, whispered Mary. Yet you managed to speak of love. I wish there were better words. You speak of caring. I, I, I do not understand. Mary pulled herself up and sat watching him. What do you want to understand? I want to understand how you can care. Would you like me to tell you? Yes. Then bring me some water, and I will tell you. Chapter 27 A Telling I think that certain souls are placed here to test the age, said Mary. When I left Farmer Jigger's house, I was almost relieved. I felt that if I had stayed, I would die. I wandered. When I was hungry, I stole. When I was tired, I slept in trees. Everything fell away from me. My hair grew wild. My breath stank. I would crouch in bushes by the roads and watch people passing. I felt like a ghost. I learned to pray. I dreamt of heaven. I longed for death. I asked myself, why was I born? To think that I had been orphaned in the wilderness, a mind without means, and the soul of an angel in the body of a dog. I hated God. I dreamt of stabbing him in his sleep. One day I passed a tent. I heard a man preaching from within. I crept inside the door, and suddenly his words seemed to strike my soul like an arrow, splitting it in two. I remember his words. Do not despair, if your lot is a hard one, he said, for the hardest steel must go through the hottest fire. You are tested. Cry thanks, for your soul is tempered. You shall pass through this veil of tears to the light beyond, and this light might be tomorrow, for God intends that each of us shall do good in our lifetimes. If you are tested, if you are reviled, outcast, spat upon, you must give thanks, for the love you find at midnight shall shine even brighter at dawn. I do not remember the rest of his words. These alone made sense to me. It was as if I alone was being spoken to, as if everyone else dozed and God spoke only to me. I came into the tent with hatred. I left it with joy. 
for I knew my challenge to find love and goodness despite spit and curses. If I could do that, I would be greatest among the living. I left and I headed north. I wanted to find a more a dark place in the wilderness where I could eat berries and learn to love my fate. I ended up in Yorkshire. I found a little mound in a bog where no man had been for a thousand years. I built a lean-to and sat for days, eating nothing. And I felt my eyes beginning to live with the landscape, the trees, the rushes, the still pools of water. I saw all these as living things, as the hands of God reaching for me, reflecting me, holding me. Mary laughed quietly. <laughs> I was going quite mad, of course. I thought of all those that had come before me, the ecstatic saints, and I felt them around me, gesturing at me to follow them, to run naked off cliffs and meet them on the hard rocks. But still I remembered the preacher's words. God intends that each of us shall do good in our lifetimes. And I resisted the call to madness. I flung myself into cold water. I beat myself with branches, and the pain kept me in my body. I broke my fingernails and pulled my hair. Oh, I ate too much. I starved myself. I, I, I stayed in the world. I lived like this for a long time. Spring, summer, spring, summer. When the second winter came, I shivered and crept out of the wilderness. I came to a town. I was almost blind. I had not spoken for over a year. My, my, my tongue felt stuck. It was market day. Children threw stones at me. I, I caught at them and pressed them to my chest. They, they shrieked and ran away. I went to the market where the colors and music seemed to beat at me. I climbed on a scaffold and began shouting. The crowd gathered a priest, crossed himself. Men stared at my legs, scratching themselves. Clouds were gathering. The music stopped. Men began climbing the scaffold. I climbed higher on the beam. I remember looking down at a little girl without shoes, standing alone. Our eyes met. The girl took a step back, groping for the hand of a man. He scowled and shook his head. My heart broke. I th threw myself from the scaffold at the girl's feet. I groped for her feet and began kissing them. She sobbed. I looked up at her eyes and she was crying. I felt such loss. It, it was incomprehensible, unimaginable. I felt that no time had passed, that I was looking at myself. Cry, cry, I felt myself shout. I wanted to beat the tears out of her, to squeeze her like a sapling. I wanted to beat all the women in the square for keeping their distance, for turning away from such a beautiful child. This is all of us, I cried. 
wringing my hands and weeping in the mud. I remember being yanked away from the girl. I pulled her over. I could not let go. The hands were rough. They touched what was my own, and I, and I began clawing at the men. The priest was leaning over me, shouting something, and I began to retch. Suddenly the hands let go, and I heard a low voice in my ear. I, I looked around wildly, and an older woman's face appeared before me. She, she smiled at me and, and, and placed her hand on my cheek. That little touch, I felt as if I died. I cried out, Mother. And suddenly everything went dark. I awoke in a white room. I could not think. I, I, I felt stuffed with cotton. Everything ran through my mind, scraps and bits, coulds, trees, voices, without any sense. It was very quiet. I could hear distant singing. I thought, oh, this is heaven. I shall be washed, scented, and soon I shall go and join the singers. Oh, I felt such peace. And then I saw a white vase sitting on a wooden table by the bed. It had a long crack running up the outside of the porcelain. Oh, I remember it well. And I suddenly felt an awful loss because I knew that there couldn't be any cracked vases in heaven. I knew then that I wasn't dead and I wept bitterly. I lay there for some time. Then the door opened and a young woman's head came round the side wrapped in white. Her eyes widened. She crossed herself quickly and disappeared. She left the door open. I wanted to get out of bed and close it, but I couldn't move. Even my muscles were cotton. Eventually, the older woman came in. Oh, what a face she had. Some people have peace like cows have peace. Nothing can touch them. She had peace like God has peace, for he has seen the ruin of all his creation, and still he loves even her eyes, they were full of such sorrow, such tenderness, and such knowledge that you felt they saw through all your darkness. Are you hungry? she asked gently, and I, I, I turned my face away. <laughs> such a simple question, so long unasked. <sighs> I was glad to stay. I could not take my vows, for Mother Margaret said that my soul was not ready. I worked in the garden, helped with the meals, rubbed the sisters' legs after prayers. I rarely spoke. <laughs> I lay under my blankets at night and made a volcano out of my knees, spraying lava with outstretched fingers. Life seemed an intolerable burden. It felt as if the tide of life had pulled away and... and I lay in a little pool among the rocks, staring at the insects trembling above me. The sun slanted through the water as it set. Shadows in the crevices of my small pool stretched, and I longed to stretch with them to disappear in darkness. 
I'd lived with death. I cannot tell you what it meant to me. Everything I saw, everything I touched, reminded me of heaven, of a shining light I could dissolve into. I would touch the red carpet by the altar and think how shabby it was compared to the carpet of heaven, which would be perfect soft grass. I would sit in a pew after everyone had gone to bed and watch the starlight coming through the stained glass and think that in heaven such light would be perfect beams, like the legs of God striding past. Yet, soon I felt the tension of a coming storm. <laughs> I bored the sisters with extravagant stories, strained jokes, tense self-praise. How desperately I wanted to be loved. I think that my whole soul strove for a single soft touch. There was love there of a sort, but the sisters moved through me like smoke. I, I, I couldn't seem to believe in them. I was afraid of them. Their, their gentleness reminded me of the concern of nurses by the bed of the dying. Their kindness lowered me into a grave. Mother Margaret was patient. She taught me to read better and allowed me three afternoons a week in the library. Oh, I read everything, became certain, confused, certain again. I constructed fantastic dialogues in my mind, but when I spoke to a sister, my tongue froze. There was a wall between myself and the world that I couldn't get over. I touched it, I beat at it, I even tried to climb it once in a while, but I would become tense, sleepy, irritable. Ah, I was disgusted with myself. Oh, God scolded me in terrible terms. I was weak, cowardly, resentful, petty, a temptress, a slug among mountains. I quailed before him and loved him all the more. I distracted myself with pettiness because if my mind had cleared, I would have killed someone. Everyone, myself. Such kindness the soul provides, it disarms one when one is nothing but knives. Ah, oh, a hatred lay in me. It is impossible to describe. A bishop came to visit a fat man in silk who sat and picked his teeth while we kissed his head. And when I touched my lips to his skin, I smelled garlic and pheasants, and I felt as if I would be sick. I excused myself. I was shaking. And I went to my chamber and bit my tongue on the bed. I hated the man, for I imagined the good I would do in his place. I thought of sitting around a crowded table, smiting my fist and laughing, all evil scattering before my rage. And then I saw myself in my little cot, a small knot of resentment and bitterness, and I cried, hot tears, wanting to tear myself out by the roots and scatter myself at a strong wind, thinking that the stuff of my sick soul might at least make crops grow where it landed. And I thought of God, and he laughed at me from his dark throne, laughed at this knotted disease he had made. 
I thought of the blessing of free will. Oh, his great gift to mankind. And I wondered at my free will, for I had been born bright into a land of shadows. And the shadows had warped my soul, turned it against itself and crushed it, so that I dripped between the clenched fist of my circumstances. Where was I when you made your plan? I cried into my knotted sheets, my heart clenching, my breathing labored. I was an outcast. I had not asked for such a soul, such a life. I thought of grinning plowmen, fair wives and happy, stupid children, and I wanted to tear my mind out by the roots. Why can I not be happy? It seemed so easy for others. Don't think. Don't question. I did not choose to think. Where is my free will? And in that moment of stillness, uh, at the heart of the most essential question, I suddenly abandoned God, and all forgiveness disappeared with him. Mary turned to Lawrence, who sat at the foot of the bed. His head was lowered, his eyes shaded. The candle lit his beard like glowing moss. He did not move. Do you know, she said, it was amazing. I rose to the material. All higher things vanished, as if they were never there. God, angels, devils, heavens, ghosts, and goblins all disappeared in a twinkling. And I felt such a sudden rush of passion that I convulsed physically on my bed and my eyes were opened and I saw. God was a drug for my hate, keeping it at bay. And I, I suddenly thought of all the stupidity and evil I had known, all, all the wrongs I had received, and there was suddenly nothing above them, nothing behind them, nothing beyond them. They were simply... There. Evil was no longer the work of Satan, but nothing more than the ravings of, of, of rabid animals. My hands flexed, power running through my veins, at the sudden thought, what if this is the only world? And, th and then that I, fe I, fe I felt a sudden rush of panic. I had hidden in this womb while the world cursed and convulsed in the distance. Men were not pawns of universal power, but lost animals striking at their young. Ah, and I became possessed of a savage desire to save, not to renounce, not to counsel patience, not to hope for better after death, but to stride out and rescue now, here and now. I thought of the girl in the marketplace, and I, and, and I was overpowered by self-loathing, for I had cursed mothers for abandoning their young, and then had abandoned them myself, hiding out in this empty house of God, waiting in vain for a salvation that was myself. And I made a vow to myself. I will rescue life, not death. I will be a salve for the world's wounds. I will not drug pain with eternity, but soothe it in the here and now. <laughs> Thus were my eyes opened. Oh, and how I wished they were not.
I looked at the sisters, and they were no longer glowing princesses of God, but forgotten mice hiding in dry cellars. I'd never asked them about their pasts, for I thought them serene. I questioned them then, and such pain rose before me. One girl's mother had tried to drown her. Another had been beaten by her brothers daily. She flinched when I touched her cheek. Another had been violated from infancy. Another had been set on fire because she taught herself how to read. Another had her fingers broken because she touched herself. They were all lost in visions of the wonder of death. They drugged themselves with death because life was an open wound. They rubbed death into their wounds and lost all limbs. I woke their nerves. They revolted against me. I I became their devil. Mother Margaret took me into her office and demanded the reasons for my actions. Why was I unsettling their only safe home? Mother Margaret, I said, why were we placed here? To suffer, she said, and to love despite our suffering. Who must we forgive in order to love suffering, God, man? It is not our place to forgive, but to be forgiven, she replied. Forgiven for what? I asked. Child, you know the catechisms. For the sin of Adam, for the sin of being human. Mother Margaret, I said, I have striven for faith. I have tried with all my might to believe, but I cannot. I cannot love a God who creates a life of suffering. We chose to suffer. We ate the fruit. I did not choose to suffer, I cried. I did not choose to be born. I did not choose to have such a mind. I did not choose to be beaten and cursed and reviled. God made the world. He made me. Only he could have chosen me to suffer. How do we know that we are not worshipping the devil? What if we are wrong? What if Satan is the god of this world and we pray to evil for salvation from evil? What if God put us here to end evil, not just hide behind pious walls? Child, she cried out, raising her hands. I I, I cannot explain the eternal mysteries to someone who has no faith. I took you in because your soul was troubled. I gave you books because your mind was confused. I prayed that peace of mind would be granted to you. Your prayers were not answered, I said. Neither of our prayers were answered. Nothing is listening. This is the only world, and I will suffer its evils no longer. Mother Margaret shuddered at my words. Suddenly she shook her head. I cannot let you disturb the peace of this place. You have stayed. I have striven, but still you rebel. But think, it is such a small time, a few years, and you will be free. Why rebel? Why fight? Her words summoned the sweetness of death in my soul, but I resisted it. If I die, I said, I will live in heaven and and look at the world, and my heart will be sick that I did nothing while alive but wait for death. I, I, I cannot live for such torments. Then you must leave this place. I sat for a long moment. For the first time in my life, in that moment, 
I felt true peace. I had made my decision. Then I will leave, I said. I thought of the first words that Mother Margaret had spoken to me. Are you hungry? I had spent a lot of time in the garden. I had learned a lot about crops. I suddenly felt this desire. Feed the poor. I thought of the hunger of the body, how such once made everyone angry and, and, and afraid. I went to the library and, and took the books on agricultural husbandry and packed them with my clothes. I went to the pantry and took all the food I could carry. I was taking from the dead. What did I care? Then I said goodbye to the sisters. How they wept, pressing me with beads like desperate refugees thrusting children into passing carriages. I left without saying goodbye to Mother Margaret. She seemed like an embalmed Egyptian queen gesticulating from a bony throne. I wanted to lose myself. I could not bear open spaces. I went to London, and I saw the face of poverty. I remember watching the rich carriages sweeping past. I felt no resentment. I thought of tea parties and gallery openings. Who would want to descend to the gutter in the face of such plenty? Yet I felt that this chasm must be bridged somehow. So much, so little. Who can explain it? Who can explain the thoughts of a woman who passes a crying mother by the side of the road and signals her driver to get her home faster? We see dying children and feel a sudden desire to see our own children. Why? Why? I don't know, said Lawrence. Mary shrugged. <laughs> Rhetorical. You cannot know. But I know. Think of Christ. He took all the world's pain on his shoulders. I shouldn't have been surprised if he had crucified himself to escape the blinding agony of such a weight. Here it is. Simply. The poor are not real. We all have a structure. I am good. Those who are different are bad. How else can we remain sane in the face of universal misery? We drug ourselves with distance. We stroll through a, a pantomime. We never let the reality of others enter our minds. And thus they become unreal to themselves. What does a child do in the face of indifference? Why, he becomes indifferent to himself. His rages and pains do not pierce him. They flicker and strain below his vision. He becomes undemanding, passive, resigned. Wronged, he wrongs himself. He passes from the eyes of society, a mere clutch of dull rags. Multiply him a million times, and he becomes a grey grain on a grey beach, dumb, excluded, his mutterings are not heard over the mad music of seaside dancing. I thought of this, and found my purpose, to remain human. I am a woman, as much as the highest Duchess, our breasts 
beat the same drums, we raise hammers and sherry with the same muscles, scream as loud in birthing, sigh and die in the same heartbeat. Our eyes see the same sunsets, our ears twitch to the same baby's cry, our palms brush the same lover's cheek, we, we taste the same rejections, our fingers trail cages of iron or gold, it matters little which. I thought that if I could find a man of means and have him taste the same ashes I have tasted, I could become a bridge over the greatest divide. I speak for my tribe, the largest tribe, the excluded. Mary looked Lawrence full in the face. When I read of your experiments, I saw you behind me on the same road. Think of it. I sympathized with you. Excluded good. We are the same soul. We are brothers. Everything I have known, you have felt. I read about you, and I decided to come. I wished to make the world real for you. I know that you have seen it, the possibilities of this life. I knew it the moment I read of you, the moment I saw you, the moment I spoke to you. I see it in your eyes now. I wanted to come to you and say, we are cursed for breathing, we brothers. Let us do good and damn all curses. Lawrence looked at her, his eyes widening like the rings of a disturbed pool. He opened his mouth, and just at that moment the faint strains of a piano floated through the air. I, I, I have a guest, he said, rising with difficulty. Is there, is there anything you need? R ring the bell if you do. Mary smiled. Anything you see fit to provide will be welcome. Th then I should let you sleep, he said, turning to go. Lawrence? He turned. Yes? Thank you for listening. He nodded. Yes, uh, I, I have a lot to think over. Good night. Sleep well, said Mary softly. He paused, nodded, then left, closing the door gently behind him. Mary's eyes took a few minutes to adjust to the blue darkness. She stared at the moon. When the outlines of the room began to press faintly against the edge of her vision, she whispered her oath once more, her hands pale on the white sheets. Lawrence stood outside her room, his heart beating fast. How odd that I should feel guilty, he thought, passing a hand through his hair. Shaking his head, he mounted the stairs. He looked into the music room. Lydia sat at the piano, one hand playing, her head resting on the other. A single candle stood on the desk. The moonlight iced her white nightgown. Her hair was down. Lawrence stood for a moment, watching her in wonder. It felt as if a light breeze was stirring the darkness he had felt downstairs. Can't sleep? he asked. Too windy, she murmured, and I had a bad dream. Oh? I dreamt. I was becoming weak, ill, she said, turning to him. Everyone gathered at my bedside, talking softly and crossing themselves. No one knew my malady. 
Then, just as I was drifting away, a doctor pulled back my nightgown and found a leech on my neck. It was horrible. How strange, shivered Lawrence. Will you play with me? asked Lydia, shifting on the piano bench. I'm a little tired. Oh, a few minutes. Then I'll go to bed. I was a mean hand at scales, he said, walking towards her and forcing a smile. What's your taste? What better? Some Mozart. Lawrence sat beside her. The window was open. He could see the pool glittering through her hair. Garden air drifted in, full of life. Tell me which key to hit, he said. This one. Nudge me when I will. Lydia began playing. Her elbow brushed Lawrence's side, and he pressed his finger into the ivory. What began as halting became rhythmic, and he slowly felt his soul begin to lighten. The terrors of Mary's story began to part before the fluid laugh of Mozart. The vases and paintings seemed to come back into view, and he felt such a delicacy of civilization that he suddenly threw back his head and laughed. He turned to see Lydia watching him. All better, she asked gently. I believe I may also have had a bad dream, he said, smiling suddenly. Chapter 28 Eloquent Freedom Lord Serbs stood on a high hill in Yorkshire, admiring both his far-flung lands and the man who stood in front of him. I was here once as a child, you know, he murmured. It wasn't a sight likely to lure me back. Didn't keep me here either, sir, replied Thomas. That was the start of it all. Tell me what I see. Over there, afore the sea, are the Glen Fens, said the young man, pointing at a low spread of tangled undergrowth. There's smoke to the west of Weiss, that's the village, the planted fields around it, mostly to the west and south, are what we always farmed. The ones to the north, and a little to the east, those we just begun. Where we're standing has been barren scrub for as long as mines recall. This is where I think we can tend the new sheep. Sheep have never been tried here before? asked Lord Serbs. Thomas shook his head with a smile. Lord, we've had enough hardship keeping skin and soul together. We're only starting to raise our heads now. You know, said Lord Serbs, you are the true owner. Thomas shifted from foot to foot. Eh, that kind of philosophy is beyond me, sir. Facts are not philosophy. But come, what are we to do today? I wrote to Clem Weatherby. We will meet him and the others for dinner. They have been working out a draining method while I've been gone. Until then, I thought we might ride around for a spell, take in the lay of the land. They rode for hours. Lord Serbs was excited. The village seemed a different world than he remembered. A solid sense of labour hung around it. The streets were clean. The faces of the men and women hurrying by were stern, open tired and quietly delighted. "'We set up sort of a school in the chapel,' commented Thomas as they passed the building. "'A friend of mine spends the mornings teaching the children about proper crop methods. In the afternoons they tend their own little gardens. We give prizes to the best yield in the next summer.' "'They are taught to read and write. They have to make notes about their methods. The priest doesn't mind?' "'We lost our priest,' replied Thomas. 
excuse me, I mentioned it before, he got very upset at the upheavals, railed against our pride and lack of faith. He went to Canterbury to complain a few months ago. He hasn't returned. Thomas sighed. I suppose we'll get another one eventually. What is happening to the, the morals of the village? I, I don't quite follow, sir. Well, how do men live? Do, do, they, do they drink? Do they, they shirk? Do they lust? Thomas frowned for a moment. Well, we are all quite busy, sir. We used to have a sort of lusting in the village years ago, but I think most men want to settle down and raise a family. Yet, when there's no food, no opportunity, no hope for a better future, they tend to live for the present. I suppose that's why we needed the priest. He kept their desperation in check. But it never seemed enough. Now, we have our rough sorts like any, but most seem to have put their back to the wheel of progress. And drinking? There is more, admitted Thomas. It's a heady time, but a little shaky if you catch my meaning. Most are excited about the future, but they can't seem to believe in it fully. Can't say as I blame them either. I also get the idea that this kind of change is almost a rebellion and, and something will come crashing down on us. But I would rather have a year of this than a lifetime the old way. This is all most interesting. I feel ashamed to have spent so much time with books. Well, smiled Thomas, books are the first step. The only first step. Quite quite right, smiled Lord Serves, and, and quite kind of you. The dinner was served at the inn in a long, low, soot-stained and heavy-beamed room, hung with the stuffed heads of old predators. Should be some aristocrats up there, thought Lord Serbs. Seven men were talking at the table, mugs of ale in their hands, baskets of dark bread at their elbows. Nay, you speak from your nose, cried one of the older men. Roger Bacon, my arse, twas Anse Lippershey. What done it first? Holland, 1608. Some say so, some say nay, replied his companion. I have it on personal authority that those what ground eyeglasses in Italy more than 300 years ago done it long afore old ants. Personal authority? Aye, if your age were as long as your tails, ye may have personal authority on land ye've never seen, and a time ye've never seen. Ye're both staring strange, said another man disgustedly. Twas neither Hans nor Italian paper makers. Mr. Galilei, 1609, fast real telescope. He's what saw the spinners of Jupiter, the stars in the Milky Way, and the mountains on the moon. Nay, not for the sake of patriotism, but the sake of truth, put in another. It must be said that Mr. Galilei's trappy too was a mess of squinting and correcting. Mr. John Dolandy of this fair isle, 1757, fashioned a convex crown glass and a convex dense flint, that his compound lens made up for the chromatic squinties at two wavelengths cannot be denied by any who draw true breath. You're all right, said Lord Serbs, quite dazed at the erudition of the argument. But, but in the middle of the last century, James Gregory developed a method in which the central concave parabolic mirror merges the light to one focus of a concave ellipsoidal mirror, which reflects the light to the ellipsoidal second focus through a central hole to the main mirror. Aye, what's the use of that? asked one of the men sceptically. Sounds like a lot of showy trickery. Sir Newton's got the best, the most elegantest solution. His primary parabolic mirror bounces the light to a leaned-up reflecting mirror, which spits it straight at the eye. Nice and easy. No need for Gregory's little hole and tricky setup. Why, staring through his mess in a stiff breeze would give you a thunderhead in a second. Aye, said another, and he had the smarts to give up on this specular metal for his mirrors. Load of crap anyway, he always needs fixing and polishing. 
Thomas stood, enjoying the sight of Lord Serb's astounded face. The argument wound down after a time, and Thomas stepped forward. "'Friends, this is Lord Serbs. I wrote you. He was coming.' The men rose and nodded, introducing themselves. "'I have come to talk with you about the proposed swamp draining,' said Lord Serbs, sitting. Um, "'May I trouble you for, for a glass of beer?' Chapter 29 An Awakening Lawrence slept fitfully. In his dreams he lay on a bed of twisting skeletons. Their bones pierced his side. A woman in a corner chair did not stir. He cried out. She turned and stared at him, her face a sheet of white bone. He awoke, shivering, staring at the ornate plasterwork of his ceiling. He had looked at it countless times, admiring the snowy leaves and peering cupid faces. He looked at it now and thought, How much were the workmen paid? Could they provide for their families? Or did they leave my fat house with dry bread to feed the anger of their wives? Did they snarl at their children's hungry complaints? Did they raise their hands against them? Did my father haggle with the foreman, scrimping to buy some heavy volume of Eastern religious practices? Lawrence thought of the piano he and Lydia had played last night. When he was seven or so, he had sat under the piano watching the local tinker's legs as he tuned it. The old man's trousers were frayed. He kept wheezing, consumptively, taking a rag from his pocket and coughing into it. How does a tinker know how to tune a piano? he thought. Did you have the mind of Mozart, old man? The man left, having squeezed a few pennies from Lady Barbara. Lawrence had watched him from the bay window, shuffling down the garden path, still coughing. Where did you go, old man? Are you playing concerts now? Are angels applauding your fingertips? Lawrence shifted on his silk sheets, half remembering the ghosts of people who had passed through his life. His first nanny, shunning food to hide her growing belly, her blue eyes wide and trapped, dismissed when he was eight. The youth who had delivered the elder Lord Carvey's books, Lawrence remembered finding him one morning, pouring through the volumes behind the garden shed, licking his grimy fingers clean and turning the pages with the reverence of a monk. Were you to have been an historian? And Ralph, the boy who had carried his books, clutching them to his chest while Lawrence strolled and swung sticks in carefree abandon, ignoring his constant questions. Ralph had not lasted long. Lawrence had gotten rid of him, replacing him with a sullen, dark-haired boy who trudged painfully, one leg wasted. It seemed that a huge wound had opened up in the world. Lawrence quailed before it. Coincidence, chance, circumstance, were I born a poor girl? So much of him seemed to have been shaped by chance that Lawrence felt dizzy, disoriented. What is really mine? The question turned in his mind, mocking his sense of self. All self-respect is vanity, for all virtue is circumstantial. Oh, Lawrence rose heavily. He was getting nowhere. While dressing, he turned and glanced at his bed. 
so many mornings had he lain there as a child, making animals with the bunched sheets, while other boys dodged beatings, their backs bowed with coal, with bales of hay, with the crushing burden of an unchosen life. I am the exception, the thought ran in maddening circles through his mind. After dressing, Lawrence went downstairs, vowing to only eat toast. He stopped at the entrance to the kitchen. His mother sat at the table in her nightgown, her hair down. Lawrence, she said, rising, do sit down. Lawrence walked forward warily. Good morning, mother. How did you sleep? Poorly, he said, rubbing his eyes. I'm sure of it. Kay tells me we have a new guest. He shook his head. Please, please not, not now, mother. She says the child was about to be murdered. Yes, that's right, said Lawrence, surprised at the concern in his mother's voice. How is she? She'll survive. I, I spent some time talking with her last night, listening to her. You will prosecute, of course. Lawrence's piece of toast halted in front of his mouth. Excuse me? As well as your duties as a farmer, you have responsibilities as the justice of the peace. You will doubtless round this rabble up and prosecute them for attempted murder. Lawrence paused. Uh, I hadn't thought of that. Uh, I was going to... Look, his mother interrupted shortly. We may be the idle rich, but we have our responsibilities. Don't make faces. We stand for justice. Your father once had to oversee the execution of a rapist. Terrible business. This is beyond the power of your bailiff, Larry. He may have been among them. Lawrence paused. It, 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 will, it will cripple the village, mother. We need able hands for irrigation. It was a, a dozen men, maybe more, all prominent. I will banish the jiggers. I have said so. It is not enough, Lawrence. I warned you of this. I warned you that making them rich was a mistake. You did not listen. You made them rich. They ceased going to church. Now, when the fruits of your labors have turned rotten in your hands, you wish to run away to slap them on the wrist and call yourself just. There is a burnt child in the servants' quarters, Lawrence. You cannot ignore that. You have a responsibility. This is not a product of wealth, mother, he said heavily, but of superstition. They have only recently raised their heads. How can they be expected to just throw off the fears of two thousand years? Exactly, said Lady Barbara, rapping the table sharply. How, if they are not punished for their transgressions? When they worked on empty stomachs, they knelt before God and called themselves content. Now you have turned their eyes to this world, Larry, and they think that by living for their selfish desires they have the right to dispense justice as they see fit. They must be stopped. You must stop them. What would you have me do? asked Lawrence. Shoot them in the chest. You must round them up, get their confessions, and hang them, said Lady Barbara. Just as, as easy as that. What of their families? They should have thought of that before. Lawrence felt a sudden lump of anger. It was almost unbearable. He leapt to his feet awkwardly. Is that it? He cried, his face flushed. As simple as that. Just, they do wrong and we hang them. We, the pampered cats of the common good, pass judgments on dogs kicked by history. What if you had been born poor, mother? What if you had to feed your children tree bark and hold them as they wheezed their last breath in your arms? What if you were married to John Mudder? I've seen his wife. She flinches if you scratch your ear. What would you have done in her place? Sat sipping tea and talk of instant justice. Lawrence, cried his mother, sit down, child. What on earth is the matter with you? Lawrence shook his head mutely, his hands bald. 
he would not let her see his tears. His whole mind felt disordered. Sit down! He sat, looking away. What is the matter with you? demanded his mother. Yours is not to question the way of the world. I didn't notice you complaining of injustice when I sent you on your grand tour of Europe. How exciting this will be, mother, you said. How instructive! You did not complain that other children had to carry wood for your warmth. You took the goods without complaint. Now the bill is due. Now you must be strong. Now you must taste the bitter fruit of justice. And now, now, you complain of injustice? It's a little too late to be convincing, Lawrence. Too late, too little, and a little too convenient for my tastes. I can't do it, mother, he said simply, his eyes fixed on the wall. Lady Barbara paused for a moment. Lawrence could feel the coming storm. A dazed voice in his mind cried, What do you want from me? He felt surrounded by something hard, enveloping, insistent. He thought of his mother, of, of Kay and Mary, and all the other women who seemed to be obsessed with him, controlling him with their homilies, their blind, drowning concern. He suddenly wished that someone would stride into his life and rescue him from the eternal attentions of these women, and he missed his father with his whole soul. I want you to leave me alone, he whispered. I will do no such thing, Lawrence, said his mother evenly, rising with her cup of tea. The cup trembled on the saucer, tinkling, and she set it down quickly. Lawrence wanted to rise, snarl, run, but he felt trapped, lethargic. "'Your position has placed no great burdens on you, Lawrence,' said Lady Barbara. "'You've been very lucky. It's all been great fun. "'But life isn't all fun and games. I—I I know. "'You have long complained that we are the idle rich. "'I agree, most of the time. "'But when there is a war, we send our sons. "'When there is revolution, we pledge our swords. "'When there is injustice, we avenge it. "'You were raised as a kind of soldier, Lawrence. "'When the world is at peace, you are free to play.' But the world, your world, is stirring with war, and you must rise to the challenge. You must be a man. Only thus is your position justified. If you run away, you are a coward, a parasite, a selfish, ignorant child, and your resentments, your fears about your privilege, all will become true. But you cannot blame your position. You cannot blame me, or Kay, or God, or life. You can only blame yourself, and I will make sure that you do. Oh, really? cried Lawrence. You going to tell me how to be a man? Where were you when father was heading out the door for months, writing me endless letters? Were you saying to him, No, dear, you have children, you have a son who needs you, you have responsibilities? No, you didn't like to have him around. You found it easier to have him out of your life. You didn't think that his son might need him, that your daughter might need him? No, that didn't serve your self-interest. And now you, you come to me and preach self-sacrifice? Why should I not take my cue from you, from my confounded father too, and say, No thanks, I think that it's a little too uncomfortable for me, and I must think of my own comfort first and foremost. Lady Barbara placed her hands over her mouth, her eyes closed, her brow furrowed in pain. Lawrence's heart sank. That is harsh, Larry, she whispered, turning away from him. 
She began smoothing a lace coverlet on the arm of the sofa, tugging it one way, then another. Lawrence closed his eyes. I'm sorry, he whispered. I had no power over your father because he did not love me, said his mother, staring at the lace. Don't be sad. It happens. Only the poor may marry for love. (laughs) Think that you understand women because you were raised by one, but you don't, not really. I honestly tried to make your father love me. I I rubbed his feet, bought him cocoa, read him to sleep, but he didn't desire me. And if that's not present, everything else is just make-believe. He only wanted me when I was putting on my powder. Mother, I know you are uncomfortable, I know. But you raised adult issues, and you must deal with them as an adult. I couldn't leave you with your father when you were young. Something about him didn't recognize children. He was always irritated with you. When you were two, he was playing croquet, and you wandered off and fell into the garden pond. I saw you from the balcony. You leaned over and fell in. Your father didn't even look up. I was very undignified. I screamed at the gardener who fished you out. Your father kept saying, you mustn't pamper him. Men don't understand that life is fragile. It is always at the mercy of chance. So you see... I don't think I had anything to keep him here with you. The problem wasn't me. The the problem was your father, pure and simple. Lady Barbara dropped her hands and looked up at Lawrence. His eyes were red, his cheeks sunken. I hope that this has made things a little clearer for you, she said. Lawrence looked at her for a long moment. It seemed unbearable. He felt that her whole will was aligned with his life. She had nothing else but claustrophobic concern. In other words, control. He did not have to fight her. He could ignore her and banish her to an empty hell. It would be so easy. He could live for pleasure, for war, for leisure, literature, laughter, or simple work. And it came to him suddenly as he looked into the depths of her grey eyes. The poor woman, everything she has is second-hand. His eyes widened. His mother held his gaze without fear, without pride. You want justice, men must provide it, he thought. You want love. Men must provide it. You need money. Men must provide it. You have no will, no power, save convincing me. It opened for him in a moment, like a wrapping too long toyed with. Her aggression was nothing but hostile begging, limbless. She demanded to be carried. These trembling tendrils, that had bound them together. How savage, how stern, how weak they suddenly seemed. But to rise, to leave, to walk away from such suffocating concern, would that not be an act of near murder? How many people cut themselves open for the sake of controlling the knives of others? They have nothing. We have everything. Can we not be kind? But Lawrence 
felt a sudden anger in his chest, a disgust with self-inflicted agony, agony that was held like a dripping heart before others at the greatest feast, destroying their appetite for life. You have done this to yourself, he cried silently. Lydia's face rose in his mind's eye. She has never demanded anything of me. She enriches me. He felt a sudden, wrenching desire to flee with her into her world, a world without victims, without the eternal responsibility of being mankind's keeper. The room glowed with sudden sunshine as he rose. His mother took a deep sigh, and he turned towards her. I shall only prosecute Farmer Jigger, who I know was there, and those who confess, mother, he said quietly. I will not have another witch-hunt on my lands. He saw his mother's frustration rise, seeking a crack in his wall. Her eyes floundered like thrown fish on the boards of a bottomless boat. He stood firm, holding her gaze. It was a long moment. Your father would have hung them, she said finally. He shook his head. If you will excuse me, I need some fresh air. Lydia found Lawrence in the garden. He was sitting on the ground, leaning against the stone wall of a trickling fountain, enjoying a rare cigar. He did not hear her approach. His eyes were closed. The sunlight played on his face like the nighting warmth of the natural gods rewarding one of their own. Hello there she murmured. Lawrence heard the voice. He did not want to hear any voice. He realized it was Lydia's and smiled. He opened his eyes and looked up at her. Hello. My father is coming, she said. He blinked. What? My father is coming, said Lydia, holding up a letter. Tomorrow. Why so soon? From, from where? Why so soon? Because I asked him to. From where? Yorkshire. His holdings. He's full of beans about what's happening there. A renaissance of the sod, he calls it. What could that mean? He told me not to tell you, smiled Lydia. Lawrence looked up at her. Her face was lowered over him. Her hair hung over her right shoulder. You know, he said, Lydia, I'm very glad to see you. Oh, I was afraid of approaching you, she said. You looked so content which is not how I've seen you for the past two days. I'm sorry, he said, frowning. Have, have I been neglecting you? She laughed and stretched, looking down over the garden. Oh, no, she murmured. <laughs> I haven't been completely honest with you. I had no intention of accepting your invitation at first, but a rather foolish man was pursuing me in London, one of those men who were so sure of themselves they cannot hear a dissenting voice. He was quite insistent. Oh, how terrible. How can a man try to force love? It's like trying to make a rose grow by tugging at it. All you do is pull it from the soil and kill it. Lydia laughed. <laughs> That's quite true, quite true. So I thought that I would escape such base yankings by leaving the city. This seemed like the perfect place to hide out. Yet I never thought I would find such lovely roses here, she said, glancing at the high bushes nestled against the trellis. Lawrence followed her eyes. <laughs> All fresh for your arrival. Mother's project. But she has no green thumb. She's too impatient. I told her 
that she had to be more gentle. She didn't take it too well. What makes her so aggressive? You don't have to answer that. She's frustrated. She wants her world to be all icing and no cake, but her icing keeps collapsing, so she damns all baking. How abstract. Lawrence shifted. Yes, I suppose so. There was a short pause. You know, said Lydia, I also asked my father to come here because I wanted him to get to know you. I thoroughly enjoyed my brief chat with him, said Lawrence. You have no idea how perceptive he is. He has all the elemental health of the new world. He is an antidote to all darkness. I'm a very fortunate woman. I have no doubt. You find darkness here? Lydia nodded. Yes. Yes, I do. Where? In a place where everyone is dark, I see no darkness. But here, shadows are everywhere, save where you breathe. Am I being terribly presumptuous? God, no, it's a relief to hear clear words. Lydia sat beside him. She ran her fingers lightly over the grass and turned to him. I think that you want to brighten the entire world, Lord Lawrence Carvey. I've seen this trait before. It is a confusion of goodness, but never as strongly as in you. Such burdens. I I cannot understand them, Lawrence. Were you at the meeting when they voted you the second coming? He laughed. I don't know. What am I to do with my life but be good? Heavens, what a manifesto, smiled Lydia. Yet I have often found virtue a substitute for a lack of happiness, creativity, or love. Ambition for good, not joy of life, if that makes sense. It does make sense. You know, said Lawrence, that is how I started, with joy, my obsession for agricultural improvement. Is that part of the malady? No, except when you begin to think that your crops are those around you. Then, perhaps, you fall prey to delusions of grandeur. These things are out of our hands. We are each given the chance for happiness. If we take it, we are content. If we believe that we can give it to others, we are lost. I can no longer think in such selfish terms, said Lawrence. Have you spoken to Mary? The burnt girl? asked Lydia, turning away. No. Oh, no. Why not? I I can't explain it. Doesn't she frighten you? Yes, replied Lawrence. But I, I cannot ignore what she represents. She's almost my conscience. Have you done her wrong? Lydia asked. Lawrence turned away from her. Yes, he said. How? When I was twenty, I I, I came back from a tour of Europe and spoke at Farmer Jigger's house. He was the bedrock of the community, still is, or was, or won't be for long, I suppose. I was idealistic, optimistic, hopeful. I spoke too fast, too eagerly. I didn't even notice Mary until she spoke. She criticized my enthusiasm. She she, she criticized my position. She, how old was she? I, I don't know, quite young, maybe 12. Lydia nodded. Go on. Farmer Jigger attacked her for criticizing me. She held firm. Events escalated. She was thrown out into nothing. I've learned since what happened to her after she left while I was dining on veal twice a week. It is almost unbearable. He smiled. Tell me 
Am I too sensitive? I miss my father. What would your father say? Oh, Lord Gruff. Oh, he would knock some sense into me. What are you doing worrying yourself sick over an outcast? He would say. You're built for better things, boy. Chin up. Take care of yourself and let the world take care of itself. Where's my jam? (laughs) What would you say to that? Lawrence paused. You know, I I don't know. I can't imagine. I, I saw so little of him. I think you will enjoy spending time with my father, said Lydia with a sudden smile. Yes, murmured Lawrence, turning to her. I'm sure I will. The moment of redemption hung suspended like a drop of water from a rose leaf. It trembled, unsure of whether to cling or fall. Kay's voice shattered the reflection. Lawrence! Lawrence, can I speak to you? Lawrence and Lydia turned. Kay stood on the back porch, Jonathan beside her, grinning and waving, his hair standing in every direction. Lydia sighed and waved back. Lawrence rose dutifully, dusting himself off. Thank you, he said. I'd better see what Kay wants. Will you still be here? Lydia nodded. Lawrence walked off slowly. Well, precious, cried Jonathan, striding jauntily down the path towards Lydia. Long time in the wilderness. How are you, Jonathan? murmured Lydia. He threw himself on the grass beside her, scratching his belly. This is a most remarkable place, he said, turning his face to the sky. I almost expect to see fairies in dark suits trimming the undergrowth by moonlight. Such elemental order. What are you talking about? Have you spent any time with this fascinating cave creature? He asked, rolling on his side and looking at Lydia. No. Oh, but you must. Such a paradigm of repressed femininity. Such trembling, uncertain, wanting. Do you know, she is quite attracted to me. I'm everything she wants to be. She honestly believes in heaven. She's very earnest. She says I will not go to hell, though, simply because I am happy. How rare to see body and God warring. She is a morality play. He punched the air madly with both fists. Desire, duty, which will win? What will become of her, I wonder? What's the matter? he asked, flicking her shin. "'Oh, Jonathan,' sighed Lydia, moving her leg, "'do you have any idea how tiresome you are?' He grinned. (laughs) "'There's a smile behind that. I can hear it. "'I warned you against falling in love in Dorset, Princess Lydia. "'You won't get what you want here.' "'What do I want?' Jonathan plucked up a daisy and bit the head off. "'Why, your father, my dear,' he chewed. "'You want someone like your father, but he's old and wise and one of a kind.' You know, you are awfully serious about your own emotions, but terribly flippant about other people's, said Lydia. Hmm, said Jonathan. I must think about that soon, he said after an instant, spitting the half-eaten daisy on the grass. Ugh, what a harridan of a mother. What do you think of her? I think she's the woman for you. Lady Barbara? Lydia, why not? She said, rising. She's perfect. She'd take a paddle to your buttocks twenty hours a day, leaving you three to consider your sins in childish glee and one to plan new ones. Jonathan laughed. (laughs) What a delicious thought. My father is coming in two days. We will stay for a few days beyond that, and then we will leave for London. We? You and I, or you and... You are welcome to stay here, I'm sure, interrupted Lydia, pushing her hair behind her head. Jonathan snatched a blade of grass from between his pressed toes and regarded it for a moment. I would love to take Kay to London, he said suddenly. I may have found another project to take a passionate soul and turn its delicate eyes on itself how exquisite 
But what will you do with your life? Jonathan asked Lydia. Why live it? He said in all innocence. What else? Kay's excitement smacked of an elementally destructive substitute, the religion of the lonely. Lawrence, Lawrence, you must come, she cried breathlessly. I've got the most wonderful note from Adam. Look, look! She thrust a scrap of paper into his hands, her eyes shining. Lawrence read, I'm not saying I was wrong. I'm only saying you should come down and take a look for yourselves. Adam. Remember how sceptical he was, said Kay, jabbing her finger at the paper excitedly. Remember he said, they'll never learn. Remember he said, we can't do good. He says he's wrong, Lawrence. He's wrong. All right. All right, said Lawrence, waving his hands. Have you eaten? Kay shook her head quickly. No, 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 I'm, I'm not hungry. Look, you have to eat something. Go, go in and have some breakfast. I'll wash and get dressed, and I'll meet you downstairs in a few minutes. What? cried Kay. What? Don't you care? Not enough to ruin my health, said Lawrence. He turned and entered the house, shaking his head, the phrase ringing in his mind. Lady Barbara had been sitting in the sunroom, reading a letter, her mind circling around her conversation with Lawrence. She heard Kay bolt noisily into the house towards the kitchen, and with all the blind instincts of obsessive motherhood, rose and smoothed her dress, her face a white mask. "'Good morning, Kay,' said Lady Barbara, coming into the kitchen. Kay glanced up, her mouth full, crumbs on her dress. She pointed at her cheeks, grimaced, and waved. "'Don't say anything. I don't want crumbs on the wall as well,' said her mother. "'Joyce, please leave.' Kay stopped chewing and gestured. "'What's the matter?' Lady Barbara held up the letter she had been reading. I have been informed by Mr. Stelson that you have convinced Lawrence to hand over half our fortune to you. Kay's eyes bulged, her cheeks colouring. She desperately tried to swallow, but could not. Don't choke, said Lady Barbara. I'm not in the mood to rescue you. You won't need to speak, anyway. I may be resigned to the fact that my children hate me. I may not have been a good mother. That's the fashion these days, isn't it, to blame the mother? But I don't think so. Why don't I think so? First, my whole life has revolved around my offspring. I would grant my life for them in an instant. Yet there are two things I will not do for my children, two things they constantly seem to demand of me. First, I will not tolerate deception. And second, I will not help them cover it up. Mother, cried Kay, wiping her mouth hurriedly, it is not for selfish reasons that I want the money. It's not for myself. You must know that. What would I do with it? I have no taste for money. It is for others, others, not me. So you say, said Lady Barbara. Yet I look at you now, and your eyes are shining, your hands are shaking, and it seems to me that you are deriving an unholy sort of pleasure from your generosity. So it really is not for others, Catherine Ann Carvey, now is it? Kay's cheeks reddened. The remains of her muffin paused in mid-wave. She set it down quietly. "'Of course I know nothing about helping others,' continued her mother. "'I am little more than a hateful matriarch. "'Yet you do not know that I was unwilling to follow your father "'because I did not want my children being raised by a nanny. "'Yes, I had help that was necessary, "'but I was present at the changing of your nappies myself often. "'I directed your reading. I, "'I instructed the maids how to deal with you. "'I even played with you. "'Everyone thought I was mad. "'You'll spoil them,' they said. "'I didn't listen.' I tried to guide you every step of the way. I tried to help you. Now, if I had only done it for my pleasure, would I continue to help you even though you spit in my face? 
When I find out, for instance, that my daughter has stabbed me in the back, that our family fortune is in jeopardy, would I talk to her calmly and try to get her to see the error of her ways, would I? What? said Kay, gulping furiously. What are the errors of my ways, mother? How can you be so cruel? I won't have my money until I'm thirty or married. I'm trying to help people now. You are not helping people, said Lady Barbara evenly. You are only trying to satisfy your abominable vanity. Look at you swelling with pride. Your eyes are bulging with self-satisfaction. Look at me, you cry. Look how good I am. I know you, Catherine. I know the pride you have in your heart. You claim to care for people. Tell me, do you care for your mother? Yes, of course. Then let us speak reasonably. Lady Barbara leaned back, gazing at her daughter. Mother, mother, what was I to do? cried Kay, her hands fluttering. Sit in my room and watch my life pass me by. What was I supposed to do? What were you supposed to do? What were you supposed to do? You were supposed to stop being a burden, replied Lady Barbara. You were supposed to settle down and give me grandchildren. You were supposed to think of your responsibility to others. Not a lot, just a little. You were supposed to have a little sense, not just run around trying to turn weeds into roses just to satisfy your own petty vanity. Kay's eyes stung with tears. Her hands wandered the tablecloth. Mother, I'm not so terribly attractive, she whispered. You know that I, I can't I, I can't hold a man's attention. Oh, pray tell, when have you ever tried? When we had the garden party last summer and Charles was trying to speak with you, did you make any effort to be civil? No. You retired to the garden shed with Millie to play Cat's Cradle and sing your little songs. And when we went to Lady Horace's ball, did you... Make any attempt to mingle? No. It took three women and a crowbar to pry you from the wall and make you dance. And you fell over. Do you remember? Five years of dancing lessons. You were prepared. You were invested in. And you fell flat on your face. You don't think I knew what that meant? How do you think it made me feel to be a laughingstock? Were you thinking of me then? Mother, moaned Kay. I didn't try to fall. It was an accident. Of course. I could believe that it were an isolated incident, Kay said Lady Barbara with a gentle smile. But it wasn't, was it? Would you like me to continue? Kay paused and shook her head. Very well, said Lady Barbara. Most sensible. Now, as to this business about the money, I will simply not allow it. You think I am helpless because Lawrence holds power of attorney? She smiled. Perhaps so. Yet I am not utterly without power. If you continue in your actions, I will have no choice but to turn you out of this house. And we both know that your allowance will not cover your living costs. Of course, if you think Lawrence will provide for you, if you are certain that he will honour his promise, you may well choose to defy me. That is your choice. But if you think that this Jonathan character will marry you, you are wrong. Not after how you have behaved, which is little better than a common harlot. Kay half stood, her hands shaking. I did not give you permission to rise, said her mother. Kay said, I suppose I learned how to be attractive to men from you. There was a long pause. Lady Barbara's eyes rose to the ceiling as if the words were balloons bumping against the pale grey paint. Her body seemed to shrink into itself, to find a silent core, then whiten it to an icy fist. You are no daughter of mine. She said slowly, her voice rising. 
No daughter of mine would take her mother's generosity and call it failure. No daughter of mine would take the sacrifice of an unhappy marriage maintained for her sake and call it a failure. Do you think you were the only person in the world who ever had to carry a burden? I gave you everything. At five, ballet lessons. You sprained your ankle. Mother, I cannot continue. At seven, elocution lessons. You stuttered, stained your dress. At nine, dancing lessons. Eleven, singing lessons. Hopeless, but we persevered. Thirteen, piano lessons. The lid fell on your fingers. Mother, I cannot continue. Same outcome every time. And now you think that you have been wronged? You think that I had access to any of these opportunities? Well, I am telling you now, Catherine Ann Garvey, I cannot continue. You are a failure, pure and simple. Not a daughter, not a woman, not a wife. You are a lazy, incompetent, selfish, shallow, deceitful, vain child. And I wash my hands of you forever. Kay sat, the words running through her like swords. They were not new. She had heard them before many times. But because they were not new, they were believed. Look at my life, she thought. How can I disprove her? Her hand reached into her pocket, fingering Adam's note. She drew it out and flung it from her. Lady Barbara stared at her, her eyes dark, unfathomable. I don't hate you, mother gasped Kay. Spare me your hysterics, said Lady Barbara. What do you intend to do with my money? Kay faintly heard Mary's bell from upstairs. Suddenly she imagined her burnt legs and open mouth. Kay felt as if she were lashed to a pole as the flames crept higher. What do you intend to do with my money? repeated Lady Barbara. Kay's hands rose before her, opening and closing rapidly. Why, spend it, she hissed. Her mother did not respond. She looked over Kay's shoulder as a knock sounded on the door. Come in, she said pleasantly, the steel trap rising from her tongue. Am I interrupting? asked Lydia, opening the door. Nothing but an inconsequential family dispute, said Lady Barbara. Kay... Do sit down. You look quite ridiculous. Kay wanted to say it. Wanted to say what hung in her soul, the teardrop of oily darkness, the squeezing sense of destruction. She glanced at Lydia's composed face. It seemed as if she caught a flicker of sympathy. Exhume this corpse, her mind cried but a secret wall rose before her honest light. What wall? What honesty? Why the shame of the wronged? What a strange, silent beast glistened in the sudden light. It lurked in the undergrowth, flinching under skies no longer storming. Her once bright soul prodded, jabbed and beaten by monkeys, had become a monkey itself a cross-eyed ape wandering in search of whips. Harmed is bad, not harming is bad. This was her secret tattoo, the fuse which seemed to blow, its sparks scattering all clear judgments. In the dense cave of deep despair, the harming hand 
could no longer be recognized as her own. In her mind's eye, Kay had long ago become her own executioner. She shamed herself over her own corpse, her long hair draping over the bruised and bleeding neck. Now a door seemed to open. She started at the sudden light. She covered herself with her own skin and rose red and naked in the opening light. A savior stood in the doorway, perhaps a kind face and outstretched hand. Nothing here but me, she cried. All tormentors took to shadows, and her hand revealed its own whip. How could she stand such perplexed brows, such silent, wondering questions? Who has been wronged here? her judge might ask. I, she would reply, I have been wronged, for I am wrong. What court would take this as an answer? No, this will not do, the judge would laugh, shaking his hoary head, for we are not born to beatings. What stand could she take? Kay had lived in the shadows, the shadows of her mother's cold smile and blurred hands. Her life was darkness. How could she call such a worldwide shadow to the stand? Whose eyes could detect such subtle shifts in light? Would not her judge say, You call the world to the stand, yet you are alone in your cell. Take it yourself. No. In the face of such surrounding shadows, it was better to clap one's hands over one's eyes and become darkness. Moonless cracks lost in the shadows of scars. Who would enter such a landscape? Whose frail lights could find her twisted soul among the rocks? Who would not lean over such a trembling soul and say, You have done this to yourself? We find a soul broken for its noble secrets and weep for its honorable wounds. Souls broken for evil secrets, childish secrets, family secrets find no such pity. The world hears only the squeezing laughter of the self-condemned and turns away in disgust. These inklings darted through Kay's mind as she stared at Lydia. She heard the faint slap of a rope snaking towards her, as if down a deep well, but she felt alone, banished, and shamed herself for falling in. The rope fell complete and lay in tangled coils at her feet. She lowered her head. Excuse me, she said, turning to leave. Wait a moment, said Lydia. I couldn't help but overhear. Kay paused, her legs trembling. It seems to me that you're treating your daughter badly, said Lydia, turning to Lady Barbara. Lady Barbara's breath hissed. May I remind you that you are a guest in this house, she said evenly. Yes, and a guest would be remiss if she did not wake her host on smelling smoke. An entirely inappropriate analogy, said Lady Barbara carefully, her voice spinning on glass. These are private matters. If your daughter was ill, would you turn the physician away on the grounds of secrecy? My daughter is not ill, said Lady Barbara calmly. Are you? asked Lydia, turning to Kay. Are you ill at heart? 
Kay stood rooted on the spot, her eyes darting from Lydia's kind face to her mother's drumming nails. I... she faltered, taking a deep, shuddering breath. I feel a little dizzy. I don't think any mother has the right to speak to her child as you do, Lady Barbara, said Lydia. Lady Barbara rose. I do not have to sit and listen to a stranger, a guest, telling me how to raise my children. I wish you to leave my house. I would be remiss in my duties if I left your house now, said Lydia softly. That was not a request, said Lady Barbara. Yet if I understand your son's position correctly, replied Lydia, you are in no position to do anything other than request. You tramp, whispered Lady Barbara, licking her lips. Do you think you have them so wrapped round your finger? I will not be spoken to in that way. You will keep a civil tongue in your head. Lady Barbara's face turned almost purple. This, this is my house. Even if that were true, it would not excuse your cruelty towards your daughter. Cruelty? This child is senseless. Kay took a step backward, raising her hands. Please. Jonathan entered the room. Lydia? he asked. Not now, Jonathan, said Lydia, not moving her gaze from Lady Barbara's eyes. Jonathan took a look at the triangle and grinned. Ah! Ah, the Valkyrie rides again. Mind if I watch? He asked, leaning against the wall. Jonathan, cried Kay, I'm sorry. He looked at her curiously. For what? This is ridiculous, said Lady Barbara. What did Kay do to deserve such abuse? Asked Lydia. She disobeyed me, cried the old woman. I am disobeying you, said Lydia evenly. Will you abuse me now? I never laid a finger on her. You don't have to. I am disobeying you. Why don't you call me a selfish, pathetic failure? You are a guest. I am not acting like a guest. That is your crime. Why do you not abuse me? Why should I? Why not? You seem to enjoy it. <gasps> that is too much, cried Lady Barbara. I will not be abused. Why is that abuse? asked Lydia. Why? Why, because it is unfair. Oh, you don't have children. You don't understand. You think you're all high and mighty because you can step into a situation and assign blame to whoever you please. But you try raising these children. You try it. They are hopeless. Oh? And who made them that way? Oh, yes, go on, blame the mother. That's what you young people always do. Mothers are always blameless? Asked Jonathan. I was not speaking to you, said Lady Barbara, whirling on him. Jonathan raised his hands. Easy! <laughs> a simple question. You have no right to ask such questions. What responsibilities have you ever taken? Oh, you know me so well. Enough to know that you are acting out of lust for my daughter. Kay turned away, her hands wandering over her ears. You see, cried Lady Barbara, the child cannot even bear the truth. You are too harsh, said Lydia. You bruise these delicacies. Lady Barbara turned to her and smiled. Am I? You wish to corner me, but it will not be so easy. I will speak the truth, though you condemn me for it. I will say that this young layabout is lusting after my daughter, and you, you, are lusting after my son. Is that the truth you wish to hear, or do you prefer your little delicacies? I am attracted to your son, said Lydia. Jonathan? He grinned at Kay. Oh, I think she's right. Definitely. Lydia almost laughed. <laughs> Anything else? Lady Barbara was silent. Then you will listen to me for a moment, continued Lydia. I think you are very unfair. I think that you bully your children. I think, no, I know 
that you will not try bullying me because you are afraid of me. This is not because I am stronger than your daughter, it's because I am not your daughter, thank heavens. If I were, I would be as she is, as you are, Kay. You are not to blame. You are to be congratulated for keeping any sense of yourself. It takes more strength than most have. Kay turned to her mother, lowering her hands. I think, I, I think, I think you do me wrong sometimes, she said, her voice trembling. Lady Barbara's lips curled. How brave you are, child, surrounded by bullies. You do me wrong, said Kay suddenly, passionately. You do me wrong. You prefer your friends to your mother. Very well, let them change your nappies. I wash my hands of you. She glared at Kay for a long, venomous moment, then turned and left the room. Lydia stared at the doorway for a long moment, feeling her heartbeat slowly returning to normal. Well, grinned Jonathan, flopping onto a chair and clasping his hands behind his head. <laughs> I said to myself, bring your lance, but no, I left it with my horse. Need it, don't have it. Have it, don't need it. Story of my life. Lydia turned to Kay. Are you all right? She asked. Kay shook her head numbly. What have you done? She whispered. Do you want to lie down? No. <clears throat> Lawrence and I must, must go to the farm. We have an appointment. He's coming to, 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 to fetch me. Her voice faltered and she leaned dangerously to one side. Whoa, this way! Cried Jonathan, leaping up to catch her as she fainted. Holding her limp body in his arms, he turned to Lydia and grinned. Nice job. What's for lunch? Elephant wrestling. Lydia laughed. You know, I can still stand you sometimes. Thank you. Days of St. George, you know, he said, carrying Kay into the drawing room. They never end. Chapter 30 An Illness Begins to Manifest Lawrence went alone to the village. He was not surprised that his sister had fainted. He had always suspected she was a thinly iced volcano. Lydia offered to accompany him, but he declined, feeling odd about his visit. On his way out, he was surprised to see knotted Bob lurching up the path towards the house. "'Good morning, Bob,' he said, smoothing his hair. "'Fair sunny to ye, good sir,' said the ancient man, stopping and stooping. "'What brings you here?' Came to see the lass,' he said, wiping his face. "'I ain't been myself since the other night. "'How are ye faring?' "'It was a shark. "'How is your arm?' Knotted Bob flexed it, birds scattered, startled. "'We giants popped out when I hit the tree. "'Popped them back in. "'I came for ye. "'No last in arm.' "'How is the village?' "'Jiggers at plotting,' replied Knotted Bob. "'The old town's gone scurvy. "'Children squalling.' Wives staying with their mothers, husbands staying with their drinks. They're all a breath for their lord and master. Lawrence sighed. I'm going to the jiggers now. Need some rope. I'm still considering what to do. The old man's lips tightened. It's a fair breeze today, lord, he murmured, glancing at the sky. They twist well. There was a pause. Lawrence nodded. Thank you. How is the lass? Quite well, all things considered. Has she spoken to ye? Yes. Oh, yes. Tragedic, muttered Knotted Bob. Terrible tragedic. She may be horned, but there's wrong at the roots. Lawrence touched his beard. Horned? 
comes off her like brimstone up the nose. Her heart's as black as a new baby rolled in coal. Maybe red inside. Who's to tell? Who can squint in such caves? Lawrence frowned. Yes, well, I will have to call her to testify against the jiggers. The old man nodded. That's a start. Bleed the venom, I cried. Bleed the venom. It's her only hope. Her only flight from a dark cage, if she wants it. A cloud seemed to hang over the village, a cloud of furtive hope, like the eyes of a child fearing correction from a distracted father. Lawrence nodded at known faces. They did not respond, but turned away to invented tasks. Children ran wild, chasing birds and tormenting cats. Women huddled in groups, gesticulating their voices shrill. A lonely cow lowed in the village square, prodded by shouting boys. A young man ran up to Lawrence, his face red. Lord Carvey, how are you? Well, thank you, nodded Lawrence. Harry, said the youth, bowing awkwardly. Harry Turnpike, I'm the buyer for the jiggers, just back from Tottenham. Yes, sir, just back this morning. Good morning. To just come back, I say. Bad time to have stayed, sir. You understand? What? Yes. Thank you. Have you heard anything? Bits and scraps, sir. Something's underfoot. I don't like the smell. Everyone's talking. What What happened? You will learn soon enough, said Lawrence, turning and walking on. Thank you, sir, cried the youth, waving frantically. Been away. Don't know. You understand? Lawrence felt strange walking up the path to the Jigger's farmhouse. He remembered the night so many years before when he had entered, crisp on the wings of travel and youth to scatter a naked bird to the harsh winds. He knocked on the heavy oak door, hearing the sounds of women crying. He knocked again. After a pause, the door opened to reveal Wife Jigger. Good morning, Wife Jigger, said Lawrence. Her eyes began to stream, and she wiped them with the back of her forearm. God bless you, Lord, and forgive me, she said with a hurried curtsy. Goodness, your grace looks well. I always said you were a handsome steeple. How right I was. How right. Is everything well at the house? What news of the land? Her hand wandered up the doorframe. What is going to happen to my husband? He's a good man, confused, but with a heart of gold. He hasn't said a stitch, trying to preserve me, bless his troubled soul. But I know it's something bad. He must have lost control. I, I, I know he, he, he does. Is it anything we can repair? We have some money. Oh, the crops have been good, bless you. But but we're old now. He doesn't get out much. He, he's got a lot of sorrows. I do what I can. Is, is, is there any chance of us being left in peace? I'm afraid not, said Lawrence. This is a very serious matter. Oh, Lord, serious matters are for men. We have our children to think of and a cat to keep. What passes for serious in men's lives, I have no idea. He won't tell me. The world is a mystery to me, but I've always done right, always done right. I know, murmured Lawrence. You are not part of this, but it cannot go unpunished. He, Wife Jigger raised her hands as if to ward off a blow. No, this is between ye and he. I'll get him. Thank you. The old woman went into the house. Lawrence remembered golden hair and thought she had a daughter, probably gone and married. Wife Jigger returned, wringing her hands apologetically. He's in the garden, sire. Ask me to lead you through. Lawrence nodded and followed her. The house was silent. 
He glanced through a doorway to the empty dining room. His words lurked there. Well, you play your cards right, and you just may go to Italy. Lawrence turned, regarding the doorway he had just passed through. He felt an elemental shiver, recalling the evil of that night when the darkness seemed to glare at him from beyond the door. Farmer Jigger knelt in the garden, uprooting plants. A large pile of torn greenery lay at his feet. Farmer Jigger, said Lawrence, walking towards him. The old man raised his eyes and looked at him. You have come to ensure I leave, said Farmer Jigger slowly. No, said Lawrence. I have come to... to... You must be tried. Tried. I'm not going to banish you. I'm going to try you. All of you. His words seemed to have no effect on the old man. He merely turned his hands over regarding the hair on the back of his fingers. Supposing you tell me what this be about, he said finally, squinting up at Lawrence. You tried to murder a young woman, said Lawrence. You and at least a dozen others, this cannot go unpunished. Farmer Jigger held his gaze for a long moment, then nodded slowly. Oh, I set them up, he said. It was my idea. They obeyed me, because I hold the reins here. If they hadn't obeyed me, I would have done them all in. Lawrence blinked. They, they are responsible for their actions. Aye, said the old man slowly. As you were for yours. Excuse me? Ye be our lord. That is the way of the world. But ye brought vermin into our town. Ye lose stealing drunken scum on us. My barn was burned down. I stand by my actions. Why not come to me? Because ye were bewitched. Ye are still, I know the signs. The witch has you. She took your sister, then she took ye. What, witch Mary? Don't speak her name on my property, if ye please, said Farmer Jigger, standing painfully and crossing himself. She's not a witch, Farmer Jigger, regarded him almost compassionately. You were a good master, sire. You always did good by us, more than most. We loved you. Then you turned on us. What were we to do? If you were unhappy, you should have come to me. You should have respected the law. Ye be the law, sire. Ye did this to us. Ye did not come to us. Should I have trotted to London and pleaded my pains with the king? I would have done anything to prevent this. Ye did it to begin with. You should not have taken the law into your own hands. So now ye must take the law into your hands. Make an example of me. Hang me from the highest tree if ye've a mind, but leave the others alone. Don't barren our lands, Lord. None will profit. You will all receive a fair trial. Farmer Jigger scowled I at your hands with the witch whispering into your ear. I am not built for pleading. All I can offer is myself. Leave the others be. Lawrence paused. His skin twitched just below an eye. I cannot, he said. Who says so? The witch? No, my mother, thought Lawrence suddenly, and the thought sent shivers down his spine. Come with me now, he said. I offer no fight, but can I clear up my affairs first? I, I, I have family. 
How long do you need? I will be done by sundown. I, I will come to the square. Very well. Lawrence left the farmhouse with a heavy heart. What have I been doing? He thought, walking aimlessly down the rutted road. He had always prided himself on his relationship with his subjects. Now he had to hang one of them, possibly more. Of course, it's not all strawberries in Italy. Still, he could only half shake the wish that Mary was far away. He imagined her out of his life. Then it struck him that, for her, being far away from him meant being far away from his protection. And her image rose in his mind, half starved, sleeping in ditches, vulnerable, hopeless, mad. And he sighed, realizing that she was also his responsibility. Oh, when I lived for myself, he thought, my time was my own. How impossible his life seemed to have become. Yet she did not provoke the attack. She only wanted to help the unfortunate. Perhaps she is the herald of a new age of caring, and like any herald she has to face the anger of those who shake before her sudden trumpets. Lost in his thoughts, he did not hear the voice at first. Lord Lawrence, called Adam again. Lawrence turned and saw the merchant walking towards him. He was smiling. Lord Lawrence, he cried, waving his wide-brimmed hat. Where is that sister of yours? She, she was taken ill this morning, replied Lawrence. Case of maternal flu. What a shame. Serious? Mm, just temporary. I was told you were coming to the jiggers. What happened? Town's gone all headless. Two nights ago, Mary was assaulted and almost killed by the men of the village. What? cried Adam. Is she all right? He didn't ask why, thought Lawrence. Yes, barely. I, I came to arrange for the trial of Farmer Jigger and perhaps a dozen others. Adam whistled. <whistles> Badness, he muttered, then brightened. I, I don't suppose this will cheer you up any, but you should come to the workhouse. What's happened? I think it's better seen than spoken, said Adam. They walked for a time in silence. Lawrence felt a sudden urge to confide in the young merchant. There was something elementally healthy about him, like the feeling he got from Lydia, but without any of the complications. He imagined a clear, confident response, an unbiased solution to all his problems. Yet the man was of a different world. With power over others comes responsibility for others, Lawrence imagined him saying. If you want to change places, I will hang them high and sleep deep. They approached a low building of rough wood set in a barren field. Birds circled overhead, confused and squawking. They put this up in one day, said Adam. I never would have expected it. God, but they grumbled. I had to oversee every nail. Fell down once, but we fixed it. Where did you get the materials? I ordered them from London while I was there, along with the looms. They came yesterday morning. Now we can work in the rain. Good job, said Lawrence, with a slight shudder. Am I coming down with something? They stopped outside the building. The miracle's not the outside, but the inside, said Adam. I may owe your sister an apology. I didn't expect this. Show me, said Lawrence. Adam opened the wide door with a flourish. It took Lawrence's eyes a moment to adjust to the dark interior. He squinted. Then his eyes cleared. What he saw astounded him. 
Chapter 31. Half a Confession. Your legs? asked knotted Bob. He sat beside Mary in the guest room, stirring his tea. They will heal, she murmured. I will be scarred, but only skin deep. She smiled. I can still be lovely. I wish I could have done more, said the old man. Time was in my sapling days. I could have felled them with a plank. Thought at first they just meant to scare ye. Mary glanced at him. They didn't. Aye, you're a very portrait of courage. No, it's true. I was not afraid. I, I thought if they kill me, I could never have succeeded. If I live, I will almost certainly succeed. Succeed in what? Why, my plan, smiled Mary. Shouting down a well, he gains only an echo, said Knotted Bob, and less light. Mary laughed. <laughs> you are very quaint. What plan? he repeated. Why, power over life and death, said Mary. The good Lord has the monopoly, said Knotted Bob slowly. Which Lord do you mean? asked Mary, the one in heaven, the one who looks into your soul and knows all its hidings, the one that says, turn the other cheek. Oh, that one! Well, it seems that only applies to some. Say, you really want to know? Say, and I'll reply. Mary reached behind her and plumped her pillow. Did Lawrence ever have to turn the other cheek? Never mind. It's rhetorical. Some are born with the power of life or death. If you cross them, you die. She half closed her eyes. Or, more accurately, they try to kill you. What they don't know is that the power of life or death is only twofold. Let live or let die. For sure as sunrise, if what they let die lives, their power becomes a two-edged sword. Their supposed ghosts return with tangible chains. He was young, a sapling barely with beard, Mary smiled, which is why I had to leave. Now he is a man with a man's sense of right and wrong, which is why I was able to return. What be your tomorrows? You're skirting something fierce. The good Lord in heaven, he loves to test the faithful. Sometimes he tests them with plagues, sometimes with hunger, sometimes with war, and sometimes with people. When I wandered in the wilderness, I was visited by a voice. It said, You shall be the test of these times. <laughs> yes, you may widen your eyes. You think that these are only tales. Yet God lives eternally. He speaks eternally. Nodded Bob frowned, rubbing his face. I perhaps. Do you remember I once said, I will rage against God, asked Mary. Nodded Bob nodded. I thought at the time that God had cast me out, she continued. This was hatred. Then I thought, society cast me out. This was vanity. Then I thought, Lawrence cast me out. And this was wisdom. Tell me, do you ever think that there is something terribly wrong with the world? Do you ever think this is not how it's supposed to be? Nodded Bob, looked at his hands. I be a man. No, said Mary. You be a wronged man. 
The wrong of the world lives in the excluded, the exiled, the poor, the violated. I thought, if I do not fit the world, the world must fit me. I must bend it to my will. I, your conceit, drown me, cried the old man, crossing himself. Survival is not vanity, said Mary. I will not be condemned for wanting to live. Something had to give, the world or me. I resolved, not me. All this, the voice spoke. Mary smiled. No, of course not. God does not give answers. That would take away the miracle. The miracle is how we respond to his questions. Ah, too oily. The word you want is sophist, but I'm no sophist. I may be slippery. I'm not oily. I thought, if the world is to give way, it must recognize me. And if it recognizes me, it must recognize the banished, the poor. And will you tell me with a straight face that this was not Christ's message to the world? Knotted Bob looked down and shook his head. I will take that as a yes. I know how galling it is to be corrected. Then the question arose. How can the world see the exiled? Being in the wilderness, I had ample time to think on this. Then it hit me. The world can only see the exiled by being exiled itself. I'm no bright spot. You've lost me, said Knotted Bob, looking up. Mary smiled. If the world says, I am exiled, it recognizes itself in all exiles. Suddenly the power of, of wealth, position, and privilege fall away, or are revealed for what they are, for what they have always been, an illusion. We all have the same destination. We're all born of the same mothers. We all drift from dust to dust. Everything in between is just imagination. Does St. Peter guard the pearly gates with the words, did you have the power of life and death? No. He says, did you use your power for good? I was born with a kind of power, perhaps the greatest power. I can penetrate the hearts of men and women. I can see into their souls. Aye, perhaps, you've uncanny eyes, but can they turn on yourself? Mary waved a hand. Oh, I know myself perfectly. Could I have survived in a state of ignorance? No, ignorance kills. She almost smiled, or, or tries to. No, my power is greater than any sword. I know that men will do anything rather than face the truth of their crimes. I know their crimes, thus I can bend them to my will. No, not my will, I saw that look. The will of the good, God's will, if you like. What be their crimes? Crime, corrected Mary. There is only one crime in the world, stumbler of secrets. Brighten me. Why, the wish to have what we have not earned. Look at the thief. He, he steals what he will not earn. The man who lies for love, a thief of hearts. The braggart, a thief of courage. The liar, a thief of truth. The priest, a thief of authority. Only God has authority. Aye. And the bright sparks, thieves of darkness. Yo, you're close. <laughs> Very close. But you cannot see, said Mary, glancing at him quickly. Intelligence is dangerous. Being intelligent does not make others stupid, but it does make them gullible. Thus the intelligent person can make them do wrong for the sake of goodness. How does one define goodness? Mary leaned back and stared at the ceiling. 
closing her eyes. Ah, that's the whole secret. Make a man think something is good, and he is yours. He cannot stand against you. You only have to remind him, and you control him as surely as if you wear his skin. Ah, but you must be patient. These vines grow strong but slow. Remind him of the good. He will flail at you, at what you provoke him to do, at the destruction of his illusions, but because you are only telling him what he already believes, he cannot fight you. He can only fight you by fighting himself. And what is the risk in that? Everyone around him is saying the same thing. Sacrifice, sacrifice. He needs to sacrifice himself, but no one tells him how. Tell him how. Show him the cliff. And you need not move a muscle. He will jump himself. And on the rocks below, he will find his good. Knotted Bob stood, his brow dark. Ye have not changed. Ye be the same devil I knew at first, he growled. Mary looked at him. Her eyes widened. Good God, Bob, I'm speaking of the danger of intelligence. Do you think you can harm a man by appealing to his goodness? You show me a truly good man, and I will show you a man beyond the power of evil. I only remind people of the virtue of sacrifice, and I'm not the first. Calvary was the last, the greatest such example. Did Christ try to gain the power of life and death? No, it was offered, but he refused. He took the power of salvation, which was only proper. He said, cast off your riches and follow me. Here Lawrence lives in his little mansion, and the cost of one of his dinner plates could feed a family for a month. I say to him, care for the exiled, or be exiled from goodness. These are not my words. They come from God himself. I, I only remind. I do not command. That is not my place. I am only mortal. This is what the voice spoke. You will be the test of the times. The men of these times think that good China is more important than feeding their fellow man. Will you condemn me for reminding them that this is not so? He speak truth. I hear it in my ears, said Knotted Bob, still standing. But my heart says, you are false. I did not invent this goodness, said Mary. I only apply it. For whose gain? For death's gain. For the knowledge of better after death. For the goodness of death, of everlasting life. Something's rotten, something's twisted, something's flapping in the wind, said Knotted Bob. But I can't sniff it out. No, said Mary softly, because you believe in the same good. And ye, do ye, do I what? Do ye believe in sacrifice? What a question, <laughs> cried Mary, clapping her hands. I'm enforcing it, aren't I? Chapter 32. The Cost of Charity. Lawrence stared at the interior of the workshop. He blinked, shocked, at the sense of concentration that hung in the dusty air. Eyes stared, hands whirred, no jokes or curses cut the air. Even the children, too young to work, sat silently in corners, watching the activity in bewildered awe. "'You see?' cried Adam. Lawrence looked at the faces. They seemed completely unrelated to the scurvy portraits of human destruction he had first seen. They had been washed, fed... Their hair had been painfully combed. They seemed like schoolchildren bent over their first lesson. 
Then he saw, near the back of the building, the red-headed man who had spat at him. He carried something. Lawrence could not make it out. That's Jake, said Adam, a wizard of order. What's that in his hand? His magic, smiled the merchant. A Bible? No, said Adam, a whip. What? You want the results? You have to apply the pressure. They're not used to this. Is that what other managers use? No, said Adam slowly. Other managers only hire those that want to work. They'll get used to it. See them when they've had their first taste of real coin. Then they'll know what's good for them. Any trouble so far? asked Lawrence, gazing at the scene. None worth writing home about. They listen to him, said Adam, which is more than I expected. I don't like it, said Lawrence. Come outside, sir, if you please, said Adam. We're within earshot. They stepped outside. Lawrence shielded his eyes from the sudden sun. I don't like it, Mr. Footer, he repeated. You wouldn't let me hire any others, replied Adam. You're full of compassion, that's admirable, but compassion shouldn't elbow common sense. You want to mix charity with business, that's your business. But when you hire me to get a job done, it becomes my business. I do what I have to. Has anyone been beaten? Adam paused. Yes. Who? A few who wanted to go play. I offered them the chance to leave. Hell, I can't really offer that. They can stroll at any time. They want the money. I have to make sure they earn it. Now they're earning it. Look, when I approached the farmers with better ways of doing things, said Lawrence, there were those who didn't want to change. I I showed some. They succeeded. And the others came around. It took time, but I was patient. I didn't beat them. This is what I keep saying. I'm sorry if I haven't been clear, sir. You were dealing with farmers, working souls to a man. They knew what was what. This lot, said Adam, jabbing his thumb at the workshop, wouldn't know an honest day's work if it slapped them in the face. You wanted this lot. You said, these are your workers. Lord, I'd have preferred farmhands. They're not used to this kind of work, but they're used to work. This is a kind of contract. They don't work, they're breaking the contract. As I said, they can stroll into the sunset any time they please. How many did you beat? Tell me the truth. Twelve? Thirteen? I wasn't counting. And I never laid a finger on them, not my line. Women? Only three, replied Adam. As a whole, they're more sensible. Lawrence paused. He looked over the fields in the bright distance, remembering the feeling of strident life he had striding over them, explaining his theories. The faces, well, of course they had been suspicious, but he could appeal to them. He needed no whips. He could press plenty into such fists until they opened of their own accord. This is wrong, he murmured, closing his eyes. What's wrong? asked Adam. They're a swarthy lot, but things are going hummingly now. A week ago, they probably robbed grannies. Now they're working like real people. Not not my choice, but better than nothing. I am hanging a man for attempted murder tonight, thought Lawrence, and condoning whippings on my own land. He ran his fingers through his hair. No more beatings, he said, turning to the merchant. Then let me hire my own men, replied Adam. No, said Lawrence, we will help these people. Everyone here takes the place of an honest man with a family to feed. What about them? We can't help everyone at once. Then why not help those who deserve it? They can help themselves. That's not true. I know a hundred good men without work. They'd give us no trouble. We'd need no whips. Lawrence felt a tension in his chest. We are helping these people, he said, his voice rising, without whips. I have a reputation, replied Adam. These looms are my ticket. Word gets out. They don't make money. I'm sunk. No more beatings. 
Adam regarded Lawrence for a moment, then lowered his head. I'm afraid, then, he said slowly, that our relationship is at an end. I will hire someone else. I cannot leave my looms here. I will pay twice their value. I cannot sell them to you. If they don't produce, word will get out. Damn it! Is it so hard to be good? He looked away, clenching his jaw. All right, he said finally. One week. You may discipline them for one more week. After that, no more. Adam paused, considering. Adam paused, considering. If I think they are not ready after a week, I will leave with my looms. That will be your decision, said Lawrence. Now I must go. I have about a hundred legal books to go through before the trial tonight. Adam said goodbye and watched him go. He sighed, turned and went back into the factory. As he walked along the rows of downcast heads, he seemed to pull a strange tide behind him. Ahead of him, they worked silently. In his wake, they raised bitter eyes and watched his back. Chapter 33 A Hopeful Rebuke Pride has brought violence to our land, shouted Father Jones. The villagers shifted. They had never seen him so angry. Their womb of comfort had become a bed of nettles. The priest paced before the altar. A helpless woman has been attacked under our very noses as we slept by some who may be present, he cried, glaring at the congregation. Do we learn nothing from the Bible? Do we learn nothing from Christ? Was he not also provoked? Did he leap at Pontius Pilate and strangle him for his evil? No. He placed his faith in God and submitted quietly to all injustice. But that's not good enough for us, is it? No, we do not have to turn the other cheek. We do not listen to the holy words. If your brother sins against you, go and speak with him. No, we can avenge ourselves. We can fire ourselves up and turn on the helpless with hatred in our hearts. Father Jones stopped at his podium and mopped his forehead with a handkerchief. There is no doubt that an evil has come among us, he said. Godless souls have entered our village. They steal, curse, and spit. They cannot be reasoned with. They have no faith. They are not helpless outcasts, but violent rebels. But my brothers, they have been placed here to test us. If we feel Lord Lawrence has sinned against us, we must submit to his authority. His will is not ours to question. We may not take the law into our own hands. We may not tear a woman from her bed and try to murder her in cold blood. My brothers, look at the evil you have unleashed. Where was your patience? Where was your charity? Where was your faith? You have taken heavy burdens on your souls, each and every one of you who knew of these foul dealings. Your hands are stained with blood. The congregation sat, their faces drained. Now we must pay a heavy price, said Father Jones. Having forgotten the humility of Christ, we must now submit to the justice of this world. Now we must watch our fellows be tried for their crimes 
and probably pay the highest penalty. I know that there are those among you who see this as an injustice. I know that there are those among you who will see this as Mary O'Donnell's doing, who will harbor hatred for the poor orphan. I know you are present, and I say to you, there will be no more injustice in our lands. If you nurture hatred to this outcast, to this poor woman, you blacken your souls in the eyes of Almighty God. Father Jones stopped suddenly. He took a deep breath. <sighs> Hard times are upon us, brothers. We are being tested. We must be strong. That is all. There will be no singing today. Chapter 34 The Teeth of Privilege Lawrence could find no forgiveness, the last which had been legally burned almost a hundred years before. The practice of prosecuting witches had come to an end half a century later when Chief Justice Holt had set the precedent of prosecuting anyone who complained of being bewitched on the grounds of fraud. The pretense of witchcraft was still a punishable offence, but it required the active impersonation of a witch, and as Mary had shown no predilection for black hats, cats or broomsticks, there was no escape for Farmer Jigger and the others. It was attempted murder, pure and simple. Lawrence had sent for Orson Andrews, his bailiff, to come and discuss the case. By late afternoon, Lawrence was perusing old cases more as a distraction than anything else. Bailiff Andrews was shown into the library. "'Good afternoon, Mr. Andrews,' said Lawrence, rising. "'Afternoon, Lord.' replied Bailiff Andrews slowly. Bailiff Andrews had a stern face. No, it was more than stern. It was stone. It had all the animation of an arthritic tree. He wore large clothes over his shapeless body, looking for all the world like a statue, abandoned in despair, standing in a dusty workshop while the sculptor strove to drink himself into oblivion for failing to make it lifelike. The villagers had long ago learned to respect the face of Orson Andrews. Its impassivity held firm like an enemy in dreams. It accepted no bribes, returned no smiles, and favoured no man over precedent. Lawrence almost hesitated to offer him a seat. The man didn't appear able to bend. "'I've just returned from Trenton,' said the bailiff. Sam Weatherspoon has told me Farmer Jigger is now in my custody. The trial is set for this evening. What do you know about witch trials? Never seen one. Can't be done nowadays. Was that regret in his voice? wondered Lawrence. What is your opinion? he asked. Bailiff Andrews stared at the young man as if only now realizing he had to have one. This was an illusion, of course. The Andrews had been bailiffs for many generations. Their knowledge of common law was impressive. Well, he said eventually, we have a thorn. Capital crimes are hard on a village. No villager has been hung for murder since the days of Yarwood Andrews, over a hundred years ago. No member of the village council has been found guilty of a serious crime in living memory. 
Last was John Mudder, fined eight shillings for letting his pigs run wild. We'll have no problem with the jury. Don't need one. He was caught red-handed. The problem is not Farmer Jigger. He must hang. The problem is the others with him. The Twelve. What should we do? The problem is that they haven't confessed, and probably won't. We could get the confessions out of them, but that would be messy. Their trial would have to be by jury. Since most of them are likely to be council members, it would have to be a dozen poor folk judging council members. There are only four witnesses. Four? Myself, Mary O'Donnell, Nodded Bob, and Farmer Jigger, sir. Of course. He won't testify. He'll hang anyway, and he's got his pride. So that leaves Miss O'Donnell, Nodded Bob, and yourself. Nodded Bob is out. His eyes are squinty. You? It was dark. They, they all crashed off into the bushes when I arrived. Could you tell any by sight? Not surely enough to hang them. Then that leaves Miss O'Donnell. Have you asked her what she saw? I... Uh, uh, no, no. Bailiff Andrews looked at Lawrence as if to say, Why? Too busy in your library? The young man was never quite sure if he got along with his bailiff. L let's assume... That she can identify the men, said Lawrence. What then? Bailiff Andrews almost blinked. Then we have another thorn, sir. What do you mean? She can't stay here if she reveals the twelve. She would be more than shunned. So if she tells who was there and no alibis, we have to hang them. Twelve families will have to be cared for. A new village council will have to be elected from scratch. Now, we both know that Miss O'Donnell is a very unusual person, never seen her kind before, hopefully never will again. But the purpose of law is not only to punish, but also to prevent. There is little fear of a repeat offence if she leaves. She will tell, she will go, and we will have to pick up the pieces. I can't see the point in hanging the whole council. But they did wrong, I. You have a fact there. But you also did wrong. How? By bringing in the thieves, without asking. Is that what the villagers feel? It's what they know, sir, corrected Bailiff Andrews. I have received over a dozen complaints of thieving in the last two days. We're going to have to try your workers as well when we have some evidence. This will be very difficult. There are few witnesses. All the villagers know is that these people came and their goods started disappearing. Who can we pin this on? How can justice be served? The villagers want these people gone. I know, said Lawrence. But they will also be bringing a lot of money into the village. The, the, the cloth they make will be sold for good gold. The people have no need for more wealth just now. They're still getting used to what they've got. But the fact remains, these men did wrong. They were provoked, replied the bailiff. They felt... They had no one to turn to. You seemed to change from sundown to sun up. They took matters into their own hands. I say, we hang Jigger and leave the other parties in peace to learn their lesson. Lawrence paused for a moment, then shook his head. I, I, I cannot agree to that. They, they were involved in a capital offense. I believe we should put Mary on the stand. If she can identify the men involved, we must punish them. Not necessarily by death. If we put Miss O'Donnell on the stand, said Bailiff Andrews, 
we have to put you on the stand. Why? It was dark. It was dark for you both. She was afraid, confused. She thought she was going to die. She would have if you had not arrived. We cannot hang men on such single evidence. It must be corroborated. Not that Bob may have recognized the voices? He had just woken up. The men were angry, shouting. It isn't enough. We are talking capital crime. Why don't you want to take the stand? Lawrence paused. I don't know. I won't ask. But can you ask Miss O'Donnell to do what you will not? She was almost killed. She will want to tell the truth. I wouldn't be so sure of that, thought Lawrence. You will have to rule here long after she has gone, continued the bailiff. We cannot justly be sure of the twelve. We may punish some. We cannot punish all. Those that remain will be difficult. I say we treat them as one person. We cannot convict all, so we should not convict any. Their wives, their families, the whole village will swear they were at home that night anyway. It will be a long, ugly business, and I cannot see the profit in it. Strange workings made this crime. When Miss O'Donnell leaves, she takes her workings with her. Do you think she's a witch? asked Lawrence. Bailiff Andrews smiled. Almost. I wouldn't leave my son in her care, he said slowly. The village gathered early for the trial. The evening air hung heavily. It had been a long time since a public trial. A faithless woman had been whipped five years before. A wandering thief hung a decade before that. Children were excited, breathless, chasing each other among the huddled groups of parents. Chairs were brought for the elderly. Crones sat in silence, attended by their daughters. Old men sat and retold stories of old crimes. There was a strangeness about the gathering. Tales of dark magic and ancient superstitions flowed through the measured murmurs. In the soft light of dusk, the comfortable lines of contented faces seemed to melt away, revealing lean masks of fear and want. It had been over a decade since the last real famine. The echoes were present tonight. The men who had participated in Mary's lynching were there. They had had a hurried meeting at Farmer Jigger's house after Lawrence had left, and received assurances of anonymity. It was deemed suicidal to not attend. Among the twelve, there was a sense of slow, grinding panic. The men had sat and scowled at their tables all day, drinking steadily. Their wives had sent the children away and faced their wrath alone. They were particularly silent tonight, standing beside their men and shifting their weight from their bruises. There was an elemental sense of intrusion in the air. Farmer Jigger was the most powerful citizen in the county. He seemed such an elemental soul that lightning should strike him harmlessly. Now he was to be hung. There was a sick certainty about this, and the village no longer seemed self-contained. A sword was striking from elsewhere. Just after sundown, the torches were lit. An ancient scaffold was dragged out and set up. 
Bailiff Andrews oversaw the erection of a simple podium and witness stand. Farmer Jigger was brought out. He stood erect, his eyes locked straight ahead. Wife Jigger shuffled into the crowd. Women looked at her sympathetically. A few patted her arm, and she burst into tears. Kay arranged for the stable hands to carry Mary from Lawrence's house. Mary was positioned in a chair at the edge of the village square, her face immobile, her eyes almost supernaturally alert. Kay sat beside her, holding her hand. Villagers crossed themselves and turned away. Father Jones also came. He circulated among the villagers, but his words of comfort fell on hard ground. You are not of this world, said their closed faces. You can provide no comfort. Jonathan and Lydia did not come. Lawrence had asked them not to. They went for a walk, leaving Lady Barbara at home by herself. Lawrence dressed up for the occasion more than he wanted to, but less than his mother wanted him to. He stood in the centre of the square. His normal jocularity and ease with the villagers had disappeared. They respected his need for an authoritarian mask and gave him a wide berth. Finally, Bailiff Andrews stood up on the platform. Charges brought against Farmer Jigger, he began without ceremony. Breaking into Knotted Bob's house, attempted murder, resisting arrest, incitement to crime, destruction of property under forty shillings. For all these crimes, penalty, death by hanging. Farmer Jigger, he said, turning to the old man, how do you plead? Farmer Jigger stood taller for a moment, almost sniffing the air. He looked at Lawrence, who returned his gaze without expression. He looked at his wife, and his right cheek twitched. Twelve men's jaws in the crowd tightened. "'How do you plead?' repeated the bailiff. "'Are there any charge with me?' demanded Farmer Jigger. "'Are you confessing to others being with you?' asked Bailiff Andrews. "'Damn it! We know there were!' I have offered to take this crime upon myself. I done it, that is common knowledge. But I will fight if you try to drag others into it. I made them do it. The law does not recognize that, replied Bailiff Andrews. You have confessed to the crime, and thus we continue with your plea of guilty. Old! I don't say the words! You confessed, replied the bailiff. You said, I have done it. You are guilty by your own admission. Damn you, Orson Andrews, cried Farmer Jigger. I take this crime, but others shan't. The law does not recognize that. Damn your law, shouted the old farmer. Twelve pairs of eyes glanced furtively at each other. We know that others were involved, said Bailiff Andrews, turning to the crowd. We know that probably a dozen men standing in this square were party to this crime. Do any confess their wrong before this court and God? Silence. I ask again. Do any confess their wrong before this court and God? Silence. 
one could almost hear the moonlight fall. We cannot let this wrong pass unpunished, said Bailiff Andrews finally, turning to the stand. He placed a black cloth over his head. Farmer Jigger, you are sentenced to death by hanging. Do you have anything to say? The old man turned, glared at Lawrence, then shook his head slowly. Mary O'Donnell, cried Bailiff Andrews, turning to her. Can you see any men who were here that night? Mary sat up, helped by Kay. The hatred in the air was almost tangible, though whether it came from the villagers or from Mary was unclear. I knew a farmer jigger, she said. I I grew up in his house. The other men, their faces were were twisted. I I could not see them well. Only one other did I recognize. Who was that? John Mutter, said Mary, her voice strangely restrained. John Mutter, the boy who had tortured her as a child, who became a young mayor through the machinations of Farmer Jigger. John Mutter, stand, commanded Bailiff Andrews. There was a short pause. John is not here tonight, said one of the men. Why? He is dead. A murmur ran through the crowd. Dead? How? He was blinded by the witch and he died, said the man. The crowd stirred. The fact had been named. Kay placed a hand on Mary's trembling leg. There will be no more talk of witches, cried Lawrence, turning on them. The next soul to speak of witches will be fined for perjury. Lawrence, ye be under a spell, said Farmer Jigger. Have a care what ye speak. I will be gone. You will remain. There are no witches, cried Lawrence. Aye. Now they can be caught for cats. So they carry no cats, replied the old man. But still they breathe. They used to curse. Now they whisper. That's enough, said Bailiff Andrews. Is it confirmed that John Mudder is dead? Aye, murmured several voices. May his soul rest in peace, said Father Jones, crossing the air. Are there none else that you spy true? Bailiff Andrews asked Mary. Mary turned and stared at the crowd. Her eyes rested here and there. She held the gaze of each of the guilty men for a long moment, then shook her head slowly. None, she said softly. I have no wish to condemn unjustly. The villagers muttered, confused. Twelve men let out a long breath. Bailiff Andrews stared at Mary for a moment, then nodded. So be it, he said. He turned to Farmer Jigger. Are your affairs in order? They are, replied the farmer, glaring at Mary. Does anyone have anything to say before I record the sentence? asked Bailiff Andrews, turning to the crowd. I do, said Mary. Lawrence looked at her, alarmed. No, he cried silently. Mary leaned forward from the chair and stood in a sudden lurch, her face still, her eyes agonized. I may not stay here long, 
she said through clenched teeth. So I wish to speak to the villagers, because I do not wish any more harm to come to them. You have that right, said Bailiff Andrews. I was not attacked, <clears throat> because I am a witch, said Mary, her voice steadying. I was attacked, because I brought change upon your heads. You do not know this yet, and perhaps your children will not even know it, but you are on the threshold of a new world. Your full harvest, red cheeks, the lives of your children are all witnesses to that new world. It will be a beautiful world for those who have it. Mary paused. Lawrence could feel the crowd's generosity. They had seen Mary's decision not to name the twelve. They would listen to anything. Mary glanced at Farmer Jigger's hard face. For those still in need, she continued with a smile, the world remains as dangerous as it was for your fathers. You raise cups to toast your plenty. Souls still die of thirst beyond your borders. I was attacked because I have drawn your attention to those without your blessings. You still think that your wealth hangs by a thread. I am telling you that you are secure in your power, and that, being secure, your duty is to provide a little for those still in want. You complain of theft by the poor, yet they steal what you did not even possess four years ago. The greatest danger of this new world is greed. You do not see that you have more than enough to live, thus you hoard what you do not need while those around you starve. This regards not the deed, said Bailiff Andrews. I am almost finished, replied Mary, and, and then I will speak no more. My crime, that the crime I was punished for was reminding you of your duty to others. You did not wish to hear me. You thought only of theft. How little they mean to you, these scraps that have been stolen, yet how much to the poor. Farmer Jigger attacked me because he feared what I asked for. That was his choice. I will not speak of that. Farmer Jigger's eyes seemed to recede into his head. His cheeks flushed a deep purple. I will not be the last to ask for simple kindness, continued Mary. Others will come, for, for we are part of this new world. We must be patient with the farmer jiggers of this world, for they were raised in a world of want, and have not the sense to know when their bellies are full enough, not the sense to know that they can afford a little generosity, not the sense to know that their day is past, not the sense to know... Mary's driving voice was cut off by a roar from the old man. He strode out from behind the dark, racing towards Mary, his bound hands outstretched, his face black with rage. "'Ye scurvy or he shouted. "'Ye dark child of the devil! This prize was mine!' The crowd parted before him, eyes wide. Mothers grabbed the wrists of flying children. Mary stared at the man charging at her through the avenue of bodies, her thin frame erect, motionless. Kay grabbed a rock at her feet, senselessly. Lawrence leapt forward, pushing through the bodies, shouting, "'Husband, no!' sobbed wife Jigger. Bailiff Andrews took a step forward, but stopped, suddenly squinting. Standing in front of Mary was a group of men. Ten? Eleven? Twelve? You couldn't tell. Part slaves! shouted the old man, trying to reach past them. That's enough, Jigger, said one of the men, blocking him. You will stand and watch while she spits on my ending. Your part is played. 
Farmer Jigger glared at the set faces. The men could see the struggle in his eyes. Will I tell? Sam Weatherspoon parted his coat and displayed the hilt of a dagger. Your memory will be honoured, he said softly. Like hell, snarled the old man, jabbing his finger at Mary. Ye be yours now. You were wrong. Go quietly, said another man evenly, and your family will be cared for. The old man stared at them, his hands clenched in fists of helpless rage. Farmer Jigger, you are sentenced to death by hanging for your crimes, said Bailiff Andrews. Ye are crows, plain and simple, cried Farmer Jigger, his chest heaving. I was defending my own. Who is he that can watch the ruin of his house without anger? Who in this crowd would have cursed my success? Yeah, an evil has come upon us, the evil of this woman, he shouted, pointing at Mary. Is there no man here with enough courage to call this stench evil? Now, I am no learned man, but I know what's what. I know what's what. If you die unrepentant, said Father Jones, pushing through the crowd. You will burn in hell. Repent, brother. Repent and be with God. Aye, said the old farmer, turning slowly towards him. With him, I can plead my case. He knows the black heart of this woman. Do not try to take his place. Repent, brother. Farmer Jigger's face contorted. His titanic will strained against the dictates of eternity. His chest heaved. His hands opened slowly. I, I repent my wrongs, he murmured, glancing at Mary, his eyes like deep pits. But hope for no forgiveness. Go in peace, brother, said Father Jones, crossing him. Farmer Jigger turned and walked slowly through the avenue of bodies towards the scaffold. Lawrence watched him go, remembering that fateful evening years before, when the old man had rushed to his defense against Mary's angry condemnation. How silly it seemed. She was just a child. Now look at her revenge. No, not revenge, he caught himself. Justice. He remembered the endless pies wife Jigger had sent him when he was young, how he had hidden them under his bed and refused his mother's spongy desserts. He remembered ladies, trembling, almost luminous beauty. He remembered the happy house of milkmaids and children. It seemed a lifetime ago, a different world and easier, simpler season. Farmer Jigger slowly mounted the scaffold. Two men tied his hands behind his back. The old man raised his eyes and stared over the crowd to Mary's white face. If I am unjust, we shall soon meet, he said softly. One of the men yanked a lever and the trap door opened beneath the old man. He fell heavily. The crack of his neck echoed across the still faces. His legs twitched, his body turned, his eyes rolled, his breath rasped twice. 
then stopped. The sudden silence echoed over the still faces of the watchers. Justice is done, said Bailiff Andrews. Mary smiled and touched her heart. Chapter 35 A Gentle Curse Jonathan and Lydia watched from a hill. They saw the dropping jolt of the old farmer's body. They sat in silence for a long time. I would have tried my luck with Squire Pounder, said Jonathan finally, rising and offering his hand. Come on, we should get back. How strange it has all become, said Lydia, taking his hand and standing. Tell me, are you in love with Kay? Jonathan smiled. <laughs> it would take a longer crowbar than I have to pry her from her nettled nest. She stood. She is strong. Well, that's true. I wonder if we have not been enormously lucky. The more I see of the world, the more I realize how lucky those without mad parents are. It's like a plague. Who did we bribe in a past life? Lydia did not reply. Are you sad? Yes, she said. I cannot wait till my father arrives. Tomorrow? Tomorrow night. He is quite the cleft. What are you and I to do, fellow Dodger? <laughs> we should start a club for the children of happy parents, he sighed. I suppose you and I would do. He is lost, said Lydia. I, I must free him. Jonathan took a quick, deep breath. <sighs> you are not made for such missions, he said, turning to her. You helped Kay. She is troubled. Yes, but she knows it. He doesn't. He is a most dangerous creature, a man convinced he's in the right. You could saw the knees off his loved ones, and he wouldn't bat an eye, not deep down. He has the excuse of ethics. Oh, I've seen it before. Not in the mirror. No, I, I know ethics. From experience? The experience of others. You show me a good man who doesn't end up hating the world. My father. Your father is not a man. He's it's an emissary of the gods. You're so ridiculous. He spoiled you for mortals. No, said Lydia. That's not true. Oh? Then who have you loved? Lydia paused. No man has been equal to my father. Jonathan frowned. And now your first flush is for a man so bloodless that he doesn't even know he has someone hanging off his neck. What does she feed on? Dirt and worms? I, I don't want to speak of that, murmured Lydia, glancing up at the dark shape of the approaching mansion. Wait, you've given me enough advice in my time. Stand still a moment. He turned to her, his face suddenly serious. I like Kay. Don't ask me why. Even crushed petals are natural. They can unfold. But they have to know they're crushed. She hates her mother. It's survival for her, not ethics. She wants to live. I have access to her. She will fight me, but she will only be fighting her desire. There's hope. I am only fighting twenty-odd years. I can win. You, my dear, fight two thousand. Everything around us cries out for sacrifice. Even the buildings shouted, renounce your desires. Why? I can't answer that. No one can. Flee the shadow of the falling cross. Don't hang about for refugees. Those with sense will jump with you. Those that won't can't be saved. It's an instinct, Lydia. It can't be forced. What do you live for, then? demanded Lydia. 
Why, nothing. That's the only trick. Don't give an inch. Don't spend a penny on this structure. Have the courage to find your own way. And in time you will be old and lonely and your life will have blown away like smoke. Mm, murmured Jonathan, leaning his head back with a smile. Lydia tugged at her ear, her brow furrowed. I want to bring him to London, she said as they climbed the steps. Do you? Yes, London will save him. Lydia, said Jonathan, he doesn't want to be saved. He wants to save. And so he is damned. Chapter 36 A Resisted Entrance Lord Serbs, accompanied by Thomas, his bailiff, arrived the morning after Farmer Jigger's hanging earlier than expected. He came to a silent house, a house like a pond in midwinter. He knocked at the door, surprised at the quiet. Joyce let him in and told him that his daughter and Lawrence were out for a ride. He was sitting with Thomas in the drawing-room, chatting amiably, when two women entered. "'Oh,' said Kay, blinking in surprise. "'Good, good morning.' "'Good morning,' replied Lord Serbs, rising. "'You are, you are Lydia's father?' asked Kay. "'I am.' "'Um, welcome. Thank you.' There was a short pause. "'I hope I am not inconveniencing you,' said Lord Serbs. "'No, no. Uh, this is Miss Mary O'Donnell,' said Kay, gesturing rapidly. "'A friend.' Mary limped forward, her nostrils widening as she smiled. "'Good morning, Lord Serbs. I hope you had a pleasant journey.' "'Mostly,' he smiled. "'We made very good time. The countryside around here is very pretty. "'Though near a barn, our carriage was set upon by a decidedly motley group of ruffians.' "'Mary sighed. "'We prefer to call them unfortunates.' "'Ah,' said Lord Serbs, sitting down. "'What sort of unfortunates?' "'Kay, do sit down,' said Mary, turning to Thomas. "'And who are you?' "'Thomas, madam.' "'Do excuse me.' said Lord Serbs, striking his forehead. Most unforgivable. This is my bailiff, Thomas Doveset. We have also come from a radical experiment. We must compare notes. You first. Mary smiled at Kay. Ours is a process of reclamation. Would you mind if I used a metaphor? Lord Serbs smiled. Be my guest. It is a mariner's tale. A ship is manned by a crew who knows nothing of seamanship. During a storm, the mast of their ship snaps. They drift for days. Then their ship beaches on the shoal of a desert island. There is plenty of wood on the island, but very little food. The men grow weak. With every passing day, the chances of them having either the energy or initiative to repair their ship diminish. Suppose you could appear on that island with only one article. What would that article be? A person being an article, I suppose, said Lord Serbs, if you like. Though your comment indicates my reply to be the wrong one, I would venture to say that I would bring a competent shipwright. He could teach them how to repair their ship. Mary smiled. And then? And then, I suppose, they would push off an... Yes, I see. Probably to sink or crash into another island sooner or later. So they really need a navigator. But the navigator would be useless if he didn't know how to repair the ship. And even if you could get them off the island with a navigator, said Mary, they still wouldn't have enough food. "'Speaking of which,' said Kay, "'would tea be in order?' "'Thank you,' said Lord Serbs. Thomas seemed lost in thought. Kay rang the bell. "'An interesting problem,' said Lord Serbs, turning to Mary. "'I assume there is a solution.' "'Certainly. "'But it requires a radical change in thinking.' "'Shape,' said Thomas, suddenly, "'his Adam's apple bobbing. 
Mary turned to him and smiled. Excuse me? Well, why should they have to be sailors? He asked. Make them more comfortable on the island. Uh, We wouldn't have to worry about giving them navigators or shipwrights or any of that. Mary nodded slowly. All right. I haven't heard that before. Interesting. That's what we'd be doing up north, said Thomas excitedly. Draining off a whole swamp. That's what put the thought in my head. You don't have to leave if you can make it better where you are. Mary looked at him for a long moment. And would these unfortunate castaways know how to care for these sheep? That's not too odd. Certainly not for anyone who's been raised around them. But all that these men have known is their ship. And all they have known of themselves is that they were unable to steer it. That, I think, is the root of their problem. They have no faith in themselves. If you or I were on this island, we would set about figuring out the best way to fix our ship or stay comfortably on the island, no matter how tired or hungry we were. That is because we are used to solving problems and because we want to live. Yet if we had never been able to solve problems, we might find the burden of life too heavy and fall into despair. Then, even if we were brought nails, knowledge or sheep, we might just sigh on the sand and wait for death. What these people most need is a reason to live. Joyce entered and set the tray on the table. Thank you, Joyce, said Kay. We will, we will help ourselves. Your argument, Miss O'Donnell, while interesting, appears almost tautological, commented Lord Serbs, leaning back. Mary nodded calmly. It is, of course. But the question remains, when you have known nothing but failure, hunger, and despair, what can give you a reason to live? Love, smiled Kay, pouring the tea. Mary nodded. Exactly. Lord Serbs stared at her for a moment, then laughed. <laughs> I sort of imagined a strident scientific solution. No, if I may contradict you, you imagined a material solution, a plan of action, a fix for the body. But that may not be what is required. You can say to a man, this is how you must live, but if he does not want to live, your words mean nothing. What on earth can one do then? asked Lord Serbs, perplexed. We have only two real dangers to worry about, said Mary, rising. The external and the internal. External dangers are simple, cold, hunger, rock slides, mad horses, mad governments, mad masters. The approach to these problems is simple, avoid or or solve. There is only one internal danger. Despair. Life is always a choice. We can kill ourselves at any time. If we despair of living, we are as dead as surely as if we donned red and waltzed with a bull in heat. Our age has approached the problem of human survival with all the subtlety of a veterinarian. Stitch it up and send it out. We have increased our knowledge of the body, of the soul. We remain savages. That is because this is a secular age, replied Lord Serbs. We no longer pray for health. Yes, said Mary, her eyes suddenly intense. Having lost the idea of a religious soul, we ignore the reality of a secular soul. A secular soul, repeated Lord Serbs, steepling his fingers under his chin. All right. Men kill themselves all the time, in many ways, with knives, poison, but most often with weariness. I like to live dangerously, says the man weary of life. I like to gamble, drink, sleep little and eat poorly. I build nothing for my future. I live for the moment. I refuse all wisdom, all pleas from those who love me. I ridicule health, propriety, rationality. These weary men are the bane of civilization. They, they, they consume without producing. 
They are the instigators and fodder of war. They are the power-hungry, the, the criminals, the wasters of capital, the, the rakes, defrauders, duelers, shallow politicians, false prophets, willing martyrs, grand schemers and bloody idealists. They trumpet causes beyond life to avoid the responsibility of living. They are a plague as old as the world. They are the enemies of life. And until this age recognizes the reality of these weary souls, it will forever fight a losing battle. Against what? The irrational. You make it sound like an entity. It is, insisted Mary. It is the secular Satan. Evil is not hatred of life. That is just a symptom. Evil is weariness of life. The pursuit of sensation for the sake of sensation. Corruption, decadence, poverty, violence. These are the results of world weariness. Poverty in the flesh always masks poverty in the soul. You have thought long on this matter. She smiled. I am this matter. I was born an orphan. I was not loved. I have felt this temptation. Live not. I have touched the bedrock of emptiness. If I cannot laugh, neither shall others. I have felt the desperation of an empty life. A life sustained by will alone, not joy. This is the story of myself. Yet you breathe, said Lord Serbs. You are here. Yes. I am here because I have found my mission, which is bring love. Lord Serbs shook his head. Love of what? Love of the discarded. Love of the hopeless. Love of despair. Love of those who have never known love. You are obviously a remarkable man, Lord Serbs. You were raised well. You inherited love just as you inherited wealth. You have a foundation to your soul so deep that you think it is the essence of life itself. And so you look about you at the wreckage of most men's lives and you think them weak. Wait, I know this. It is the blindness of unearned strength. You think them weak because you know nothing of your strength. A soldier home from a long war will flinch at the crash of a dropped pot. Do, do we think him weak? Perhaps. But this is only a judgment of circumstance, not justice. Most of our morals are circumstantial. I do not fear, therefore cowardice is wrong. But tell me, were you raised in a world of fear? Can you speak reasonably of fear? Yet you label cowards every day. Lord Serbs frowned. Do you, do you speak of me or, or the world in general? Mary paused. I don't know you well enough, she said, whether you are in league with the world or not. But I tell you this, we will not remain excluded forever. And your solution? Love? Don't say it like that. Yes, love, but not your idea of love. Love which recognizes internal courage, not external actions. Love which respects the courage of living in the face of fear and despair. Love of the essential soul, not the daily actions. Love of what believes, not the beliefs themselves or their expression. Love of life, however lived. Love of evil. Love as an antidote to evil. And how is this love expressed, asked Lord Serbs, through sacrifice? From the knowledge that those lucky enough to be loved as children did not earn it. They were loved and so became good. Most are hated and become evil, an unearned curse. 
A man who escapes a plague is not saved by goodness, but fortune. If he has the strength to aid others, he must, for they were simply unlucky. You have escaped a plague. You must help others. I don't understand. How? By sacrificing yourself. Who takes pleasure in helping the sick? Would a free man give up his daily pleasures to help them? Of course not. Yet in a time of plague, he must. Normally, I do not give food to others. Yet if they starve, I must. Hmm. Your eyes say, this is too abstract. Very well. What we have done here is set up a wool factory. No healthy person was hired. We took only the sick, the weak, the hated and hateful. We gave only to those who had never received. And the result? Were those the ones who attacked my carriage? Mary shrugged. An inconvenience. Some damage, probably. This is the kind of sacrifice I call for. Naturally, our factory would make more money if we hired only the best workers. Yet Lawrence is willing to swallow a loss, or, or not make as much as he could, because he recognizes the reality of true justice, which is to not punish people for accidents of circumstance. Lord Serbs frowned. Tell me, where is free will in your formulation? Mary's lip curled. Free will. Mozart played flawlessly at three, composed symphonies at five. He was born with innate skill, innate desire. Did he choose to become a musician? Think of souls floating in the ether before being born. A chart is held before them. They are asked to tick off their chosen occupations. Who would choose poverty, ignorance, hopelessness? Who would tick off criminal or, or, or drunk or stupid? None. We would all choose to be brilliant artists, profound thinkers, noble statesmen. Yet the world overflows with lost dreams, futile goals, wasted lives. Where does this plague strike? What scythe cuts down these aspirations? What barrier lies between hope and failure? Nothing less than a famine of love. Food feeds the flesh. The soul lives on love. Those who are loved succeed. Failures are hated from first to last. Lord Serbs held up his hand. One moment. No free will means no responsibility. Yet there are those who, like yourself, have found a reason to live despite a lack of love. Are we not to hold this possibility as a just standard? I was born to survive, replied Mary. Before I was born, no doubt I was not offered love. But at least I got to demand a soul that can survive a lack of love. I lacked love, but I have talent, and that makes it all worthwhile, just as it did for Mozart. Yet such talent is very rare. It is not a just standard. Yet what would this do to legal justice? asked Lord Serbs. To government? To business? Do we say to a criminal, you were not loved, you may go free, society could not function, evil would rule? I agree. You propose this? No, said Mary emphatically. I say the legal system must deal with criminals, but... The fortunate must deal justly with the unfortunate. Loving the unfortunate will breed fewer criminals. We, we must work from the bottom up. Otherwise, the rejected will revolt, as they did in France. If society contains too many people with nothing to lose, it will be destroyed. Love of the excluded is self-preservation. Those who, like yourself, have the most to preserve must love the most. Lord Serbs shook his head. Where were you educated? 
Mary did not hesitate. I educated myself. That must be why I have such difficulty following you. No, no, that's not an insult, but an admission of habit. Similar educations give common ground. We cannot say Aristotle dealt with the problem in such and such a manner. What do you think? Your thoughts are entirely your own. I cannot place them in any context. Good. Now you can think rather than quote. Lord Serbs laughed and rose. (laughs) Now that sounded like an insult. But I am tired. It was a long ride. I would like the chance to put my things away, bathe and refresh myself. Of course, said Kay, rousing herself. She stood and rang for the maid. Tell me, said Mary suddenly, how does your experiment differ from mine? What have you done for the poor? Lord Serbs smiled. What have I done? Why, I have sat in my study, written books on a wide variety of topics, gone to dances, and chatted amiably with my peers. In other words, nothing. Precisely, he said slowly, nothing, neither for nor against. And they have risen. With that, Lord Serbs and Thomas bowed and left to collect their things. Kay stood in the centre of the room, shaking her head slowly. "'Are you all right?' asked Mary, concerned. "'What's the matter?' Kay raised her head, her eyes red. "'You are breaking my heart,' she said softly. Chapter 37 An Invalid Questioned "'London!' exclaimed Lawrence, wheeling his horse around. "'Why not? When were you last there?' asked Lydia. "'Oh, uh, a year or so ago. I sort of vowed never to return. I find rural life much less stifling.' They had stopped in a clearing, deep in the Dorset woods, far from the sight of man. Lawrence dismounted and tied his horse to a trunk. "'Hungry?' "'Starved,' said Lydia, getting off her horse. "'I brought some cheese and bread. <laughs> a plowman's lunch. Here's a sunny spot, quite dry.' My father is expected today. What time? Mid-afternoon. Lydia spread herself out luxuriously. As she lay back, the leafy light mounted her face like an echo of ripples from a deep pool. I'm looking forward to seeing him, said Lawrence. Me too. There was a pause, filled by the still silence of deep nature. It doesn't seem like a good time, he said finally. Why not? We've just started this project. I'm not sure who to leave in charge. Adam Footer would probably sack everyone and hire decent workers. Kay would be hopeless. Lydia glanced at him curiously. Why do you say that? Well, you know her. She's, she's rather flighty. She has good reason. What do you mean? I never... I don't mean you. Lydia paused and touched her lips. I saw your mother having a real go at her yesterday. Oh, that. Well... Two women cooped up in a house. What can you expect? That's unfair. How do you get along with your mother? Oh, you know, not too badly. She's a bit of a relic. It's like shouting across a chasm of years. It must be hard living in a changing world. I've no idea why I'm not more conservative. What do you think will become of her? I think she's too set in her ways to really become anything. I mean Kay. Oh. Lawrence frowned at the treetops. That's a tough one. She's my sister, so of course I want to think the best. But if she was someone else's sister, I would probably say that she will sort of live in the 
periphery her whole life. He frowned. I know, that doesn't make much sense. What I mean is that I can't imagine a place where she could thrive. She's like a mushroom in that house. But I think she would wilt in strong sunlight. When did you start thinking of her like that? Like what? Like an invalid. An invalid? said Lawrence, surprised. Well, well, I don't... Uh... I can't remember. Was there ever a time when you didn't think that? I... I suppose when she was very little. She used to... Well, parade. <laughs> dress up. Laugh a lot. But as she grew, she became very fearful. Whenever she got happy, she would be sort of... Hysterical. I'm not sure if that's the right word. It's like she's daring someone to let her be happy. I don't know. I don't claim to understand her. She's very unhappy. I agree. But I think that for her to be happy, the world would have to be different, gentler, more trusting. She doesn't seem able to carve her way. If there's no path, she can't move. So if I were her, and I were to say, dear brother, what should I do? What would you say? Lawrence's smile spread his beard. Gosh, Kay, it's not so much a plan as a state of mind. Be more practical, you know, more logical, more something. <sighs> as to what you could do, well, well, I suppose you could help me more with the books or, or, or take up a hobby or start, well, socializing or something. Find a man. Read more. Stop wasting time. Settle down. And if these were your options? Lawrence shook his head, suddenly irritating. These aren't my options. I'm a man. She said something like that to me once. It's very annoying. Such is life. I didn't get everything I wanted. If I had more land or more money, I could do more. I mean, if I could wave my hand and make the world a better place for women, I would do it. But it's a little beyond my power. Don't take this the wrong way. I'm not trying to fight you. But what is within your power? Oh, would you like that? If you had to get me to do something for you to make your life worthwhile? Sure. If that meant sharing power more equally, that would be just, wouldn't it? Your father gives you an allowance, doesn't he? That's different. Why? Because he has always encouraged me to pursue my dreams. He never assumed I was an invalid. That's because you don't act like an invalid. Is the cause and effect so clear for you? It isn't for me. Lawrence looked at her for a moment, then laughed. <laughs> Do you know? I think we're having a fight. Like lovers. Lydia smiled and lowered her head. Don't smile at me. This is very disturbing. Lawrence shook his head. All the women around me think I have some magical power. They, they, they all want me to turn something over to them so they can be happy. But none of them take the trouble to tell me just what that is. I think that's because they have a kind of void in their souls, a, a void that can't be filled up with taking over someone else's life. You know, said Lydia, I think that if I had grown up solely in the country, in your family, without a worldly education, I would have turned out exactly as she has. Lawrence smiled. I find that hard to believe. Why? What do I have that she lacks? Oh, everything. You are talented, intelligent, Beautiful, cultured, you know. My talent was nurtured by a father's admiration. My intelligence was cultivated by education. As for beauty, that is a mean yardstick by any standard. And as for culture, well, I lived in London. 
Lawrence laughed and clapped his hands. Ah, <laughs> so that's what this is all about. You know, you don't have to work so hard. I never actually said I wouldn't go to London. It would be good for her, too. He groaned. Oh, why, oh, why can I never refuse a woman? The first biped to walk erect without a spine. I'm pathetic. Lydia smiled. You're not pathetic. No, of course not. I think it's an admirable, attractive quality. Of course you do. No, really, men are generally brutes. Now that's enlightened, and they are remarkably slow, she said, twirling her hair. Lawrence's grin fell. What about Mary? He asked, his face suddenly grey. Oh, what about her? I owe her something. Give her some money. No, she wouldn't take it. She, she's after something else. Oh, that's true. Why do you say it like that? Lydia got up, brushed off her skirt, and looked him square in the eyes. Lawrence, she said evenly, if you can ever find the strength to say no to a woman, find it with her. Lawrence stared at her, perplexed. A fly buzzed into his ear, and he jumped. Chapter 38 A Story of Progress They returned to a brighter home. Lydia uttered a cry of joy and spurred her horse forward. She saw the marks of her father's presence almost immediately. The house seemed somehow energized. Perhaps it was the sight of the bright fireplace flickering through the bay windows. Perhaps it was young Thomas pulling up weeds in the front flower beds. Perhaps it was the sight of Mary striding before the fire, her body taut with energy. Lawrence looked up at the house, at the sight of Lydia dismounting and racing up the front steps, and felt his spirits rise in answer. He dismounted, took the horse's reins, and walked them towards the stables, regarding himself in a strange light. Why am I so discontented? he asked himself. Despite his new delights, his soul seemed to have become progressively heavier over the past few weeks, as if the unburying of old wrongs was hanging more earth on his shovel. These wrongs, injustice to Mary, to Kay, to his mother, to the memory of his father, what would he say to all this? Lawrence wondered, and the old man's voice seemed to rise like stern mist from his cold grave. My boy, what are you doing mucking about in the pit of injustice? What are you trying to change? You are no murderer, no ravisher of the helpless. You have tried to help them in the most important way. That is more than most do. Are you so willing to take on every burden? People are wronged in the world every day. Are we simply to stare at this spectacle and breathe sad sighs? The unhappiness of the world is the province of no single man. You are only accountable for your own heart. Drowning in the wounds of others is an endless death. You must learn to laugh at these delusions of salvation, these glorious dreams of youth. Laugh, turn to the light, get married, and live a happy life. Lawrence shivered, feeling the elemental uncertainty of an eternal debate. Responsibility for myself or responsibility for others? Satisfaction or sacrifice? Justice or sympathy? Freedom or circumstance? T. 
tears crept into his eyes as he thought of his life a few months before, striding the fields, ordering, encouraging, certain. Strange thoughts ran through his mind. Doctor, I seem to have caught a disease. The boundaries of myself have dissolved. I have become a dry harbour for all injustice, a soldier in an endless army. Tell me what should I do? Live for myself or live for others? The doctor seemed unable to reply. His words would be seen as shameful. His eyes, however, spoke eloquently. Your conscience has become painfully enlarged. It is paralyzing you. To take the swelling down, I prescribe two weeks of personal rest and pleasure, simple sensual feeling, and a respite from the endless demands of others. What a doctor. <laughs> Lawrence smiled. His soul stirred, and he turned towards the house, thinking, Oh, I should have kissed her. Thomas waved at him, grinning, as he climbed the front stairs. Lawrence entered the drawing-room and found father and daughter arm in arm. Lord Serbs smiled at him broadly, the smile of a king, proud of his successor. "'Good afternoon to you, Lord Lawrence Carvey,' he cried. "'Good afternoon, Lord Serbs,' said Lawrence, beaming. He clasped the older man's hand in his. "'You had a good journey? Wonderful. I am happy to see both you and my daughter. I am getting on in years. It is good to see such a renewal.' "'Thanks,' said Lawrence, blushing. (laughs) "'Shame for blushing,' laughed the older man. "'We are all adults. Sit down now. "'I'm going to press your hospitality by bending your ear. "'I've had the most remarkable fortnight.' "'Lord Serbs walked over to the window, opened it, and called Thomas. "'I'll just wash my hands and be right with you,' replied the young man. "'Very well.' "'Lawrence, I have so much to tell you,' said Lord Serbs. "'He strode to the fire and turned to the young man. "'Lawrence looked at him. His graying hair was hanging over his forehead. His face was flushed. His teeth sparkled. Ah, thought the young man, thank God for the comforts of class. I have some lands in Yorkshire. We we talked of them when we last met, said Lord Serbs, his back to the fire. I have spent ten days there arranging for the delivery of several thousand sheep. You know, everyone complains of absentee landlords, but in my view, laissez-faire is the best way. I've never set foot on these lands, but in the hands of the most able Thomas, welcome back, young man, sit there, these lands have become a model of modern improvement. No library, no earnest group of Oxford-educated agriculturalists, yet they have made improvements that match yours. How? asked Lawrence, astounded. How? Lord Serbs grinned at Thomas. I defer to our expert witness. Our thank you, said Thomas, shifting in his seat. Well... It seems a strange story, only looking backward, so to speak, and I've been told to leave nothing out. When I was a young lad, I left to seek my fortune. I did not think I was well fitted to the confinements of rural life. I travelled to the ports, open to be taken on as a sailor. I thought it would be strange and exotic. Bless me for a fool. So I signed up for a year, and our first port of call was Amsterdam. We had a rough crossing, and were landbound for over two months waiting for repairs. I spent that time working on the land. I needed the money. I was laughed at. I thought I knew what I was doing. My employer knew English. He talked at some length about the extent of British greed. You stupid warriors, he laughed, shaking your spears in foreign lands while your families starve at home. Thomas stopped, glancing down for a moment. Excuse me, my 
parents died of hunger the winter before I left. My brother too. I don't know how I survived. I couldn't stand the sight of ploughed earth. It seemed like an open wound. <sighs> but in Holland, they seem to have tamed the beast of nature. And I apologise for my unnatural speech. My Dutch master was gripped with strange phrases. There was no hunger in that land. Every week I went back to the docks to check in with my captain. And there were ships, huge ships crammed with grain, flying out over the sea. I became almost dizzy with the possibilities. I was gripped with the need to return to Yorkshire to share what I had learned. But I was signed on for a year. I had to wait. Now it was very hard. So anyway, we plied back and forth between Amsterdam and Southampton and I spent whatever free time I had writing down everything I had learned. Every time we docked in England, I mailed off a thick bundle of notes to my friends in Yorkshire. When I finished my year, I went back and found the old community in an uproar. <laughs> I know the situation. Smiled Lawrence. I'm sure you do. Priests muttered of blasphemy. Old people muttered of the follies of youth. The young muttered of the blindness of age. In short, it seemed that if the energy spent talking about change had been applied to change itself, everything would be solved. I, I was gripped with a kind of frenzy. I spent every waking hour arguing, and then I argued in my sleep. I had to go and get turnip seeds in Liverpool twice. The first time they went bad because no one would plant them. Always the same story. The farmer said, we have enough to live on this year. Why should we take risks? Because you will end up with more, I replied. So you say, they said, but we could end up with less. And then where would we be? Oh, it was maddening. When they had enough, they didn't want to risk anything. When they didn't, they didn't want to risk the little they had. I began to see why we've been on the edge of starvation for so many generations. So how did it finally change? Asked Lawrence, fascinated. I finally met a Jew in Liverpool who was willing to lend me enough money to buy some land. Oh, he was wild. An outcast in his community, mad with the idea of progress. He pressed the money into my hand, saying progress was the only interest he wanted. Thomas smiled. <laughs> Within a year, I was able to pay him back. Within two years, people began rotating their crops. They had to. I threatened to buy them out if they didn't. It started to go very quickly after that. Turnips took over the fallow land. Cows lived on them through the winter. Manure was spread, we irrigated everywhere. Women survived childbirth, children grew tall, <laughs> men grew wild. The church emptied, our priests left. We had a lot of time on our hands. Some of the older men began experimenting with science. It was a sort of mania. The pub filled with happy drunks demonstrating the principles of displacement in their beer. <laughs> on clear nights, a crowd would gather at Clem Weatherby's farm, paying a penny apiece to peer through his new telescope. Sam Foreman built a contraption to thresh his A and almost lost an arm trying it out. Everything was so alive. The young men decided to try draining the swamp, another project first demonstrated in the pub. And since this would require a large investment, I offered to go to London and meet with Lord Serbs. We read about him in the papers and I knew we would be interested. We met and he agreed to come with me to Yorkshire. Did I thank you for that, sir? Many times, smiled Lord Serbs. And quite unfairly, all thanks are due to you. So we arrived, and Lord Serb spent a huge sum of money hiring workers to dig the irrigation, and paid off to farmers whose lands would be partially flooded for a few days, and bought the rocks we needed to reinforce the embankments. We started, and within a week, the level of the swamp began to go down. We went out every morning, interrupted Lord Serbs enthusiastically, and measured a stick we'd put in the ground. Seeing the water level go down was one of the most exciting events of my life. Think of it. 
a swamp that has existed for thousands of years, bending to the will of mere mortals. In time, the edge of the swamp will go down to the point where we can plant it. But our plan was sheep. Sheep would solve all our problems. We worked our way through a few of the tracks on sheep and were mad with the idea. We need money to pay for improvements, we thought. We can't sell our crop surplus. There's no market for food in Yorkshire. If we get sheep, though, we can sell the wool at any seaside port. Then we get gold. And with the gold, we can buy wood, iron, nails, some of these new looms. That reminds me, said Lawrence. I I have a man I want you to meet. I'd be glad to, replied Thomas. So the interesting thing is that by starting a small thing, changing some of our farming habits, suddenly everything began to change. I suppose that's why the old men fought us so hard. They knew more about what we were doing than we did. It was like we had broken free of something, climbed over some barrier, and everything began to rise as a result. So now? asked Lawrence. Thomas paused for a moment, then laughed. (laughs) I cannot say. That's the wonder of it. Everyone has their own plans. Who can say who will succeed and who will fail? Before, everyone did roughly the same, which was none too well. Now, some hit the sky, while others still refuse to change and can't get their noses out of the dirt. Is there a lot of resentment? asked Lord Serbs suddenly. Excuse me? You know, from those who don't do as well for some reason. Thomas frowned. Hmm. Yeah, I suppose so. When I think about it, the old way protected a lot of foolish people. Now, not foolish. We're, we're all fools in our own way. More like people who don't like change. They resist everything new, but... They can only do that for themselves. Everyone else just passes them by in a way and they feel left out. But rather than say, I excluded myself, they say, others exclude me. That upsets them. Who is this Miss O'Donnell? Asked Lord Serbs, turning to Lawrence. Lawrence blinked. Mary? Uh, You've met her? She and your sister were the first to greet me. I see. Tell me about her. Lawrence turned to Thomas. Have you met her also? Thomas nodded silently. What did you think? The young man chose his words carefully. Eh, Such depths are not for me to plumb, sir. But if you had to give an opinion, please. Thomas thought for a long time. When I was younger, sir, he said finally, we had a dog, Sheppy, a good dog, laughed to be petted. One morning... He disappeared. We looked and called, but it was no use. He was gone for two years. When he came back, he was thin, jumpy, and kept trying to eat the chickens. My dad said, he's gone wild. Now, there's nothing wrong with being wild, he said, so long as you're in the wild. But if you go wild, you have to stay there. You can't come back. So my dad took Sheppy far out into the woods and left him there. But Sheppy came back. So my dad had to kill him. Thomas paused and smiled ruefully. Well, that came out a little strong. I don't even know if she likes chicken. But there is something wild about her. Wild dangerous? asked Lawrence. I can't rightly say, sir. But she gives me a bit of the woolies. She's got a kind of Old Testament air about her, like a prophet. I wouldn't know how to answer, but I can't say I enjoyed listening to her. She's someone I... "'Wronged in the past,' said Lawrence, leaning back in his chair. "'I caused her to be expelled from her home. "'She returned a few weeks ago, and and the villagers ganged up on her. "'They they thought she was a witch and tried to 
burner at the stake. Good God! exclaimed Lord Serbs. Here? Now? A very ugly business. We, we rescued her just in time. I had to hang the ringleader recently. How awful! So I feel a certain responsibility in the matter, naturally, said Lord Serbs. But what do you plan to do with her? That I'm not sure about, admitted Lawrence. I have given her a certain leeway. Mary has a plan, a, a plan that has attracted my sister considerably. She mentioned it, put in Lord Serbs, something about hiring the lowest of the low. We're hired miscreants, continued Lawrence, over the strenuous objection of the merchant who sold us the looms. And we've had no end of trouble with them. They burnt down a barn, steal from the townsfolk, and we have had to appoint a rather brutal chap to keep them in line. And the productivity? asked Lord Serbs. Lawrence shrugged. Too early to tell. Certainly lower than it would have been with better workers. Ugh, breaks my heart to think of the men we could have hired who are now without work. Men who have decided to be responsible, thrifty, and industrious, said Lord Serb slowly. Men who have successfully resisted the temptations of drink, sloth, and violence in order to live respectably. Men who cannot help but see that their own responsibility is punished, while the laziness of others is rewarded. Lawrence started. I hadn't thought of it that way. You may not thank me, said Lord Serbs, for you have embarked on a dangerous road, an opposition to the natural order. Competence should rise, sloth should fall, turn this on its head, and life loses all reason. We fought those who were too lazy to change, said Thomas tentatively. If we had not, we would all be worse off. Tell me, where would Mary's system be if there were no poor? asked Lord Serbs. No poor, exclaimed Lawrence. Indulge me. No poor, no excluded, no hopeless. Well, I, I suppose she would have nothing to say. So, in a manner, she needs the poor. She will work to ensure they always exist. Reward the low, and you attract more to the low. Poverty presented in this way thus becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, an endless justification. But, but, said Lawrence, justification for, 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 for what? Why, power, Lord Carvey, power. A shockwave ripped through Lawrence's spine. He shot to his feet, running quick hands through his hair. Don't say any more, he said, his voice tense. Anyone who wants power over you need only achieve one thing, continued Lord Serbs, looking at Lawrence as he paced. They must get you to accept a definition of the good that excludes you. Thus your resistance is disarmed. They will say the good is what you were not and can never be. The same radicals are running around in London, though with far less subtlety. All privilege is evil, they cry, forgetting that goodness is available to all. They do not realize that privilege is the definition of nothing but privilege. They do not hate our evil. They envy our power. They seek to make us guilty, to emasculate us, to infect us with self-loathing. If they can convince us we are innately unjust, they hope we will lose the ability to judge good and evil. This can benefit only evil. Lawrence shook his head. But we are privileged. Did we choose? this privilege? No, but we exercise it. Just as Locke exercised the privilege 
of intelligence or Michelangelo the privilege of creativity? There is a natural aristocracy in the world, Lawrence. No demand for total equality will ever change that. We are still above the law if we murder. Do we not hang? Our wealth, that will change, interrupted Lord Serves. Do you not understand the machine that men like us are setting in motion? Do you think that mere historical privilege can stand against men like Thomas here, men who can enrich a whole community with general knowledge? No. We're doomed as a class, not because we are evil or privileged, but because we are good, because we encourage progress. Men like us are, are, are very few. Of course, cried Lord Serbs, very few in every class. You've had to deal with reluctant farmers. We all have. All I argue is that privilege in and of itself means nothing morally. Then what are we to do for the poor? Well, what do you think, Thomas? asked Lord Serbs, turning to him. You were born poor. What could we do for people like you? Thomas shifted uncomfortably. Well, I suppose exactly what you and the Jew have done. Invest in us as if we were not poor. Don't look at us as poor. I am more than just poor. I've never really thought of myself as poor. I was loved as a child, respected as an adult. I'm a good man. Being called poor rather bothers me, I think. I'm not sure I need to pity. And of the lazy among you? They are not among my circle, said Thomas abruptly. They exist, but it seems to me that life is too short to waste energy on people who don't really want to improve their lot. Yet you argued against farmers who didn't want to change, said Lawrence. Yeah, replied the young man, but that was so I could do what I wanted, not to help them, but to help myself, because I had a goal. If I'd had the money to bypass them, I wouldn't have given them the time of day. I'm as perplexed as you, Thomas, said Lord Serbs. Lawrence, why do you accept this guilt? Lawrence scowled. His head pounded. He felt dizzy as if he were being lowered into the ground on a spinning plank. I don't know, he said, closing his eyes. Chapter 39 A Terrible Temptation Mary lay awake, shuddering with hatred. Lord Serb's face giggled in her mind's eye, jeering at her from the high throne of natural health. Privilege, privilege, privilege. It was like a thudding heartbeat, a burning barrier to the land of normality. He looks at me strangely, she thought over and over, biting at her thumb. What right does he have to look at me strangely, this fat crow of thoughtless fortune? Agony rose in her breast, the agony of... What if? What if I had been born rich, loved, protected, encouraged, educated... What if I had been given decent haircuts and pretty dresses? Would I be lying in a cellar nursing my wounds? No. I would be flying from party to ball, astounding the world with books on liberty, challenging my class with humorous pinpricks in demand by all in fashion. I would be... Lydia, thought Mary, feeling bile rising in her throat, rubbing her face with the heels of her hands. Her body felt... Strangely warped in the darkness, as if she had sprouted uncontrollable goat legs and a grotesquely enlarged head. The world seemed 
distant, alien, an icy hall of tombs, waiting only for her to surrender and lower herself into a cold embrace of stone. A silent painter raged within her, showering obscene portraits on her inner canvas. She was a cannibal, gnawing on the toes of children, a strider and commander of flames, a stone goddess stained with the shadows of shattered men, a high shower of poisoned arrows, a restless spirit of earthquakes, a tidal wave sinking soft cottages, a quiet blanket of death spreading over a wide, fertile land. And in the midst of her midnight apocalypses, a smaller, softer painter raised an occasional silhouette, her cheek nestled on the warm chest of a loving protector. A hall of respectful applause for the sake of her tortured wisdom. A flock of staunch friends admiring her courage. And, and a loving child gazing at her with trusting eyes. No! That last thought was too much. Mary squeezed her scant breasts savagely with all the rage of the brutalized child. She turned her head into the pillow, gasping at the pain, grinding her face into the white softness. The demands of children, the demand for clear, simple love, of respect for helplessness. I hated myself when I was helpless, she cried silently, falling through an infinite pit of shame. Farmer Jigger's face rose in her mind. She shattered and leapt up as if the bed had burst into flames. She dressed quickly, almost unable to breathe, and fled the mansion, her legs burning. The night was still, smooth. Mary felt a wave of rage against the stars. You burned and did nothing. She walked down to the front gates and gripped the bars, her head lowered. A wave of nausea gripped her and she bent over and retched, twisting her body, almost turning herself inside out. Mary, said a gentle voice. Mary, look up. Gasping, Mary raised her head blearily. An old woman stood on the far side of the gate, her face lined with pain, her hair like soft ash in the starlight. Mary, it's me, said the woman. Mother, whispered Mary, her heart pounding. Mary, murmured the woman. She was dressed in a flowing cloak of deep blue. A black velvet ribbon ringed her neck. Mother, cried Mary, tucking frantically at the gate latch. When it opened, the old woman walked towards her. Mary fell to her knees, her heart pounding painfully. The woman reached down and touched her cheek. My beautiful, beautiful child, she whispered. Mary broke into ragged sobs, pressing her face against her mother's belly, gripping the folds of her gown in tight fists. Mother, she cried. Hush, murmured the woman. It doesn't matter now. 
How? Where? How did you find me? Don't think of that now. There will be time to tell, said the woman, falling to her knees. Leaning forward, she pressed kiss after kiss on Mary's wet cheeks, stroking her wild hair with a soft palm. Why did you leave me? cried Mary, her voice muffled in the woman's neck. I had to. I was very ill. But I cried on leaving. I, I cried because it broke my heart to leave such a beautiful child all alone in the world. Why did you... Why did you send me to that house? I didn't know, said Mary's mother softly, her voice aching. I didn't know how it would be. But my beautiful, angry child, you know how to exact justice. I am very proud of you. Oh, mother. Mother. I have evil thoughts, whispered Mary fearfully. My good girl, soothed her mother. My good, strong girl, you will be well. It's all over now. Mary reached up and stroked the old woman's soft hair. And then, terribly, the hair seemed to lurch to one side. Her mother's head slowly toppled from its perch and fell to the ground with a soft thud. Mary, said the head, gazing up lovingly, I love you. Mary stared at the head, her eyes wide, her heart frozen. Mary, whispered the voice sorrowfully, a slow snake emerged from between the lips. Mary! It hissed. Mary shuddered and awoke. She lay huddled at the foot of the gate. The stars burned blindly. Chapter 40 A Sudden Rescue with a clink of glasses, the meal began. Lawrence, Lydia, Lord Serbs, Kay, Jonathan, and Mary were seated along the table. Lady Barbara sat at the head, presiding over her guests with the grim graciousness of a lost age. The talk ran counter to the courses. Pleasant praise was heaped like icing during the appetizers. Thick compliments drowned the main course. And by the time dessert arrived, the conversation was sprinkled with a pinch of sharper spice. Lawrence broached the subject first. His mother glared at him for a brief moment, as if to say, Not man enough to bring it up alone, eh? So we expect to be gone for a month, perhaps two, he said doggedly. We shall be back by Christmas, or certainly New Year's. I know it's a bit of short notice, but I found out that there are several agricultural theories or societies which I would find great profit in meeting with before they disband in winter. And your sister? asked Lady Barbara, clearing her throat delicately. Excuse me, Kay? Kay blushed. Well, I suppose I'm going to London in order to find um, some sort of direction in my life, 
she laughed quickly, <laughs> to, to, to experience something beyond what I know, what, what I have grown to expect. Her mother stared at her. You pretentious fool. Lawrence went on his grand tour, said Kay. You do not need to traipse the world in order to be married, said Lady Barbara curtly. Lawrence had to travel, though judging from the accounts, it was a sorry investment. I'm not sure that such journeys are ever truly wasted, Lady Barbara, said Lord Serbs quietly, patting his lips with a napkin. Were the trip for the sake of culture alone, I'm sure you would be right, Lord Serbs, said Lady Barbara smoothly. Yet my son decided to forego the wonders of the Colosseum and the Sphinx for the sake of delving about with sun-baked farmers. And when he returned, he did not bring a richness of soul, but a slew of expensive experiments for our collective purse. Why travel to find the Sphinx? muttered Lawrence, unheard by all save Lydia, who suppressed a smile. Lady Barbara placed her fork beside her untouched cake. Lord Serbs, you will excuse me if I sound harsh, but I am painfully aware of my children's habit of acting without thinking. She turned to Lawrence. My dear son, some years ago you took it into your head to become a farmer. Though I have often wondered at the choice, I have done little to stand in your way, save for murmuring the odd word of advice. Oh, you see, my children, she exclaimed to Lord Serbs, even when spoken to graciously, they make faces. No matter. It is not I who am shamed. All can hear my words. You took on the role of farmer, Larry, a role far below your proper station. You have invested vast sums in your improvements. Am I now to believe that this was a passing whim? For, given that you are about to throw off your stewardship for the sake of a whimsical trip to London, that is how it seems. Mother, sighed Lawrence, I, if I may continue, smiled Lady Barbara, you have also, against my wishes, admit this, at least in the presence of others, decided to pursue the job of factory foreman. Disgraceful enough, even on the average, but you have added shame to shame by mixing your role with that of a prison warden. As you have repeatedly insisted again for the sake of funds, these miscreants you have hired for this factory require constant, indeed often brutal, supervision. Am I to understand that this too was a fad? It's not as if, began Lawrence, what am I to do? smiled Lady Barbara. One cannot even squeeze a civil word in sideways with such lovely children. Furthermore, you also took on the role of governess with this Mary. O'Donnell, and do not be ashamed, little one. I have resigned myself to the odd hold you have over my children. Am I to understand that this, too, was a whim, or are you going to take her with you to London? Mary is certainly coming with us, said Lawrence. Lydia touched his knee under the table, and he blushed. We didn't think it wise to leave her here with you, said Kay, suddenly. Most kind, I am sure, to refrain from inflicting your ill-considered responsibilities on others— commented Lady Barbara. Now, and I apologize for any redundancy, but I would like to imagine that I perceive the situation correctly. First, you are pulling up stakes here tomorrow and flying off. Destination, London. Purpose, unknown. Duration, past Christmas, possibly New Year's. Cost, prohibitive by any sensible standard. Responsibilities abandoned, too many to count without shedding one's shoes. Now, I can only assume... One of three things. First, having tired of your natural family, you wish to adopt the Serbs. Second, there is some romantic goblin in the air that is abducting all reason. Third, 
This is all an excuse to get poor Kay away from her suffocating mother. Lady Barbara cleared her throat. <clears throat> Again, I apologize to my guests for my bluntness, and sorely wish it were dispensable. But experience has taught me that my children are regrettably blind to all shades but black and white. I also regret the airing of this petty laundry in the presence of guests, but since you wish to leave tomorrow, I am left with little choice. So, if you can enlighten me, I shall retire content. There was a brief pause after Lady Barbara's inquisitional declaration. Lawrence was about to speak, but Lydia touched his knee again, glancing at Kay, who seemed fascinated by the physical properties of her dessert. Mary spoke, and Lydia's heart sank. "'You speak sensibly,' said Mary. "'Thank you,' replied Lady Barbara acidly. Mary smiled. "'You speak sensibly for a person at the satisfied end of the spectrum. "'Your life has been quite richly lived, "'so naturally this sort of adventure seems pointless. "'Yet we are the ones who have to deal with this new world.' We are the ones who have to reinvent the wheel, so to speak, for we find our new roads are not for old carriages. Money is not what it was. It is no longer safe behind the high walls of old privilege, but must be earned by hard work in the here and now. London is now a place of business as well as opera. Lord Carvey has reached the end of his tether here, as has Kay. To continue progressing, he must find other channels, channels not specific to agriculture. In short, Lawrence must diversify. We have spoken of this before. He must find buyers for his excess crops. He must find transporters, receivers, distributors, sellers, accountants, and salesmen. London is the center of these skills. This is not merely a whimsical trip, but the natural progression of modern capital. Excuse me, Lady Barbara interrupted gently, and I don't wish to seem rude, but are you not, in fact, a peasant orphan? Not that this alone disqualifies your judgment, for I know there is no longer any such thing as class. But as a peasant orphan, I assume that you have little experience in business. Mary nodded, her face pale. That is true. Then pray tell me why I should view your grand pronouncements as anything more than the ravings of an insane mind. Mother, please, cried Kay. Because the science of which I speak is, is being invented as I speak, replied Mary. As far as I understand it, Lawrence is the first landowner in all of England to apply these reforms, though I'm sure Lord Serbs is close behind. There is no clear plan of action any more than there was for Christians between the death of Christ and the writing of the New Testament. We must feel our way with, with reason and industry as our guide. Lady Barbara looked at her for a long moment, then shook her head and turned to Lawrence. If this trip is purely for... Business? Why must Kay go? I speak, of course, as a representative of the foolish old world. I, I speak as an ancient, backward, retrograde, reactionary soul, a soul which, foolish though it may seem, would like at least some company for Christmas. You should have treated me better, whispered Kay suddenly. I'm sorry. Excuse me, demanded Lady Barbara. I'm, I'm not a present that you can keep under the tree and, and open at Christmas said Kay, staring at her plate. What am I supposed to do until then? Sit in my room? Watch you eat tea? Kay, said her mother softly, 
Is this really the time? Do you not wish to keep even a shred of pride? I, I want to go, said Kay. Why, then you shall go, said her mother gaily, glancing at Lord Zerbs. Is this a prison? I, I merely express my preferences. Whether they are taken seriously is up to my children. I bless them either way. Kay sat silent, her cheeks flamed an angry red. Now, what shall we do with our lands, Larry? smiled Lady Barbara. Lawrence cleared his throat. <clears> throat> Autumn is almost here. The, the, the harvest is in. There is food enough for everyone. All that is left is to settle in for the winter. I see. And these workers? I think we should leave Adam Footer in charge of them, said Lawrence. He's a competent man. Yet he resists these Samaritan fantasies, does he not? asked Lady Barbara. Yes, but I think I can reason with him. I have a suggestion, she said, which, as your father would say, will fell two birds with one buckshot. Kay wishes to expand her horizons. Adam Footer does not wish to oversee the factory. Why not leave Kay in charge of the factory while you all go to London? Kay looked up, startled at the sudden silence. I don't think that would be a good idea, said Mary. Are you part of this family? inquired Lady Barbara. She lifted her hands. This would benefit everyone, I think. Kay could prepare for motherhood by learning how to manage ungrateful people. Who knows? She may display unguessed talents. The factory would be left in the hands of the family, and last and probably least, I might have some company for Christmas. I would like Kay to come to London, said Jonathan. Why? asked Lady Barbara, glaring at him. B because I would like to show her around. Well, if that's the reason. Well, then because I am very attracted to her, said Jonathan. Kay trembled. Because I may be falling in love with her. Lady Barbara sat, frozen for a moment, then shook her head with a shudder. Then come to visit. I already have smiled Jonathan. But this is all up to Kay. What do you want to do, darling? Kay's head looked as if it might explode. She put a palm on her chest and stared at it, her cheeks burning. I want to st stay with, with you, she whispered. Lady Barbara and Jonathan both looked around triumphantly, realized the question was still undecided, and turned their attention back to Kay. After several heartbeats, she raised her head and stared at Jonathan. "'With you,' Kay said softly, her eyes brimming. "'Then it is decided,' Jonathan smiled. "'She is, after all, of age.' "'Yes, well, we can't prosecute you for that,' muttered Lady Barbara. "'Come, good lady, none of that,' said Lord Serbs easily. "'Why not come down to London for Christmas?' "'Because I am old, because I do not like to travel.' And because I am the parent, I am also a parent. Yet I do not order my child around. No doubt the new world can find fault with everything I do, Lord Serbs, said Lady Barbara. Yet I raise as I was raised. If there is a fault, it lies in these new coddling standards, not in me. If the world does not change, tradition would always be right, smiled Lord Serbs. Yet we must adapt. I am trying to compromise, not with your daughter, what would you have me do? Why, the hardest thing for a parent to do, replied Lord Serbs gently. 
Let go, Lady Barbara. Let go. You are a man. You did not live for your children. You know nothing of this. How refreshing to have a proper conversation, said Lord Serbs. These matters are as old as the sun. Men too can become over-attached to their children, yet we must all step aside at some point. All I ask is that Kay make her own decision, said Lady Barbara. I am offering her control of the factory and Christmas with me. What is it to be, Kay? She has already made her decision, said Lydia. She wants to come with us. She has not looked at me once. I don't think she even knows I am here. Kay, dearest, look at me and say you will leave me all alone this winter. Kay picked up a knife, stared at it, then put it down again. She shifted in her chair. She touched her hair. She smoothed her top. Then she raised her head and stared at Lady Barbara. "'I shall be gone, mother,' she said. Her mother returned her stare. "'You may be gone, my dear, but your comfortable life remains behind, unless you plan to wait on Larry for the rest of your life.' Alarmed, Lawrence looked at Kay and shook his head almost imperceptibly, but she didn't see him. "'Larry has, has been kind enough, just enough,' put in Mary. Kay glanced at her and nodded, swallowing. Yeah, yes, j just enough to, to allow me contro control over half the fortune. So, you have replaced me with Larry, I see. Then I have no more use at this table, said Lady Barbara, throwing down her napkin and rising. I will retire to the Elysium fields, as you all so clearly desire. I will intrude no more in your new, wonderful lives. I shall live out the rest of my days alone, and I hope for your sake that your new atheism is correct, for as God is my witness, he shall not deal kindly with such untender children. Lady Barbara turned on her heel and marched out of the room. Lord Serbs rose. Kay covered her face with her hands. I think I'm going to be ill, she murmured. "'Some wine will cover that,' said Lydia triumphantly, raising her glass. "'Here, to progress!' They all laughed awkwardly, clinking their glasses. "'Do you think she's going to finish that?' asked Jonathan, reaching for Lady Barbara's abandoned cake. Chapter 41 A High Note Lawrence rode alone to the factory soon after dinner. He found Adam Footer inside, striding beside the rows of downturned heads. "'Good day, Mr. Footer,' cried Lawrence from the door. Adam Footer glanced up, his face dark. "'Good evening, Lord Carvey.' "'Rather late for industry, eh?' Adam walked up to him. "'Outside, if you please, sir,' he said shortly. Turning his head, he called, "'I shall be outside. If I hear anything amiss, I will get the whip.' The heads did not raise." Adam's face seemed tired in the late light as he stepped outside. He rubbed his eyes and shook his head. "'What can I do for you now, sir?' he asked. "'What's the matter?' Adam Footer paused, his lips working angrily. "'The matter is, good master, that business cannot be done under such conditions. What happened? They were shocked at first. Now they've hardened. They don't listen. We must be patient.' Adam's face darkened 
into a scowl. Patient. By God, sir, but this business is an unholy mongrel. If you wish to curry favor with charity, throw your gold by the road and be satisfied. But to mix the laxness of charity with the discipline of business, that, Lord Lawrence, is a contemptible crossbreed. But what has happened? What has not happened? They are cunning creatures. They know I have no power to dismiss them, so they laze about and cry foul at all orders. I cannot fire them. I cannot hire others. The only discipline I have is the whip. This charitable venture has become the most brutal workplace in all England. I'm sure of it. We beat someone every day. It does no good. These brutes are used to pain. I had to whip a man before lunch. When I returned, I found him and over half our woven wool gone. Gone. Sir, that that man, Jake, the man I left in charge, he claims ignorance. He's probably expecting a cut. We are training them better in sloth, theft and fraud than poverty could ever have done. A dozen industrious men approach me every day begging for work. I have to say, sorry, your muscles are too hard, your eyes too honest, your thrift too strong for our floor. It is a crying shame. Please, sir, please give me the power to hire and fire or this venture will consume itself. Lawrence frowned. It's no use, Mr. Footer. We must prevail. They will learn. They are learning, sir. They are learning the exact opposite of what we wanted to teach them. How will that change? They are still bitter from their hardships, Mr. Footer, said Lawrence, patiently. They are unused to their fortune. It will come. I do not mind keeping them on, sir, said Adam desperately. There are a few honest ones still, but without the power to hire good workers, they they have no examples but each other, and they cannot help but see that sloth is no more punished than work is rewarded. They respond as most would. They laze and loathe labor. Let me keep them on and treat them as any other workers. If they work, they will be praised. If they do not, please let me fire them. Otherwise, all will suffer. That turns against the whole purpose, cried Lawrence. I will not break my promise. They have been betrayed enough by life. I know nothing of this life, sir, but, but I know that your approach makes them betray everyone, themselves, you, me. They learned no sense from their lives. We teach them no sense in their work. Where will it come from? Mr. Footer, I understand your desire to make a profit, but we shall make a profit, and not just in money. We will rescue souls, Mr. Footer, but to do that we must be patient. Souls, muttered Adam. Sir, you cannot save the souls of bad men with good intentions. That is how it will be. Adam turned away, curling his hands into fists. He felt the rising bile, the grating frustration that makes one suddenly curse a dream. He could not understand why Lawrence did not feel it as well. What drove the man's compulsions? It seemed too gruesome a mystery. I have known strange ones in my days, thought Adam, but he is the only one with enough money to help. Oh, stupid, stupid world! Very well, sir, he said finally, turning back to Lawrence. Then I have no choice but to ask for extra funds. Lawrence stepped back as if Adam had pulled a knife. Why? he demanded. Adam wagged a finger sadly. Ah, there is the look I feared. But I will not be ashamed for what I cannot control. We must replace the wool that was stolen. We must find more non-workers, 
We must repair the damaged looms, and we still have not paid for the cost of repairing the late jigger's barn, and we will need firewood. Come winter, this all costs. How much? I've written it all down, sir, said Adam, pulling a neatly folded piece of paper from his breast pocket. Lawrence unfolded it and stared at the numbers, shuddering as his eyes ran down the page. When he saw the final sum, he, he put his hand on his heart. Net cost of hiring these workers, sir, said Adam evenly. If we hired honest folk, we would not have to provide housing, replace stolen goods, burnt barns or broken looms, and we would get more than double the productivity. These are the costs, sir. They cannot be lowered, save by doing business sensibly or closing it down entirely. Lawrence swallowed. It is more than I expected. This is why I am fighting so hard, sir said Adam urgently. Both our reputations are at stake. I went to the market the other day and had to apologize to the merchant expecting our cloth. What's the matter with these looms, man, Adam, he said. It's not the looms, master, but the workers. A sorry excuse, he replied. I can give you the names of fifty good men. That's not possible, I said, as it doesn't reflect the plan. Well, my plan, man, Adam, he replied, is to buy and sell cloth, and if you can't provide, I shall go elsewhere. I promised him cloth within a week, but I can't stay awake forever, and, and when I sleep, goods are stolen and, and looms broken. In business, I have never disgraced my promise. In this business, I don't know how to keep it. Lawrence sighed deeply. Oh, look, I cannot break my promise to my sister or to Miss O'Donnell. I shall approve these costs, though they gouge me deeply. Then, sir, said Adam, producing another piece of paper, would you sign this statement to the effect that you reject my sound business advice? I, I, I may need it in the years to come. Lawrence took the paper and stared at it. "'What is keeping you here, Adam?' he asked suddenly. Adam shook his head sadly. "'A devil's bargain, sir. Desperate for backing, I signed with you. Now I would find it almost impossible to find another investor. Anyone who has heard of my looms has heard of this place. I must find a way to make it work, else all will be lost. "'I'm sorry. It is so hard. I did not expect this either.' Sir, said Adam, you have the privilege of conscience. It is a costly pet. I know, I signed the bills. Lawrence scribbled his name on the bottom of the paper and handed it back to the merchant. Now, I am leaving for London in the morning, he said. What? asked Adam, looking up sharply. For how long? A month or two. Adam stared at him, shocked. What? You, you, you are leaving for a month or two? "'What on earth?' said Lawrence, confused. "'I will give you my address.' "'That's not the point, sir,' cried Adam. "'Were this shop running smoothly, I would wave you off with a smile. "'But we are at a very uncertain juncture. "'We have no idea what all the expenses could be. "'We've made no plans for shipments or, or storage or anything. "'I cannot arrange for all this, as well as oversee the factory, "'which at present runs for over eleven hours a day. "'We cannot afford more help.' "'Adam's lips twisted. "'We could if—' And what will I do if and when I need more money? Write to me. Adam paused, then shook his head. No, that's no good. Why not? By mail? Two weeks to London. A week to respond. Two weeks to get back. Over a month between request and response. It's too uncertain. This is a day-by-day -day venture. It requires close supervision. What do you want then? Adam took a deep breath. I need an authorization on your accounts. Lawrence hesitated. I am uncomfortable with that. 
You authorized me to purchase in your name in London. I did not abuse it. I don't mean that. As far as that goes, I trust you completely. But this project has cost me a good portion of my fortune. The looms, the factory, the wages, and now these new expenses. My trip to London will not be free. I'm getting in over my head. Given your approach, this is unavoidable. Lawrence tugged at his beard. Damn it, he thought angrily. I, I know, I know. Is there no other way? I cannot continue as overseer without access to funds, said Adam firmly. Then, said Lawrence slowly, and I must grant that too. There was a short silence. The sun shrugged and sank below the horizon in disgust. Lawrence wished he could follow it. Sir, said Adam after a while, what? On a personal note, I wonder about something. Do you? What's that? This may be completely out of place, but have you ever wondered about Miss O'Donnell's motives? Excuse me? said Lawrence, oddly nervous. She is the original author of this scheme, yes? Yes. And you feel bound to her for a past wrong, correct? Yes. Adam paused. Well, he said carefully, if I had a mind to revenge myself on a man of privilege, and if that man's privilege depended on money, I could find no better way than hers. Lawrence trembled violently. What? It is just a thought. Sir, you know her better than I. Lawrence shook his head. No. She's trying to do right. I am certain of it. She, she is correct. There must be some sacrifice. Perhaps, replied Adam. He turned to the door, then turned back. His face was dark in the twilight. He asked, Yet must that sacrifice always be yours? Chapter 42 An Underdog's Howl Aye, scowled Jake, striding before the seated workers. Ye sit and sip the fruits of my yardy art without a scowl, but when I say we must scan further, ye all get pale and trembly and say we must be grateful for the crumbs we find beneath their creaking tables. One of the women stood, her infant silent on her breast. Ye have won us precious prizes, Jake. There's number sense who would speak otherwise. Yet ye have snakes spit in your art as well, and should we risk our new fortune for the sake of your venom alone? A short, old, hollow-chested man called Sunken Sam nodded. We've sailed into a strange land, sure, and the lay of these woods are hard to spy. You've beaten a certain path to feastings. My pockets are heavier, to be true, but my back can't take many more lashings. Have I led ye false as yet? demanded Jake, his twisted face yellow in the candlelight. We know they want to help us, to lift us from the shame they call our souls. They go bending us over these mad machines, helping. Yeah, we know that Mary O'Donnell has spoken to us of the rightful lazings of labour, and she says it is our right to stretch our legs for more than a moment a day. The woman shifted the infant in her arms. And I say, Jake the Red, that if we keep snarling in the face of this kindness, however strange this kindness beats down on us, we will again walk them old roads, and them roads will be as endless as ever. Aye, Mavis, sneered Jake, and ye speak as one who has a shiny new squalor pressed to her evies. Yet we young men can't expect chillin' in this place. We all know time as our own, and is spat on by the eye pretties of the village, same as always. 
How is we are supposed to live like men? It's wrapped up that ye with youngins want to squat pretty and nod and grin, but some of us can't, not if we want what ye've already got. So what do you want? asked a man. We can't ride the horses of our natural arts until we be respectful men, until we can shrug the shreddings off our backs. We can't sun into smiles of pretty lasses until we can call our hands and homes our own. We be nothing but charity cases here, low-down squalors and scurvy crumb-gatherers, smiling slaves and begging dogs. I say we can do without a merchant, without his scorns and lashings. I say that we can take our reins in our own hands, and if they want to help us, they'll let us live free. So what? asked Sunken Sam scornfully. So we says to Adam, please, sir, we wants to play like big people, so off with you and leave us be. Damn fool, cried another man. They just dump us in a ditch and let the sunrise be our roof again. But they ain't, cried Jake. They ain't yet, have they? And we all know the why of that. It's a cause of Mary, who says treat them as respectful souls. And so far they said yea to all our askings. And beating us for axing, put in an old woman. And for not working when I had to snap their fingers. And for being tired. And for catching a stretch of sun when the day is good. And ye be whiny dogs for taking it, shouted Jake, his cheeks purple. These iron mighties be breaking us in two for their tables, and all you do is thank them for it. My back's crosser than any of yours, cause and I see the difference between their pounds and our pennies. They want to fatten themselves with kindness, so they try beating us into their shadows. But they weren't beaten into their gold. They beat it out of souls like us. Lord Larry's escaping to London. I heard the words myself. So I say we turf the merchant and take the looms ourselves. And if there's justice to it, it'll be the justice of those who take what's already theirs. It's too risky, said Mavis nervously. He could return and loosen us again. Aye, well, if it's risky be darting from, I'll speak soft and simple. If ye quail afore this courage, ye may wake one fine night to find this pretty nest in flames. And then you'll be breathing happy to escape to the fields with all your skin. There was a long silence after Jake's words. But if we take this step, we shall hold the eye pride of free souls, he said eventually. And that must be the true end of our sorry lives. The others stared at him. The candles sketched shadows through his bitter eyes. They stared at him, fearful of his threats, but they felt something stir in them, something buried beneath the weight of old misery and hated scars, something that struggled to wake before the trumpets of a certain dream of freedom. They felt this strangled hope. It rose, warring with fear and shame and hatred, and it took many hours of angry words before their course was decided. Chapter 43 The Walls Close The priest swallowed. His vision seemed to blur at the edges. What? Nothing? He asked, his mouth dry. I did not say nothing, replied Lady Barbara, sitting her tea and watching him carefully. I merely said nothing from me. Father Jones rose, patting the back of his hair. This is most dire, he stammered. I am in no position to take such a loss. 
I must post my accounts within the month. There will be questions. No doubt. I, d I don't understand. What, what, what has brought on such a change? A whim of the old world, replied Lady Barbara. My late husband, bless his soul, decided, naturally enough, to turn the family fortune over to Lawrence on his twenty-fifth birthday. This has occurred. Would you like to speak to him? Father Jones shook his head dejectedly. I, I suppose I I'd better. He was, he was good company last night. Lady Barbara summoned the maid. Joyce entered and was told to summon some soap for her face before summoning Lawrence. Father Jones sat back down in a plush armchair, crossing his legs primly. He picked up a little china figurine from the coffee table and turned it over in his hands. "'I suppose these shall all be made in factories soon,' he said sadly, looking up at Lady Barbara. "'It is an awful trial.' Lady Barbara smiled. "'Some see it as a challenge, Father Jones. Neither the first nor the last.' Lawrence came into the room, his face flushed from packing. "'You called?' he asked. "'Please sit down, Lawrence,' said Lady Barbara, gesturing to a chair opposite the priest. "'This morning Father Jones came to ask for our tithe,' she said. Lawrence frowned, thinking, "'Tithe? My God, but doesn't that sound like a word from another time? I'd completely forgotten.' "'As you may know,' continued his mother, we have been a central pillar of this parish's finances for centuries. Many of the good works, distributing Bibles, aiding and educating the poor, and so on, have been largely paid for by our generosity. She paused, waiting for a response. This is called a tithe, she said slowly. Yes, mother, said Lawrence impatiently, I know that. Good enough, she said. When I had control of the finances, I always paid the tithe at this time of year. Some prefer monthly. I chose annually. Now, I have been looking at the ledgers. Really, Larry, did you hold your pencil between your teeth when you wrote them? And I have calculated our tithe, our ten percent. Lady Barbara pushed a piece of paper over to Lawrence, who leaned forward and picked it up, sick at heart. Not another one. You're welcome, said Lady Barbara. What? scowled Lawrence. Oh, heavens of all times. Yes, thank you. He took a deep breath, flinching at the number he saw. This, this is, is, is astounding. This is more than I promised yesterday. Promised? asked his mother sharply. To whom? To, to Mr. Fuller, said Lawrence absently, for, for improvements and, and, and repairs. We also help the poor, reminded Father Jones. Yes, but in a different way, said Lawrence, still staring at the paper. Lady Barbara smiled. Well, since, as a real grown-up, you want to play with all the money, I think it is only right that you take on the responsibilities as well. Give me a pencil, said Lawrence. Oh, am I a maid now? asked his mother. Give me a pencil, repeated Lawrence angrily. Father Jones jumped up, fumbling in his pocket. Here, here, he said, passing him a pencil. Lawrence's brow furrowed. These sums, you have checked them, he asked. Of course smiled Lady Barbara. "'I suppose they're right,' murmured Lawrence, his pencil flying over the paper. "'Good Lord, that can't be right. Oh, yes, the grain, of course. And this? Yes, the irrigation. And the fertilizer, the, the, the guano, lime, gypsum, and marl. And the salaries. And the London bills. 
He rubbed his face with his free hand. And that total is... He looked up. Yes. It is correct, to, to the best of my knowledge. He took a deep breath. But it... It cannot be paid. Excuse me, asked his mother coldly. Yes, no, it, it cannot be paid. You heard me, said Lawrence, sitting back in a chair, his face fixed. Oh, dear, said Father Jones, clasping his hands and glancing at Lady Barbara helplessly. Cannot be paid, said Lady Barbara slowly. Cannot be paid. You have controlled our money for one month, and it cannot be paid. Well, I mean, yes, it could be paid, but, but that would be the end of two things, said Lawrence. Selfishness and idiocy, asked Lady Barbara. Lawrence sighed. Oh, no, mother. If I pay this, I cannot afford to ship any of this year's grain. There will be no profit from our improvements. How, then, will we be able to pay for next year's improvements? Shall I ring for Mary? asked Lady Barbara, picking up the bell. I'm sure she will give us some comprehensive solution based on her vast experience in these matters. Father Jones frowned. Surely next year's improvements will not be as expensive as this year's, he said. I was under the impression that they were largely structural. Strictly speaking, yes, replied Lawrence, but I couldn't get the farmers to save their livestock's manure or make the irrigation efforts last. Few of them planted turnips, and, and those who did, did it poorly, and the benefits of crop rotation won't show up right away. Much of the soil is exhausted. So we have a pretty good return this year, all things considered. But next year, we will have to buy more mature. Surely not too expensive, said Father Jones. Lawrence shook his head. It needs to be treated properly. Plus, we will have to reinforce all the irrigation systems, buy additional seedlings and hire extra manpower to ensure the crops are all rotated well and planted properly. This is all highly skilled labor. I can't be everywhere at once, and, and it all has to be paid for. Lawrence put the priest's pencil down and rubbed his face. But most importantly, if we let this process go, you know we are going to London partly to preach agricultural reform. If we let it go, we shall fall behind the other landowners. I know how long it takes to effect real change, but the second round is always easier. We may be overtaken, and, and then we will simply have labored long and hard to line the pockets of others. Yes, I, I understand that the pace of reform will lessen, said Father Jones. But really, Lord Carvey, is that the only variable in the equation? Look, I understand your position, replied Lawrence. You are expecting a certain sum. You have every right to expect that. It was always provided. Yet it comes to me at an inopportune time. I had no chance to arrange matters to satisfy it. I am overextended. I am in an impossible situation. Impossible, cried Lady Barbara. What foolishness. Oh, excuse me, says the fop to the taxman. Pardon me, I am overextended. I had to have my silk shirt and stockings. I have to take my trips to Paris. The taxman laughs and says, why, that just won't do, my man. You shall simply have to give up some of your luxuries. You see, Larry, you are taking your whims as absolutes, so naturally you see your situation as impossible. Yet your trip to London is not a quest of the gods. Your patronage of Mary is not an eleventh commandment. Your obsession with criminals does not guarantee you entrance to heaven. Your fiscal guilt about your sister does not fall under the category of duties to the realm. You have chosen these foolish goals. You cannot argue from impossibility. Lawrence sat and looked at his hands. For a long time, thinking, 
Don't throttle. Don't throttle. What do you suggest I do? He asked finally, buying time for self-restraint. Lady Barbara started to say something sarcastic, but with all the eerie sensitivity of a controlling soul, saw his expression and instantly changed her tack. Larry, she said gently, you do not have to save all the world at once. Even Christ did not try that. Improve your lands, yes. I know I have been harsh, but age is inflexible, and I cannot apologize for years. Improve our lands, that is progress enough for one year. But to try improving your lands while saving sixty-odd souls from poverty, starting a factory, rescuing Kay, elevating Mary to a position of influence, setting up a system of distribution, as well as, perhaps, falling in love. Yes, I am old, but not blind. That is heaping your plate to the breaking point. You cannot do everything at once. Shed some weight. She smiled. For instance, why are these destitutes working at your factory while Mary is sitting about our house? Put her to work with them if you feel guilty about her. Let things take their course with Jonathan and Kay. You do not need to give her half our your fortune to make her attractive. As for this factory, if you want to save these poor people, turn them over to Father Jones. They must take instruction in life before taking instruction in work. It breaks my heart to see you overextending yourself in this way, Larry, especially when it causes you to reject our real responsibilities as landowners, the improvement of morals, taste, and civility, when it causes you to destroy the church. Father Jones cannot survive on pennies in the box. He needs your help. That is the arrangement. Lawrence paused, almost seduced by her words. Sounds sensible, he thought. What is wrong with it? What, what? Then, in a flash, he realized and rose from his chair. I will put my trust in my improvements, he said, turning to Father Jones. More than in yours. Larry, cried his mother. Father Jones put his hand to his mouth, shocked. Larry, said Lady Barbara, even if you are a heathen, you have a responsibility to the souls of others. Will you take their comfort away? What comfort? cried Lawrence. Don't you understand? This is the whole battle. I am the source of their comfort. The church counsels acceptance and, and patience, but does nothing to fill their bellies and feed their children. The church has had the world for a thousand years. What has improved? Wars, famine, pestilence, death. That is the legacy of the church. Look at my hands. Look at the wealth, the plenty, the joy. You want them back, Father Jones. You want them back in the fold, but you must take away their happiness to lure them back. This is the truth of this situation. I have chosen progress. I cannot solely fund those opposed to it, those opposed to happiness and the satisfactions of this world. Lawrence stopped, his heart pounding. Father Jones stood up as well, his face set. I hoped it would not come to this, said the priest slowly. We have tried to be civil. Now the consequences of your blasphemy must be laid bare. If you do not pay your tithe, you... Your lands and all within it will be excommunicated, not by me, but by the council of bishops. The church has an interest in this matter. It will not tolerate dissent. You shall be made an example of. Excommunicated, 
Lawrence Turner Carvey, said Lady Barbara, rapping the table with her knuckles. No mass, no absolution, no burials, no baptizing, no confirmation. The villagers may sometimes sleep in on Sundays to recover from their drink, but would they stand for no church at all? Lawrence shook his head violently. If they don't, they can move. The choice will be theirs. Live happily without prayer or pray in vain for happiness. I think I know what they will choose. They will shrug, eat well, and worship life. And then God, if they choose in their own homes. And me! Thundered Lady Barbara, making Lawrence flinch. What should I do? she demanded. Should I stand before God himself? As I shall do, and not before long. Should I stand before him and say, Sorry I did not attend Mass in my last years. Sorry I did not receive absolution and was not buried in holy ground. Details, my son says, but foolishly important to you, my lord. I'm sorry I did not perform the duties demanded of me as an honest Christian, but you see, my son decided to go off to London. What will God say to me then? Did you teach him to honour his mother as I commanded? Did you fight him with everything at your command? Did you cast aside all parental love for the sake of me as I demanded of Abraham? What would you have me reply to God, Larry? Perhaps hell does not exist for those who don't believe in it, but it is very real to me. And you are sending me there. I have no patience for these absurdities, shouted Lawrence beside himself. Your beliefs are your own business. I will not fund them. Why don't you let us go? He demanded, tears suddenly stinging his eyes. Dear God, you oppress us. You press down upon us. Kay is right. You suffocate us. Everywhere we turn, we break our noses on your opinions. Why are you so involved? We can't take a breath without making you cough. We must... We must live our own lives. Make our own mistakes. That is the right of all free souls. Look at, look at Lord Serbs. Does he choke his child every time he moves his hands? Look at Jonathan. Does he have to write home for permission every time he wants a biscuit? For heaven's sake, mother, you may be wrong. This may be the wrong way to be a mother. You disgust me, said Lady Barbara, her face white with rage. You have spoken your mind clearly to me. For that, I thank you. I know where I stand. I hope your words satisfied you, for they are the last that will ever pass between us. You are absolutely right for the first time in your life, said Lawrence. He turned to Father Jones. I am sorry for your loss, but the world must change. With that, he turned and left the room, commanding himself not to slam the door. Father Jones stood in silence for a while, rubbing his temples. Well, he said hopelessly, that is that. Lady Barbara laughed harshly. Oh, that... Is by no means that, she said, ringing the bell. Now we call Kay. Lawrence walked down the hall, his hands trembling, dazed at the depth of his sudden passion. Poor Kay, he thought over and over with true loving sympathy. Poor, poor Kay. He wept deeply, suddenly, bitterly. Imagining an eternity in a silent house with that mother. An eternity of dodging that harsh, accusing 
voice, an eternity of sitting in one's room unable to breathe, an eternity of choking on silent fear while one's brother strode through sunny far-off lands, a stupid smile on his stupid, stupid face. I must find her, thought Lawrence blindly. She must be the first to hear a true apology. Wiping his tears, he went downstairs. Hasty resolutions are hastily enacted. That is their greatest danger. If Lawrence had stood in the hallway for another twenty seconds, he would not have missed the somber procession of the maid bringing Kay to the chamber where Father Jones and Lady Barbara waited in silence. Kay sat for over an hour, her soul dangling from a long rope woven by endless supplications, silent threats and veiled insults. Her mind was dazed by the changes of the past few weeks. When memories of early injustices first rise, they come as a tide that seems to wash away the entire self. The certainty of I was wronged on the imposition of I was wrong creates a terrible contradiction, a silent, vengeful war between justice and illusion. All the buried vengeance of the wronged child rises, burrowing under the wall of assumed goodness. All compliance is exposed as shocked cowardice. All obedience finally understood as brute fear. The almost murdered soul rises from its deep grave like a scarred bag filled with blood, demanding vengeance. Mary could have told Kay the whole story of avenging innocence. But Mary was sitting in her little room working on the speeches she planned to give in London. If she had sensed the danger Kay was in, she would have broken the door of that grim chamber with the hilt of a sword and entered slashing. But Mary's inner eye, for that moment turned to herself alone, saw nothing. And so Kay weighed by the endless pendulums of maternity, justice, and grand responsibility, circled by the self-appointed guardians of God and goodness, wavered on the loneliest border between self and silence. Chapter 44 Stripes Revealed Lord Serbs was in the garden reading when Lawrence came up to him and asked for Kay's whereabouts. I haven't seen her, said Lord Serbs, glancing up. But I haven't seen Jonathan either. I assume they are together. When she comes back, I need to speak to her, said Lawrence. You were upset, noted Lord Serbs, closing his book. To be honest, I have never seen such a house of upset. Lawrence sighed, lowering his head. Oh! I'm beginning to see why people just shut up and obey. Look at me. Where is this division? I, I can rebel against my own class, against tradition, habit, and God without raising my voice. Crossed by my mother, I become a raving lunatic. Lord Serbs nodded delicately. I don't wish to change the subject, but I would dearly like to see your factory before we leave. Is it far? No, about half an hour by horse. Sometimes... The best remedy for personal upset is to survey one's achievements, said Lord Serbs. I say this not only because of my wishes, but from long experience. Oh, and of course you are constantly rejected, 
said Lawrence. One reads the headlines all the time. Lord Serb's still the toast of the town, but some seen not clinking their glasses hard enough. Lord Serb's laughed. <laughs> it is invigorating to see the passions of youth in full flight. It is also amusing to see them working so hard to imagine that they invented both society and rebellion at their birth. Of course I have been rejected. My father scowled at rails when I declined a career in public service. My mother sighed and fought when I married against her wishes. Most men laugh at my version of fatherhood. Then where is the difference? How are you so content? The difference, dear Lawrence, is time. As the years go by, one realizes that these things, though harsh at the time, scar little in the long run. Upset fades, contentment and self-respect mature. Why, if being strong were easy, wouldn't everyone do it? I suppose that's true, said Lawrence, touching his lips. Tell me, do you pay your tithe? Lord Serbs looked surprised, almost offended. Certainly not. No, apparently I don't either, as of now. The older man nodded. Ah, that's hard. It was easier for me. My parents died before I took the risk of imperiling their souls. The pressure the church brought to bear was most intense. I was publicly branded, excommunicated, humiliated in every way. I tell you, I would rather owe money to a thief than a priest. Standing firm was very hard on Lydia as well as myself. But trust me, this turmoil will pass. I know this doesn't help now. It's the worst kind of advice, the kind that, when given, is quite meaningless and when finally understood, completely unnecessary. Lord Serbs smiled. You are thoroughly entitled to your discontent, as long as you indulge the wishes of your guests. Lawrence smiled in return, and suddenly decided that Kay was nowhere to be found. Quite right. I just want to tidy myself up. Give me ten minutes and meet me at the stables. Lord Serbs nodded and rose. The ride to the factory was pleasant at first. Clouds scudded by hurriedly, as if late for an annual convention of vapour. After fifteen minutes, however, the convention seemed to have started, for the late clouds suddenly stopped and vented their frustration on the innocent landscape. Neither man had brought protection against the elements. Their hats quickly became sodden and shapeless. Coming over the final hill, they were treated to a most unbusinesslike sound. Adam Footer's voice mingled with angry male voices. The argument sounded as if it were getting quite out of hand. "'Good Lord!' exclaimed Lord Serbs. "'Damn it!' cried Lawrence, spurring his horse forward. It had been a hard day for Adam. The workers had refused to touch their looms. They were making more and more demands. Adam stood shouting, brandishing a whip. He was ringed by fifteen or so men. The red-haired man was shouting something back. About thirty other souls stood at a distance, hanging on every word. "'I told ye before, and I'll tell ye again, we can't work a dozen hours at a stretch!' shouted the red-haired man. "'And I suppose you want foot rubs and little girls feeding you grapes as well!' cried Adam. "'You get two half-hour breaks a day, and all Sunday off. These are easier terms than any other workplace I know!' "'This ain't any other workplace!' sneered Jake. "'We ain't out of score. We are supposed to be helped, but working us to skin and bone ain't helping!' "'Yes!' You are supposed to be helped, but you're also supposed to be doing some of the helping yourselves. Help ourselves, cried Jake, shaking his head. Do you hear the words, lads? Help ourselves. Kicked in the gutter afore we learned to walk. 
Kicked it head every time we tried to lift it, beaten and driven off by every single folk in these good christened lands. And now, brothers, we are supposed to help ourselves like good little children. Well, we is helping ourselves, Master Footer. We is working, we is rising early, and we is breaking our fingers on your damn wool. But we ain't about to be taken for nothing. Taken for nothing, shouted Adam. Taken for nothing. You're paid. And who the hell else would hire you? What is the meaning of this? cried Lawrence from the doorway. Aye, good morning, Lord. They want a shorter workday, said Adam bitterly, snapping his fingers. That's for our generosity. He is our good master, come like an army to save the day, jeered Jake, winking at his fellows, who laughed harshly, their arms tensing. What? You heard me, said Adam, wiping his face. They want ten hours a stretch like any river cruise. Do you... do you all agree? asked Lawrence, turning to the workers. They stood silently, watching him. They ain't know what they want, snarled Jake. They're just the sheep ye hoped for. But we ain't all sheep, sir and master. Some of us be men, and we know what's what. I don't understand, said Lawrence, acutely aware that Lord Serbs was standing by the door. You, you are here by charity. We hired you with the best intentions. Why are you trying to take advantage of us? Advantage, laughed Jake. The other men echoed him. Our eyes is going squinny with staring. We can't scratch ourselves, we ants be such claws. We live in this damn loony bin cause and Chris and folk won't have us. We can't spend our little coins cause Chris and folk won't sell to us. I tell you, good sir, I ate better on the open road, slept better under trees, and could call me ours me sovereign own. If there be any advantage, Lord, it'd be all yours. I sold myself to ye for hope. I'm now spying that I sold me soul, me manhood, and me freedom so ye could live in a big house and swallow fat meals. What? what? So what do you want? Asked Lawrence, passing a hand over his eyes. We want a shiner time for ourselves, said Jake. We want more than a floor to live on, said another. Perhaps we want families, said another, because we can't raise young'uns at the foot of looms. Good workers come with homes, Lord Carvey said Adam evenly. Good workers come with gratitude and hard work. With good workers you aren't competing with begging as an occupation. Ye scurvy stripe slasher, snarled Jake. Do you own dear lashings? Aye, Lord, he said, turning his back to Lawrence and raising his shirt. Do you say these pretty scratches? Newgate left me no such lines. I had to become an honest worker to be thus early treated. Is that right? murmured Lord Serbs, shocked. If you steal, cried Adam, if you shirk, if you, if you break your machine so you can laze about, you will be whipped. I cannot fire you, he said loudly, so you must be beaten. You are shocked, sir, he said, looking at Lord Serbs, and right you should be. I had no mind to become a slave driver. Good Lord, said Lord Serbs, looking at Lawrence with a pale face. What have you been doing? Helping said Lawrence grimly. Laziness must learn discipline. It is for their own good. You, Jake, red hair. Yes, you. Are you the instigator of all this? I ain't no instabator, sir, said Jake defiantly, lowering his shirt and turning around. I only tells them what's what. Look, here, sir. You've lost a few men already. Even one of the lass escaped all this. Ye are a shining beacon, a goodly knight of better things. But we have a right to what's ours. The road still calls us for all of us. There we can live free, though hated. This ain't much better, as I see it. 
Our muscles ain't set for hard work. We be weak from our freedoms. Lord, that's a truth from a righteous tongue. Testify, brother, cried a man. We can't do what he acts, agreed another man. We get tired, echoed another. The lasses fall on their asses, said another, and we have to pick up what they drop. Lawrence paused, pursing his lips. Did you inform me of all this, Adam? he asked. I said, sir, that if it's a charity, let's have food and dancing. If it's a business, let's have hard, honest work. The two don't see eye to eye. Never will in this world, I fear. Lawrence scowled. The mantra rang in his ears. Sacrifice, sacrifice. Then we must have more charity, he said slowly. Eleven hours a day, half Saturdays off. Jake's face broke into a grin. Yeah, that, lads? We be seen by clear eyes. You, sir, are a prince and a nobleman. You shan't be disappointed. When we get our strength up and our eyes adjust, we'll spit wool like a river of sheep. Good, said Lawrence uncertainly. And, Adam, I have brought the authorization giving you access to my accounts. Adam stared at him in shock, then shook his head. No, sir, I ask for no such thing, he said firmly. What? asked Lawrence, astounded. Last night you... I was in town... Last night, sir, said Adam slowly, you must have me confused with one of your farmers. I would not be such a fool as to ask for such an authorization. This lot would be at me like flies on a carcass if they thought I had control over the funds. Lawrence nodded slowly, understanding. Yes, I I am sorry. I I have indeed mixed you up with someone else. Behind Adam, Jake smiled. Adam shook his head, scowling, then glanced at Lord Serbs. "'Will you be long in the district, good sir?' he asked with a sudden smile. "'Until this evening, Mr. Footer,' replied Lord Serbs. "'Ah, that's a shame. You look like a man of business. "'I have a friend with looms all his own. If this interests you, I would love to write.' Lord Serbs hesitated. "'I'm afraid I have all the business I can handle at present, but but thank you for the offer.' Adam's face fell. "'I, right you are. In the future—' Perhaps we will be able to talk? Lord Serbs nodded, then glanced at Lord Carvey. My curiosity is fully satisfied, Lord Carvey, he said quietly. Lawrence turned away angrily. Very well. They rode home in silence. Chapter 45 A Spurned and Spurning Man Squire Pounder had only two loves. He had rejected the first, and been rejected by the second. This was a strange position to be in. It spoke of a man with odd passions who was failing to manage them very well. He woke early, feeling a tickling sensation in his heart. It was a familiar feeling. It had been with him since he was a young boy. He had first viewed it as a crush It came on him when he went to market with his mother and watched the haggling. Calling it a young boy's fancy, he waited for it to pass. In puberty, the feeling had grown to infatuation, and the young pounder would sit in the pub with his father, totally absorbed with the talk of the merchants. By the time he grew into a man, his feeling had swelled to the heady certainty of love. 
his mistress, was the call of the coin. And it was a demanding relationship. The call of the coin was not sheer materialism, for Squire Pounder held that philosophy in low esteem. Neither was it merely getting rich, for he spent money as quickly as he earned it. The call of the coin was his name for his love affair with the market. Now, it may seem odd that a man can have a love affair with the market, but many a woman can testify to the opposite and cite situations of seductive undress utterly thwarted by the allure of a bulging briefcase. These women understand that with the men they love, they will always be competing with a mistress, a mistress whose mystery, desirability, and seductiveness rival even the most beautiful of consorts. This mistress is not any particular market or any particular transaction, or the idea of the market, but the sum total of a life spent in pursuit of the deal. The deal is the consummation of the call of the coin. It is the sweet, wondrous moment when agreement is reached, papers signed, money passed, and goods begin to flow. A lumberjack prying the last tree free of a logjam and seeing the rolling trunks begin again to flow downstream feels the same exultation. A man struggling in the folds of a foreign language feels the same joy when he finds himself able to think in that language. An artist, finding that his creation has somehow transcended his craft and breathes complete, utters the same cry of happiness. It is the moment of completion, of certainty, of disciplined bliss, a pleasure that is transcendent, addictive, and extremely hard to come by. For Squire Pounder, the call of the coin was a singular driving passion, as rich and deep as any that has driven great artists. He lay awake at night, plans and contracts whirring through his head, possibilities, customers, financing, marketing, guarantees, improvements, the infinite aspects of business raced through his mind, challenging him, stimulating him, exciting him. He wrote lovesick letters at three in the morning to distant and perplexed bankers. He followed men of capital like a domesticated chivalric knight. He persisted in his dream like an unknown artist certain of posthumous fame. What drove him? Was it money? Was it fame, reputation, glory, recognition, status, or even that odd thing called success? There is no way of answering that. We can ask any great artist the same question, and would only hear the words that tell everything and nothing. Because I had to. A woman asked why she adores her husband, may list a few or a few hundred qualities. But in the end, it is something beyond words. It simply is. I am, therefore I love him. The call of the coin was not a choice on the part of Squire Pounder. It was a piece of his soul. It was his soul, perhaps. Did he achieve success? 
That is hard to say. Famous artists are often miserable and look back on their salad days with envious nostalgia. Those who know themselves know that fame is only one tiny variable in the infinite equation of the soul. Wealth, too, by all reports. Success is not measured by the achievement of a thing or status, income, recognition, or any single event. None can ever rightly say, my success is now. Success is a state closer to the heart than the head. It is measured by the approval of inner eyes, not the applause of anonymous hands. If these are our measures of success, then Squire Pounder was a success, for he was rabidly happy. He was, that is, until his mother died. Squire Pounder had only some feelings for his mother, or his father for that matter, since he displayed one of the time-honored symptoms of the talented, which is that no single human being can ever be quite as real to them as their own abilities. However, Squire Pounder's ability to follow the call of the coin had been greatly enhanced by his ability to keep his word. And this great virtue, so essential for good business, was also the cause of his estrangement from his first love. His mother, on her deathbed, wrung from him a promise to achieve rank, a promise that he never regarded as anything less than an absolute commandment. Thus, he was forced to damn the flow of his natural soul. Squire Pounder became what he most despised, a merchant in hot pursuit of aristocracy. By saving Lord Serbs, he established his station. He took his achievement very seriously and applied all his customary energy to achieving success in his new life. He studied music, art, literature, politics. In short, he became a true aristocrat by immersing himself in a culture he could not possibly add to. His natural bent being so far from pale imitation, however, he soon found himself chafing at the uselessness of his life. Married to a hated station, he began to consider an affair. And, like all romantics, his first thought was for his first love. Thus, when he awoke that particular morning and felt the familiar tickling sensation in his heart, he felt, like all adulterers, both excited and ashamed. He knew sure as breath that he was going to end up down at the market. He knew this with all the guilty certainty of a man addicted to cheap women or expensive drugs. Again, like all adulterers, he fought himself in a purely symbolic manner, failing to realize that teasing is also seduction. I shall read about gallery openings, he thought at breakfast, turning quickly past the stock pages. I shall dress as a gentleman, he thought after breakfast, striving against thoughts of rummaging through grain. I shall go for a walk in High Park, he thought on leaving his house, though his feet began to drift in the direction of Kensington Gardens. And so it was that, with a surprise only half feigned, 
Squire Pounder turned a corner and saw before him all the power, mystery, and energy of the call of the coin. If love is music, he beheld a symphony. If love is passion, he beheld an opera penned by a megalomaniac. If love is serenity, he beheld a boatload of Gujarati ascetics dreaming on the Ganges. If love is sacrifice, he beheld a legion of wounded soldiers defending a city of wounded children. But the call of the coin is its own special love, and what he saw fitted exactly. There's shouting, hawking, arguing, bartering, jeering, bellowing, crying, and occasionally a barker's sing-song fell on his ears like a good rain on thirsty crops. To the uninitiated, or to those whose passions run screaming in the opposite direction, it all sounded like a brutal cacophony, but then the same could be said for opera. The sounds of the market were as sweet to Squire Pounder's ears as the purity of a seasoned soprano's voice is to a lover of the loudest art. Squire Pounder stood in the richly scented sunlight and felt his heart swell with yearning. He stared like a child lost in a land of eternal Christmas. His hands twitched like those of a violinist just out of jail. One little deal would I be so disgraced, he thought, taunting himself. It was almost unbearable, for he was now a gentleman doomed to eternal consumption. Squire Pounder took an outdoor table at a nearby restaurant, a table which gave him a good view of the market. If pressed, I, I can claim anthropological purposes, he thought, knowing it to be pure justification, but happy for the excuse. Ordering a drink, he sat back and watched. After only a few minutes, he was assailed by the voice of an old friend, Harold Clapsdance. Harold had risen from the gutter on the wings of talent, just as Squire Pounder had, and they were on very good terms for businessmen, having sued each other only twice. Harold had also elevated himself from the squalling mayhem of the market to the dusty shelf of nobility by purchasing a minor title. Squire of Kensington, or something of the sort. He was an astoundingly obese man. The Royal Commission had tried to charge him extra, reasoning that, pound for pound, he was in fact buying two titles, but he threatened to sue them for libel. And they, being utterly unused to such treatment, nobly declined to pursue the matter. "'Why, Mr. Pounder!' cried Harold, lurching into a seat opposite Squire Pounder. "'No, but it's Squire Pounder now, isn't it?' What's a titled rogue like you doing here? Same as yourself, I suppose, replied Squire Pounder. Missing old times. And you? Ah, you have me there, grinned Harold, signalling the waiter, who appeared immediately, apparently assuming that such a quantity of food would be ordered that he might retire on the tip. Two haddock blankets, wheezed Harold, fingering the menu and licking his lips. Two... "'Shepherd's pies, two plates of jam butties, and three pints of lime and lager.' Squire Pounder glanced up and shook his head. The waiter stared at Harold, bowed respectfully, and left. "'Married?' asked Harold, 
taking a piece of bread from a neighbouring table and wishing its startled occupants bon appetit. Squire Pounder grimaced, rejected. Harold stopped, chewing, an action so uncommon that it indicated great surprise, and looked at Squire Pounder in a very perplexed manner. Rejected? Can this be? he asked. The man who sold marine insurance to a fishmonger? Rejected? By heavens, it seems that I've been getting large and soft while you've only been getting soft. Who is she? You wouldn't know her. Oh, no. Remember, we're all gentlemen now. Daughter of an old-timer? He asked, using a phrase which referred to any aristocrat with more than one generation behind him. Yes. Really in love or just ambitious in love? Asked Harold, resuming his bread compaction. Really, I think, said Squire Pounder, looking away. Hard to tell. You know how everything goes topsy-turvy when you elevate yourself. I can't believe you took no for an answer, said Harold. When we were working on the Sheffield deal, you were so persuasive I think you could have convinced me to marry you. Will you marry me? smiled Squire Pounder. Harry shook his head. You see, it's not believable any more. A great, great shame. She slapped me. And? And I think she meant it. Oh, yes, of course. Listen, when Ethel doesn't slap me, I know she's bored. A slap is always passionate. You just have to channel it. Do you think so? asked Squire Pounder, looking up quickly. Where is the woman now? God, exhaled Squire Pounder, rolling his eyes somewhere in Dorset. So go to Dorset. If there's a love test in England, it's got to be going to Dorset. It'd be like bringing her a dragon's head, saying, Look what boredom I will endure for you, my love. Harold sighed. Christ, it's the only dragon left, seems like. I should go, murmured Squire Pounder. Well, said Harold, with great exaggeration, unless there are pressing matters keeping you here for the next few weeks. No, you're right. I should go, said Squire Pounder resolutely. Harold grinned. Now that I believed. The haddocks were brought, and the waiter placed one plate before each of them. Squire Pounder started to protest. No, one's for you, exclaimed Harold. Aren't you hungry? I thought they were for you. Old times, my man. I'm on a diet now. Doctor's orders. Gout. Don't look at my leg. But you ordered three beers. Harold shrugged. It's a liquid diet, he grinned reaching for the beer and licking his lips. Chapter 46 Solitary Confinement Kay was humming and packing when the door was pushed open. Edith stood in the doorway. Madam wishes to see you, said Edith, a malicious smile on her face. Kay's heart gave a sudden thump. So close, a child's voice whispered in her ear. She shook her head, almost shivering with fear. Why? she whispered. That is for her to say, said Edith. Come on. Don't, 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 said the voice, but against a crowd's cry of fear and guilt. It had little weight. All right, said Kay, straightening. As she walked through the house... Tiny portraits of pain and loss seemed to crowd her vision. There, by the wall, a little child 
staring at an enormous mother's raging face, her fingers daubed with paint. At the foot of those stairs, playing with the hem of her pretty dress, her mother's voice droning out corrections after the guests had left. There, in that little room, caught admiring her naked young body in a mirror, screamed at for evil thoughts. Through that window in the garden, under that hedge, driven away from her only friend with ugly threats. In here, said Edith, stopping. Kay felt dizzy. Danger! Death! Run! The voice cried in full panic. She stopped for a moment, leaning against the door that held her mother, her hands shaking. Come on, miss, said Edith implacably, putting her hand on Kay's back. Get away from me, snarled Kay, her hands rising in claws. I must go in there. I cannot go in there. The two voices collided with hopeless, helpless vengeance. Kay felt suffocated, blind. She groped at the handle of the door, wrenched it open, and went in. Her mother sat, almost crackling with energy. Father Jones stood stiffly facing the window. Lady Barbara's eyes widened as she stared at her daughter, then narrowed with all the hungry pleasure of a confident predator. The room seemed lost, disconnected, as if floating in a narrowing, empty space. "'Well, Kay,' said Lady Barbara evenly, "'I am sorry to report that you have turned out worse than I could possibly have imagined.' Kay's pale form seemed to fade into the white wall. Her face was mute, blank. "'You have seen fit to humiliate me in front of our guests,' continued Lady Barbara. "'You have decided to live utterly as you please, without a thought for the feelings of others. You have grown from a suspicious, impossible child into a shrewish, vicious, cowardly, manipulative woman.' The old woman sighed. That is your choice, and age must respect all the choices of youth. That is the new thinking, is it not? We must all bow to the absurd vanities of empty-headed youth. Certainly I have a mind to, for I am thoroughly sick of the job of mothering such a child. You wish to become an adult, that is plain for all to see. You also wish to become a motherless daughter. That desire has been made plain to me as to others. Very well. I will not fight you. But if you think that being an adult is all peaches and cream and shamelessly running off to London to chase young men, you are quite mistaken. I may no longer be your mother, but I am still an adult, and I tell you here and now that if you want everything to be as your vanity dictates, it will never happen, not in this world and certainly not in the next, where you will face judgment for all your present sins. You are an adult. You have wrangled control of half the family fortune behind my back again. Your choice Thus you must assume all the pleasant responsibilities that this choice entails. Father Jones turned from the window, his face pale. Lady Barbara, he said hesitantly, is there any need for... For what? cried Lady Barbara, turning to him quickly. For discipline? For responsibility? For accountability? Do not fall prey to these delusions of youth, good father. Have the courage of your faith. Yes, but... but... Lady Barbara rose from her chair like a spectre. What? she shouted. If you have nothing intelligent to say, at least have the good grace to not stand there mumbling like a fool. 
Father Jones went pale, as if assaulted by ghosts. He backed against the window, ducking his head and raising his hands. I'm sorry, he whispered. Mother, said Kay. Lady Barbara whirled on her with a sweet smile. You use that term with me? How fascinating! How anthropological! Mother, repeated Kay. Mother, what do you want? A daughter I can be proud of, said Lady Barbara, waving a hand. But that is not possible. More to the point, there is a financial matter which requires her ladyship's attention. A matter of grave ancestral responsibility. Now I stand before you like a petitioner, like a little Jew clutching his cap, cried Lady Barbara, mockingly falling to her knees and raising her clasped hands towards her daughter, and say, Please, daughter, please, please, please find it in your heart to pay our tithe and save us from disgrace. Kay's hands fluttered. Mother, she whispered hoarsely, backing away, her eyes wide and wild. Mother, don't. Mary stood outside the door, staring at her hands. She had been about to knock, but suddenly noticed the blood running down her wrist. She uncurled the talons of her fingers and stared at the wounds her nails had made. What a surprise, she thought with the elemental innocence of the savagely disconnected. What strange stories my body speaks. She felt a wave of passion. She fought it, shaking her head. Not now, not yet. Her body struggled, weeping blood, but finally submitted to the endless force of her will, her resolution, her vow made in the wilderness. It shuddered before the gale of her determination, like a tree giving up its roots. Almost frightened at her sudden calm, Mary made her way downstairs. She went out into the garden without looking up at the shuttered window which held Kay. She walked out to the gazebo, seeing Jonathan and Lydia's silhouettes as if in a dream. Jonathan, she murmured. Jonathan. Jonathan turned around, startled at the tone of her voice. Yes, he said. Kay is up there, said Mary, pointing over her shoulder. She needs you. Jonathan glanced up at the shuttered window. What? Mary pressed the heels of her hand into her eyes. Get up there, she said in an agonized voice. Go, go, I, 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 I can't, she whispered. What's going on? asked Lydia. Jonathan stared at the window and stood, his jaw flowing to granite. His voice was low, dangerous. Her mother, he said slowly, standing erect and working his hands. He took a deep breath, exhaling slowly. This won't take a moment. Jonathan walked into the house. He walked up the stairs. He opened the door. He stood in the doorway, seeing this skeletal woman hearing the sealed, endless anger in her voice. He saw Kay's eyes darting to the closed window. He saw all of this and stood for a long moment. "'You may disobey your mother,' Lady Barbara was saying. "'You may disobey the natural bounds of womanhood. 
You may even disrespect God. But you shall not disobey the necessities of mortal office. You will hand over a bill for the entire amount of the tithe, and you will do so with a smile on your face, a song in your heart, and a shine in your eyes. You will do this because I tell you to, because even if you deny it, I will not be less than your mother. Stop it, said Jonathan. Lady Barbara turned, her lip curling. Oh, and here comes the big bad wolf to save Little Red Riding Hood from the wicked mother. What do you want, boy? To play the hero? Take my suggestion. Have a purpose in your life first. You will look a lot more believable. Jonathan waved his hand. What is the question here, Father Jones? Father Jones turned his head, his eyes red. A little matter of a tithe, he said defensively. It's not as if I wanted all of this, yet, yet, yet I have a right to respect money, asked Jonathan, breaking into a smile. <laughs> this is about money. Well, how much? "'My daughter is not for sale,' said Lady Barbara between gritted teeth. "'Slaves usually are,' said Jonathan. "'How much?' His head ducking, Father Jones picked up the scrap of paper and thrust it at Jonathan. "'This—this this is the interest?' asked Jonathan, staring at it. "'No, the, the entire sum.' "'Gosh. Let me see,' said Jonathan, pursing his lips. "'It would take my investments about, what, two months to produce this sum?' He glanced at Kay, who stood against the wall, staring at the floor. "'Consider it done. Father, come with us to London, and I will write you a note.' "'To London?' cried Father Jones. "'I assume the matter is pressing,' smiled Jonathan. "'Yes, well,' began Father Jones. Lady Barbara glared at Kay. "'So you are going to be bought,' she snarled. "'Bought and paid for like any common whore.' Jonathan strode forward and raised his hand. It did not feel like a violent act. It was an instinctive act, a protective act. He knew it was not violent because the motive faded as quickly as it came. He saw it depart and was profoundly relieved, for he at once understood the impulse that can make someone kill. Kay, said Jonathan, turning away from the old woman, his voice quite calm. Kay, come with me. Kay did not move for a moment. She studied him. He could almost feel his soul's roots twitch with the intensity of her gaze. Can you be trusted? The words cried out from her whole being. You are not being bought. Just set free. Kay, I love you, he said. And this was another impulse. It was not passionate, but certain. You love her weakness said Lady Barbara, backing away in disgust. Jonathan turned to her. You want death, he said, amazed at his words. You want death because you hate life. You hate life because you are a coward. And because you are a coward, you cannot let others live. Brutal beast, hissed Lady Barbara. Kay stood a waiting wing. Jonathan walked up to her, touched her cheek, took her hand, and walked with her from the room, light as a feather. Chapter 47 Released from Light The next day dawned with a brightness so intense it almost shivered. 
outside all nature's darkness hid in deep holes, surrendering the world to the sunshine. Inside, the house rose sadly. It was an exodus. Even the wallpaper seemed to mourn. The bags were carried down. The horses fed extra oats. The servants lined the steps to bid farewell. Lady Barbara rose early, dressed primly, and sat in her room silently, her mirror turned to the wall. When she heard the goodbyes to the servants, she rose slowly and came down the stairs. She kissed both her children, ignoring the sudden tensing, and blessed the entire journey. She accepted the awkward thanks of her guests with a gracious smile, and stood on the steps after the servants had left, after the carriages had left, and watched the road. The sun was everywhere. It lit the ruts left by the carriages. It lit the cracks in the steps. It lit the veins on the back of Lady Barbara's still hands. The sun was everywhere. It seemed to find no darkness worthy of retreat. The sun was everywhere, save one place only. The sun was everywhere, but in her eyes.